Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, if uh, you'd all be seated, that would be terrific. But feel free to get out for coffee and refreshments anytime. My name is Jim Hecker. I'm uh, counsel to the Wires Group and uh, a former FERC uh, person and uh, uh, just one of the local lawyers. But uh, uh, we are uh, we are delighted to see you all here this morning. And so, on behalf of Wires, I, I want to welcome you. Uh, to the first kind of day-long session like this that we've had. We've briefed uh, policymakers and Hill staff and agency uh, uh, staff on the uh, realities of the electric transmission system for a long time, uh, but we've never uh, uh, done a survey course uh, and looked at all the many issues that are um, that are challenging uh, investment in uh, the electric transmission grid. So uh, let me uh, let me acknowledge um, some of our friends who are here and helped us put this on: the National Electric Manufacturers Association, uh, the Midwest Governors Association, uh, the uh, Environment and Energy <laughs> Studies Institute, um, and. Um, in a new group, you'll hear from one of their founders this morning, uh, the House of Representatives Grid Innovation Caucus. We're going to hear from uh, Representative Matt Nerney at lunchtime. Um, so we are, we are, uh, we are, uh, of course, especially indebted to the Reserve Officers Association for doing a terrific job uh, with this setup. Uh, their facilities are wonderful. And we had them draw the curtains because we were afraid you're going to start looking out the window at this beautiful day. So, um, uh, a few housekeeping matters. Those of you who have laptops and want Wi-Fi, uh, the the uh, the code is wires in all caps and group in lowercase. Um, we also point out that. Um, Although we're not charging for this uh, session today, we would welcome any contributions you would want to make uh, to Salvation Army Washington Area uh, Fuels Fund uh, for, uh, for, uh, for underprivileged uh, uh, and challenged uh, energy users. So uh, that, that would be downstairs. You can, you can uh, give that some thought. Uh, we... Um, we will be offering lunch. Many, I'd say most of you, have signed up for that. And um, uh, we, uh, we are delighted to, uh, uh, to uh, have you all uh, stick around for this whole day of uh, excellent panels. If you haven't signed up, uh, with, this is the honor system, so you'll just have to bite your wrist, I guess. But, um, um, the... Um, our speakers, uh, in most instances, are uh, going to be happy to talk to you offline, maybe out in the hall. We have so many subject matters, so many good speakers today, that the time for this is going to be relatively compressed. Um, so uh, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, uh, first of all, uh, I think we're surveying how high-voltage transmission systems work, how they, how they operate, who regulates them, and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and some discussion of the 
the basics, the fundamentals you need to know um, as a policymaker, as an industry person, as agency staff, in order to appreciate uh, exactly how this enormous machine uh, works. Um, is, is our presentation going to answer every conceivable technical question you have today? Probably not. But you will have access uh, on a continuing basis to these uh, excellent panelists, and I, I urge you to engage in an ongoing conversation with them about, about, the, uh, about the grid. Uh, second, we, we have um, highlighted several important um, developments uh, that are affected by the network, the transmission network, or, or that affect the network. Um, and uh, we want to talk about, you know, why you invest in transmission, uh, who pays for it, uh, what benefits do they get, uh, and what, uh, and this is very interesting, I'm looking forward to the, the last panel this afternoon when some really uh, seasoned industry experts are going to tell us what they see coming down the road in 10, 20 years as far as the uh, wholesale or bulk power market and the electric transmission system that supports it. Um, we have, of course, some preeminent energy policy advocates uh, from Congress uh, and, uh, and some most knowledgeable industry experts to talk to you. Uh, so uh, to the extent we possibly can, we're going to provide opportunities for you to ask them questions. Uh, and since this is being videotaped, we will post this all on our website for you to refresh your recollections. And uh, that, uh, that is something, and the materials we posted there as well, um, that is something you can refer back to uh, in the future. Um, uh, the electric transmission system, as I alluded to, is a, is a large, complicated machine. Uh, and there is a rage for infrastructure among policymakers in this country. Everybody's talking about it. But it's all, it all seems to be dominated, conversation dominated by the roads and bridges guys. Uh, and uh, I would say that the electric transmission system is one of the uh, three most important networks uh, that ties our economy uh, and our culture in a way together. Uh, and it's something that we, uh, that we uh, dare not uh, ignore, uh, which we have done from time to time in the past. Uh, it is, I submit, uh, the most important uh, thing that you never think about. Uh, and of course, people don't, don't particularly, aren't particularly aware of its benefits, and that's why we are uh, here today. Uh, Transmission is an enabler of new technology. It's a platform for competitive energy markets that will lower prices for consumers. Uh, it provides an access road to diverse energy resources, uh, including this new evolving generation mix that we see in various parts of the country. Um, but it can also be congested. Uh, it can be uh, outdated uh, in terms of its technology in places. Um, it is regulated in a somewhat peculiar way, as you'll find out. Um, 
uh, and uh, uh, and uh, we are we are we think it's very important to understand um, uh, the realities of the system, uh, both good and bad. Uh, the um, the first panel this morning, um, if you call it a panel, it's two fabulous uh, industry people that uh, I've known for a long time uh, are going to start us off uh, with what we call Transmission 101. And uh, 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 Don Morrow comes to us from Quanta Technologies in, in Houston. And Don uh, has... Uh, over three decades of experience in this business and in all aspects of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, the utility and utility consulting business. Uh, he is um, uh, an, uh, an expert in transmission planning, which is really at the core of what we're talking about today. Uh, Don is Senior Vice President of Corporate Strategy at Quanta Technologies, uh, and he has... Uh, <laughs> He has uh, uh, been at Quanta for um, since 2006. 2006 we started. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, American Transmission Company, uh, and uh, we we uh, are delighted to have Don here. Um, he is a uh, uh, an electrical engineer and uh, and an MBA uh, from the University of Wisconsin, my alma mater. So. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to introduce Don. His, his panel mate on this first panel is Adrian McCoy. Uh, she hails from, from Kansas City, from Burns and McDonald. Uh, uh, Adrian is also an electrical engineer and has the title of Market Strategy Manager. That's a new title, right? Yay. Um, she, she focuses on the transmission distribution part of the business at Burns and Mac. Um, and uh, uh, is a graduate of Kansas State University. So I'd welcome them to come up, um, and uh, we can get the, the, the uh, show on the road. Uh, we will be uh, perhaps a little bit arbitrary about time this morning so that we can get uh, a sense of, uh, of every speaker's uh, topic. So uh, with that, are you first? Thanks. All right. I'm on it. All right. Thank you. All right, welcome everybody. So uh, just to set the stage here, I want to um, again introduce myself. My name is Adrian McCoy. Like you said, I'm from Kansas City. <clears throat> I'm an electrical engineer by degree. Uh, somebody asked me earlier this morning how I got uh, conned into getting in the TND industry, and uh, I'll tell you, it was a long path, but um, mostly I, I became attracted to it because it's ever-changing, at least at this day and age, and I love keeping up with all the events that are happening. So today we're hoping to kind of walk you through some of those things. All right, so here's our agenda. We're going to go through the basic definitions and components of the grid. Uh, we're going to talk about how the grid is operated, how it's planned, how it's developed, who pays for uh, projects, how funding gets um, uh, together, and then go through some of the emerging technologies and answer any questions you guys may have. Uh, ultimately, the objective, like uh, Jim said, the grid is a large... Um, <laughs> complicated machine. So we want to take all of the interweavings of the technology, the operations, the planning, and try to unwind a bit of that for you guys today um, in 60 minutes or less, which will be difficult. So um, 
Anyway, stick with us. Uh, I will say that uh, we're trying to just give a high-level overview of all this. There's going to be people throughout the day that are going to do the deep dive into um, uh, some of these topics. So I'd say hold all difficult questions for them uh, in the afternoon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so starting with the grid, the most basic definition here. So what is the grid? The grid is the networks that make up um, our electric distribution, our transmission distribution system. So that's all the wires, all the transformers, all the switches. It includes the uh, generators, the power plants, the substations that step up and down those voltages, uh, and again, the lines that bring that uh, energy to your doorstep. A couple other basic definitions here for those that uh, maybe don't have the electrical background or a bit out of touch. Uh, voltage. So I always like to do electricity uh, under the analogy of the water system. This is probably the most popular way. My husband is a mechanical engineer. For him, he can talk about water and pressure and the movement of, of those things much easier than he can electrons. But really, it's all the same. Uh, so voltage is kind of like the electrical pressure, and it's measured in voltage. Or in volts. Uh, current is the movement of that charge. That would be like the water flow, if we're going with that analogy. Um, power then, or actually, let's start with energy. Energy then is the amount of work that can be done by electricity. So that's measured in watts. And then power would be the rate at which that electricity is transferred. And so another example of kind of the difference between energy and power here. Uh, so a lot of my friends who are non-technical ask, I say, so when I order, buy a light bulb and it's 15-watt uh, light bulb, what's the difference in getting that one or, or uh, one with lower wattage? So here's if you're wanting to know how your power is kind of calculated from your uh, light usage. You take one 15-watt light bulb, you're in for five hours a day for 30 days. Um, that's going to total up a power of uh, 2.25 kilowatt hours, and kilowatt just means 1,000 watt hours. So that's how your uh, bill would be calculated at the end of the month. So what can you hour with one megawatt hour? Or what can you power with one megawatt hour? So here's a in one megawatt hour, it's quite a bit of energy. You can power a number of things. You can cool a refrigerator for three months, that's 150 kilowatt hours. Download 130 or over 133,000 songs, 50 kilowatt hours, so on and so forth. And we'll talk about this uh, a little more in a second, but this is a rather general statement. Um, again, how much you can get out of one megawatt hour is going to vary in one part of the country to another part of the country. We'll get to that. Uh, so now talking a little bit about the industry and the overview. So utility ownership. Uh, there are kind of three basic forms of ownership in our industry. One would be the private or investor-owned model, uh, these are commonly referred to as IOUs. Uh, so these are supported uh, by private funds of the shareholders. So this is actually the prevailing form of ownership. Even though there's only around 200 uh, investor-owned utilities in the country, uh, they power over 75% of the uh, power users in the country. So this is the prevailing form. Uh, many of these... Um, are then owned by holding companies that maybe own one or two. Uh, so I have a California examples over here on the right. So the example of an IOU in California would be PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, who we have uh, some lovely people here today from PG&E. Um, so investor-owned utilities are, um, are regulated um, by uh, the, or are more heavily regulated than the public and cooperative forms. Uh, that's because the public and cooperative forms are government-owned or member-owned. Uh, so we'll talk in a minute about kind of the natural monopoly of our industry and why the IOUs might be more heavily regulated than, than those that are not. 
but public government owned, an example of that would be LADWP. That's one of the largest, I think actually the largest um, uh, publicly owned utility in the country. Um, most publicly owned name co-ops are, are smaller, more rural, but there are many, many more. As you can see, there's over 2,000 government owned utilities across the country. Um, and then the co-op is another form of public owned. This is member owned, uh, meaning that the actual members that, uh, that, that, that that utility is serving actually are part owners in, in the utility. So uh, they're providing an at-cost service. So it's kind of understood that the public and the co-ops are um, already operating with the customer's best interest in mind. So that's why uh, slightly less regulated. Uh, IOUs are as well, but, um, but again, because of the natural monopoly of, of the way they're formed, uh, a little bit different. So again, I, I went through that also to make the point that public utility does not mean it's publicly owned. So again, uh, when you hear public utility, don't, don't think that that means that they're all government regulated or government owned. Um, so the utility industry is uh, special for a number of reasons, not just because um, I love it, but it is a capital-intensive industry, so it is, not, it is not cheap to build a transmission line or build a substation or build a power plant. These are very capital-intensive um, efforts, and so there are efficiencies and economies of scale in, in having you know, one utility own um, and build all of that. They can buy multiple transformers, multiple um, pieces of equipment, and get uh, better pricing, so on and so forth. As well, they're... Uh, their equipment appreciates over 30 to 40 years. So again, because it is capital intensive um, and a natural monopoly, uh, it kind of spurs the regulated side of the market. Uh, also, there's an obligation to serve, and I'll point out that means that uh, utilities have an obligation to uh, serve anybody that wants to be connected to the grid. So um, no matter how far away you live from the closest line, there is an obligation to get power to you. I'll also point out, not only is an obligation to serve everyone anywhere, but also as much power as they want. Uh, so then the components of the grid, uh, the utility industry is uh, traditionally a vertically integrated industry, meaning that the people that own the generation also own the lines, also own the retail, uh, traditionally. And then there was a bit of a restructuring in the 90s, between 95 and 2002, uh, there were some efforts to restructure. So a number of a number of utilities um, sold off or spun off their generation. So now you'll see uh, in different parts of the state or of the country, there's some that are completely restructured already. There's some that did not go all the way through. Part of that, there was the California electricity crisis in 2002. Some of you may remember. That kind of put a hold on a lot of the restructuring efforts that were going on. So. Um, you'll find different utilities and different power companies in different phases of the restructuring. But uh, the main point here is that, um, is again, when we talk about who owns what, uh, who's regulated by what later as we get into who, who um, I think Pauline here is going to talk about who regulates. Uh, so keep in mind that uh, the transmission side is regulated, uh, the wholesale prices are regulated by FERC versus on the distribution side, the retail prices are usually regulated by their state uh, PUCs. All right, so then going back to, again, the basics of that vertically integrated uh, system there. Uh, generation, I think most people probably are familiar. Generation traditionally is uh, your coal power plants or nuclear. Nowadays, you're seeing a lot more of your renewables, your solar and wind and hydro and biomass. So these are just a few examples of generation. And then load. 
So the load is the consumer of that electric in energy. Um, loads can be anywhere from uh, a watt to, again, a megawatt. Uh, it all varies. Uh, you all see our uh, National Lampoon's Christmas here, so that would be quite the load. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, the loads can vary. So, uh, for example, the um, I saw a stat a while back. Let's see if I wrote it down here. That loads in the Northeast is um, have half the load consumption of the Southeast, Southeast, such as Georgia. So, if you think about it in that way, one megawatt generator could serve twice the amount of people in the Northeast as it could in the Southeast. So again, when we talk about load, and earlier when I mentioned what can one megawatt hour power, um, keep that in mind that it's going to vary depending on where you're at. Uh, I will also mention on this slide that the grid is designed to uh, service the peak load. Uh, so typically, reserve margins are anywhere from 15 to 20% range. Um, and so uh, a lot of times we, we plan and build the grid in order to be able to uh, manage whatever the loads are, the peak loads are, in the situation that one or two of the largest power plants in the area are down for maintenance or have failed for whatever reason. So um, when we talk about some of the technologies later and some of the efficiencies that we're trying to find in the industry and, and where transmission comes into play, transmission plays a big piece in, in making sure that, um, that the load is able to be served. Distribution then, again, this is, this is your uh, serving to the home, so these range anywhere from 4 kV to 12 kV. Some can call 34.5 kV, that's kilovolts or 1,000 volts. Uh, I always like to give, uh, when I do really, really entry level, so at your um, outlet, you get 120 volts, 110, 120 volts, right? So even though this is the low voltage, it's still uh, as little as 4,000 volts. So it's still a lot of voltage, but in, in the scheme of um, how we move power and, and the numbers. This is uh, this is your lower voltage. Transmission then is the high voltage. So this is anywhere from 115 kilovolts to um, 500-765 kilovolts. Um, in some parts of the world, they're um, doing it in megavolts now. Uh, but this is essentially your interstate system, and if, I think I have a picture somewhere in here. If you see a picture of the grid, you'll see it is a web of inter interwoven transmission lines. And so the purpose of transmission lines is that when you um, start at the generator, you want to step up. Oftentimes, your power plants and things are far away from where your load is, right? You don't want a power plant sitting in your um, you know, neighbor's backyard. Uh, so we'll put them out uh, away from the load system, usually. And then you have to get that power to the load center. And so the best way to do that without um, to minimize the amount of electrical losses there are is to step that up to a high voltage. You have less loss at a high voltage. So then you'll move it at the high voltage to another <laughs> substation closer to your load center. You'll step it back down to the distribution level, and then that's where it'll move on into, um, into your distribution network, into your neighborhoods, and hit another transformer and meter at your house. So transmission is important because, again, it enables us to build generation in areas that are removed from the loads, like I mentioned. Um, this is more desirable from an environmental standpoint, and again, like I said, nobody wants to have something uh, in their backyard. Uh, it also allows us to build larger and more efficient generators. So the, the larger the capacity of the power plant, um, the more the higher capacity of the line we need to bring in. So we can, uh, again, do economies of scale on both the plant and on the transmission lines to bring that to the load center. 
And again, uh, getting power out to remote areas with lower losses. So in our country, we have um, around 6% six per, six uh, electric loss on our lines. Uh, so again, by, by increasing to the higher voltage, we're, we're minimizing that amount. And again, creating robust interconnected networks. So um, obviously, the, the, the basis of everything we do in this industry is around reliability, resiliency, safety, all of that. So transmission enable us, enables us to increase our reliability, decrease our costs. Uh, and it also, uh, and, and Don will talk here in a second a bit more about markets and power pools and whatnot. Uh, but it also enables us to operate under that kind of a format. All right, great. Thank you, Adrian. Mm -hmm. Nice job, Adrian. Um, and I have a great excuse. As of yesterday, I had no voice. And when I woke up this morning, I have a voice. So kind of. I hope it holds up throughout this uh, uh, little talk. Who here is brand new to this industry? Raise your hand. I mean, if you're here for Wires uh, University, raise your hand. Okay. Um, who's been in this industry for a very long time and could be teaching this thing? Hannes, I know, could raise his hand. All right, and so there's a whole group of people in the middle. Uh, for those that are here, who's an attorney? Raise your hand. Okay, who's an economist? Any economists in the room? And then engineers. And then anybody who I didn't mention, anybody else that would not be a little That's interesting. So, uh, so you may be my primary audience, and Adrian's primary audience here today. Now, how do I do? Just tap this? If you hit the arrow. What's that? Oh, the arrow. Got it. All right. So if you are an attorney or an economist, one of your perspectives on the industry when you're dealing with uh, buying and selling electricity, uh, we started, when I started in the industry, and still to this day, most of the energy was transacted through bilateral transactions, two parties sitting together and going, hey, I got some excess energy, you want to buy it? And someone else going, yeah, I might be interested, it's expensive for me to generate what's your price. You cut a deal and you make a sale. Uh, those would be, in this example, uh, A and B. So you might have utility A with some excess energy, utility B uh, needing it because they're running some expensive internal generation, maybe in a downtown area. Now, this looks real simple, right? You know, you just, utility A cranks up their generator, utility B lowers their generator, power moves, they do some accounting, cut a deal, and pay for it at the back end. This seems simple. Here's the reality. Uh, what happens is the utilities are part of an interconnected network. And that's what electricity is like here in this industry. So if you're utility A in the middle and you just want to move it to utility B on the side in the lower left-hand corner, some of that does flow directly. But the physics of the system means that actually the rest of it moves around the grid. And so what you'll see here in this example is some of it moves from A to E, so it actually moves away, and then that'll flow back through D or F, and then through C into B. And this is a realistic example of how electricity moves throughout the grid today. When you think about some of the issues on the electric system. And you think about the markets that I'll talk a little bit more about and what many of the people here are going to be talking about later in the day. 
this is a dynamic that has to be taken into account every single moment that the lights are staying on and every single process that gets into planning and gets into cost allocation. So this is a very fundamental dynamic that's an important takeaway from our introductory session this morning. Now I'll give a little bit of a background on grid operations and markets. Now grid operation, as Adrian pointed out, there's an analogy on the water system. But if you remember my previous slide about how that all flows, it's not quite the same. So there's an analogy on the components like voltage, current, amperage, and uh, wattage. But it, it flows through what's called the path of least resistance. And it's a, it's a heavily interconnected grid. So it requires an awful lot of monitoring to really keep track of how electricity is flowing on the grid. There's a few operators in the room. I know Greg's an operator. Raise your hand if you're a system operator. Okay, we only got one. So if you have any questions after this, talk to Greg. Okay. Uh, Thanks for that setup. Yeah, you got it. I'm there for you. Yeah. All right. So, um, but it requires a, a heavy amount of operation, and I'm going to show you some control center stuff here in a minute. The um, but it's really crit it's a critical difference, and it's a critical part of how the utility is operating. The uh, map that we've chosen is kind of interesting, too. Ignore the gold lines on that for a minute. You can see a lot of uh, what I would say are pre-existing or existing transmission lines uh, in the country. And the country's split up into three different sections. You have the Eastern Interconnect. Uh, that's the, I guess that would be a pink-type color. You have the Western Interconnect, which is the light green color. And then you have Texas, or ERCOT and that would be the light yellow color. And what you have is in each of those regions that really tight interconnected network. So when you have transactions occurring within each of those interconnections, you get that sort of pattern with how electricity flows throughout those grids. Now, what you see with the gold lines is a vision for where the electricity industry may go with this. Um, this would be a conceptual overlay that tries to link all of the grids together and allows for heavy movement back and forth across the country. Um, it's a vision, and it's something we put in here just to kind of give you a sense of, of what the system looks like now and where it may be going <laughs> in the future. Now, grid operation. Uh, this is a picture, I believe, of the CalISO, correct? And I've got a bigger picture of that here in a minute. Uh, the control centers uh, that, that are at the independent system operators, the utilities, um, and a few other organizations that we may talk about if we've got time, uh, they're staffed 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and their focus is on safety, reliability, and availability of the electric system. They do a lot of stuff in here. But one of the most uh, basic things that they do is they balance the generation with the load. And that's a critical thing. There's a lot of automated systems that are in place. Uh, you may consider it part of smart grid in some ways, because I'm an old transmission guy, as Jim pointed out, been in the industry for a very long time. Um, we've been doing a lot of smart grid stuff from the very beginning in operations. So we have a lot of telemetry, a lot of data that gets brought into control centers, and you monitor the electric use every second of the day 
and then you balance through automated control systems the generation with it. Those operators sit there and make sure that that's working correctly. So there is an awful lot going on inside a control center. And this is an expanded picture of the Cal ISO. Um, really what's happening in these big operations is there are transmission operators that are looking at the transmission system, looking at the flows on it. What that means is the electricity usage on each and every element on the, on the electric grid. They're monitoring voltage. They're monitoring the amount of flow. If there's an overload, they're positioned to take corrective action. If there's an automatic outage, they're positioned to uh, react to that. There are market operators. And we'll talk more about energy markets, but these people sit there and, and keep the energy markets going today to uh, efficiently move electricity throughout the U.S. electric grid. There are what are called balancing authority operators. These are the people that balance the generation with the load, and they do a, a lot of interaction between the transmission operator and the market operators to make sure that everybody's playing uh, their role correctly and satisfying uh, the North American Electric Reliability Corp uh, standards and their reliability criteria. Now, supporting the operators, there are a couple of positions inside these things as well. Uh, there's what I would call an operational assessment engineer, and these people are sitting running studies uh, almost continuously throughout the day that are looking at what if scenarios, they're looking at if a contingency happens, if this generator trips off, if I lose the whole substation, what's going to happen to me? Um, if there's some maintenance occurring, how does that affect the electric system? And they're there to run studies and provide technical support for the operators so that they can make uh, sometimes instantaneous decisions. There are also people in there called maintenance schedulers. And they work together with the, with the operations planners, the field crews, the, the uh, folks that actually hang the wire and, and send out the trucks and so on. They also interact with uh, PJMs or the California ISOs to look at when is the appropriate time to take out a transmission line where it will not ideally cause a, maybe a, a price spike or um, some issues in reliability for a certain part of the grid. So they're sitting there, again, round the clock, working year-round, scheduling outages and making sure that it's being done in an appropriate way. And then finally, there's supervision. As you can imagine, uh, the bigger operations like CalISO or PJM, who's going to speak with us shortly, uh, these are very complex uh, operations, and so the supervision is there to kind of make sure things are working correctly. So that's a control center. Now, you've heard a lot about smart grid, and uh, as I pointed out, I think on the control center side, there's been a lot of smart grid capability all along. Uh, operations needs to take immediate actions. We talked about that. Smart grid, in this case, refers to an upgraded system which offers grid operators even more visibility and control. So I've got an example here. I've got uh, two sets of pictures. Uh, anybody recognize that guy standing above the console? That would be me. So you can see what this industry does to you after a while. Um, so that is a control center from about the mid-90s. And um, so you can see there's actually a fair amount of advanced capability even at that time. The graphics were, were primitive. Uh, Randy and I used to work together. Randy Satterfield was going to talk. That's an old-style map board behind. Um, they just got rid of that. 
type of a map board and gone to a, uh, a video wall. But generally, the information that the system operator uses today has been available to them at least since the 80s, and generally, actually, in many cases, back into the 70s or 60s. So a lot of that data is there. There's two-way communications that are, that are in the control center. There's the ability to operate remotely or open up a breaker or take out a transmission line. There's the ability to change generation, bring them on, take them off. Um, so that's there. The smart grid enhancements in the control center really are about enhancing or increasing uh, situational awareness. Situational awareness is, is a phrase that's in our industry right now. It's kind of a buzz phrase. But what it means is if something bad's happening, the operator has the ability to rapidly figure out what that bad thing's going to do to the electric grid and give them a pathway to restore the system back to normal and prevent either a blackout or restore service as quickly as possible. Uh, that's the purpose of smart grid in a control center. Now, there's some emerging smart grid capabilities coming. I won't go through this in detail to save some time. Uh, but real quick, distribution, distributed generation is going to become a big deal. Uh, even at some of these large control centers, the amount of distributed generation is showing up in big ways, and it's starting to have some big impacts on the system. Smart appliances may be part of the controls that are implemented to help address that. Remote control applications, uh, plug-in hybrids, as you can imagine, can be a big, big deal and kind of bring in storage in a way that's really not formally storage, but can be used that way. Uh, got a lot of the locally generated power, um, wireless chips, which is communications enhanced between the control centers to uh, maybe intermediate uh, operations points out into the homes, and web and mobile phone interfaces, and then obviously energy storage. So a lot of this is coming. Um, if I had more time, I'd go into it, but just be aware that this will be impacting how our operators uh, will approach their job today. Now, electricity markets. We talked a little bit about that at the beginning. Um, megawatt of energy, like any other commodity, is frequently bought or sold. In some cases, and especially in, in uh, places like PJM, where they have a, a market called a locational marginal price uh, or an LMP market, you don't even know who you're buying and selling your electricity from or to. So it all goes through a, a kind of a market, and whatever that price clearing uh, is, you're going to get that electricity. Uh, market participants in this include generators. There's obviously end users, and then there are resellers uh, as well as utilities and so on. Now, the price for our wholesale electricity is, as we talked about, there's still some of this um, bilateral transactions going on. Uh, generally, in the case of that, it's just negotiated price, whatever you know, makes sense. There are FERC-regulated uh, wholesale tariffs. In some cases, those are cost plus. But generally now, um, since about the mid-'90s or maybe the early-'90s, those have been converted to uh, market price. So there really are no caps. And um, if you've been around the industry long enough, you know the price spikes that occurred in the late 90s. A lot of those tariffs had changed just before that to, to uh, market price, uh, prices. Uh, in an LMP-type market, 
generally what happens there is you have a clearing price. So everybody puts in their electricity needs. The market operator aligns all of that, determines a certain amount of energy to buy. Then they'll pair that up with suppliers that will put in a price point, and they'll go from the lowest to highest. And when those two intersect with a certain amount of reserves and so on, uh, that's when they'll, they'll cut the deal, and that's where the price points are set. Now, wholesale electricity markets are not universal, and they are not throughout the United States, but they do cover a significant portion of it. Um, in the United States, the shaded areas represent um, two things. One is an ISO, independent system operator, which oversees the grid and works with the utilities to operate it. But generally, they also operate an electricity market or a clearing market. Excuse me. So there are seven of these in the United States. And in New England, uh, New York ISO, PJM, going from east to west. Then we have the Midwest ISO in the middle. Uh, Southwest Power Pool, ERCOT, um, and then California ISO. Also, there are two ISOs that are set up in energy markets in Canada. There's the Alberta Electric System Operator, AESO, and then the Independent Electricity System Operator, IESO, in um, uh, Quebec. Now, there's a lot of action in Many of these have been in the news recently, especially the Cal ISO and PJM. Uh, we'll talk about those two in a minute when we get into the planning. Um, now, as, as we talked about, there's not a standard market across the country, and even within the ISOs, uh, the way they implement their market has some subtle differences. Not every product, for example, in PJM, is available to you if you want to plan the SPP market. Uh, so there are some differences. But all of them provide a central clearinghouse for transactions. Uh, all of them allow for, if, if desired, negotiated uh, bilateral agreements. And all of them make efficient grid management. It's all about really making sure that the most uh, economically uh, priced electricity is available for the users of the grid and in a way that supports the reliability of the electric grid. Uh, right now, participation is voluntary, uh, but I do think FERC keeps moving more and more toward a uh, mandatory um, participation in markets. They're not there yet. We'll see if they ever get there. Um, this is a little price chart on, on prices. I'm going to skip this one because I think this one's more interesting. Now, if you are going to be playing the markets today, you would, and unfortunately it's not showing up too well, you would be staring at a screen right now that looks just like this. And this is from the Midwest ISO. This is the northern half of the Midwest ISO. I took this last, uh, last week at 10.15 a.m. And it was showing the electricity prices throughout the Midwest ISO at that point in time. The color shading shows uh, different uh, ranges of the, of the price, and the, the bluest is the lowest price all the way up to the red, in this case it would be yellow, would be the highest price. And what you can see here is that prices are not uniform across an energy market. You would think maybe they would be, and, uh, but there's a reason for this, and that's because sometimes there are what are called transmission constraints. 
that prevent the lowest price energy from getting into the biggest pockets of biggest demand. And so even on this relatively normal day with very, very standard temperatures, we were seeing some price spiking right around the um, intersection of Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. So I want to put this in here to not just show you how energy markets work, but also to give you a feel, especially if you're new to the industry, how markets can help target potentially transmission investment to help lower cost uh, for pockets of high cost energy. I'm not sure this may be a case, but it does illustrate that these pockets do exist and planners and utility folks are able to get the, use this data to make informed decisions on transmission investment. All right, let's talk a little bit about grid planning. Um, as you can imagine, this all doesn't happen just by itself. It doesn't automatically, five minutes, all right, does not come together just by itself. It, it requires some, some knowledge and some planning. Uh, in, this, in the transmission space, uh, FERC regulates transmission. Um, when you get into distribution or generation, uh, that also that starts to bring into the states. We'll skip forward. Uh, when you look at the, the, when the planners look at the grid, they focus on a variety of things. Is it adequate? Is there good size and strength to the system? Is it balanced? Can you handle the maintenance? Are you dealing with safety and protection? And then uh, uh, recovery and restoration. So the primary purpose of transmission planning determine the transmission and substation additions, which render the transmission network to be able to supply the loads and facilitate wholesale power marketing with, with the given criteria at the lowest possible cost and managing the risk of the system. And that's, that's the essence of planning. Now, here are the factors real quick. Um, and if you're going to sit down and really try and figure out how to plan, you're going to go, well, how far into the future do I plan? Do I plan for next year or do I plan for 20? And the answer is it's kind of a combination of both. Um, you do need to look at the five-year window. To build a major transmission line takes about five years. I know people are trying to push that faster, but you need to look out at least five years to give you enough time to be able to execute. And generally, utilities in the United States and ISOs deal with a 10-year planning horizon. Uh, you got to do the load forecast. So when you look 10 years out, well, what's that electricity demand going to be? What's driving it? So you've got to figure that out. And look at your generation resources. Today, could that be in the form of, of uh, rooftop solar? Could it be a part of a wind farm? What generators are going to be retiring, maybe through emissions uh, requirements? So you take that into account. And you factor all of these things in here. I'll just highlight a couple of them right away limitations, because that's existing right away are opportunities for expansion. So that becomes a big part of it. And then uh, new and emerging technology. Um, real quick on regional planning, FERC has been trying to help out the regional planners quite a bit by issuing orders, and one of the orders they focused on is Order 1000, where they're introducing for certain transmission lines throughout the country the possibility of uh, not just the incumbent building it, the incumbent meaning the utility where the, that owns or serves the geographic territory of its footprint, but allowing other people to come in and actually bid on it. And those are usually very large regional type projects, or they could be public policy projects. FERC has come up with two uh, models on it, a competitive bid model and a sponsorship model. And for the details, you can look at it. And I do think we have some other, other talk on this, right, Jim? Yeah. 
so I can skip it. Okay. Uh, one of the biggest issues, and you're going to hear more about this, is cost allocation. Who's going to pay? Um, and uh, it's extremely challenging. If you go back to that first slide, or actually second slide, I showed you with that dynamic of the power flowing all over the place. That dynamic makes cost allocation extremely complicated. Now, there are three ways that currently exist to look at funding projects. There's a rate-based project, which goes, it's an approved project, goes through the planning process, gets into the rate base. There's something called a participant-funded uh, project where you have uh, someone who's agreed to pay for the transmission line, maybe it's a generation uh, source, and so they will go ahead with a contract and, and deal with that. And then you may also have merchant projects that are being built on spec, uh, but looking at price differentials like we had on that one LMP slide from the Midwest ISO, and they look at that delta in price to help fund it. And with that, I'm going to real quick back over to her to cover the emerging make it fast. All right, so quickly we'll go through a couple of the emerging technologies just for those that are interested in some of the things that are up and coming in the industry. So storage, you guys will hear about storage quite a bit, probably for um, no short term here. Uh, so as, as Don mentioned, there's, there's a, um, a real struggle with balancing loads sometimes. And so if you think about uh, when your peak loads are going on, if you can use storage to hold over maybe wind uh, energy from the night before, that kind of thing, and then use it to serve your load uh, during the daytime, it helps a lot with, uh, with balancing your load. Um, skip through quickly here. Uh, Seagrid phasers and PMUs or phaser me measurement units. Uh, when we talk about smart grid, this is, this is one of the technologies that's coming out of the grid very quickly uh, in support of smart grid efforts. So uh, a seeker phaser is, again, a sophisticated monitoring device. It can measure the voltage, current, and frequency at specific locations. Those three things are kind of like the heartbeat or health of the system. So it allows the operators to monitor those, <coughs> excuse me, monitor those uh, and then they can make real-time decisions based off of the, the data that they get. Both online decisions, such as um, being able to accelerate the reclosing of an important tie line, um, or offline decisions, such as going back and doing um, any kind of analysis on that data to help them with system planning for the future, uh, or any forensic analysis of any events that happen on the grid. Um, again, uh, synchrophasers, uh, and uh, they're measured by PMUs. These are 100 times faster than the existing SCADA technology. Uh, so that's what you see out on the grid mostly right now. Uh, so these are, you'll, you'll be seeing these. They overall uh, can improve your reliability, uh, cost efficiency, and, and help operators again in real time. Superconductors are another emerging technology. These are pretty cool. They're made out of alloy, alloys or compounds that allow um, electricity to be conducted uh, with less loss as long as they're maintained below a certain level. These are still expensive. Uh, again, I think as, as more and more of these get deployed, you'll see the uh, cost effectiveness of these go down, and you'll probably see more and more. But um, like I mentioned before, uh, in the United States, about 6% of the electricity that's transmitted here is lost. That's, if you do the math on, on what we were talking about before, that's quite a bit of uh, cost that we lose right out of the gate. So being able to... Um, a, transfer electricity with less loss, and B, um, this would also enable you to transfer power over long distances at lower voltages. Um, like I said before, normally you have to uh, transform your voltage up to a high voltage uh, just to transmit it across a long distance. Now you could do that at residential voltages and eliminate the cost of a large transformer or a substation and so on and so forth. <laughs> 
Um, and then I think this is the last one I'm going to hit on real quick, and then we'll go to questions if we have time. But uh, SmartWire. So these are, um, there's actually a company, SmartWire is based out of Oakland. Uh, kind of a shout out here to them. But they have um, this technology that's basically a, a flow controller built into the conductor. And so, again, when we talk about real-time monitoring, uh, this conductor itself can, can um, adjust the impedance of the line to meet the needs uh, of, the, of the power on the grid. And so, again, it's just a real-time way to be able to um, affect the change in the line necessary to uh, improve the reliability. Uh, and so, in, in summary, uh, again, there's uh, the power system is a key element of the infrastructure here in the United States. Uh, we use uh, transmission to um, uh, kind of support the backbone of our energy markets. <laughs> And uh, there's a lot of challenges to investment. You're going to hear a lot more about that as we go through the afternoon. It'll probably be somewhat of a theme. Uh, but we're all here in this industry to try to address those needs, address those challenges, and uh, come out on the other end. Um, are there one or two really important questions? <laughs> Yeah, you want me to do that? Okay, the question was, um, um, we talked about balancing the load. What happens if the load is not balanced? Well, that's a bad thing. Uh, we don't like that to happen at all. Uh, generally, what happens in the system operations uh, time frame is the frequency drops. And so frequency dropping um, seems like it's not that big of a deal, but it's an extremely uh, dangerous thing to happen if it goes too far. The generation uh, that runs on the system, especially the, the large coal, nuclear, and, and uh, more traditional generators, have to be synchronized at 60 hertz or very close to it. If the system drops too far, they'll start tripping offline. And if you're too far out of whack, on, on your load, you're going to have a system collapse. So it's a very bad thing. Yes, sir. One more. One more question. I think it's you. Yep, you, sir. You, sir. He's a great mic. We'll repeat the question. We'll repeat the question. Okay, I'll talk loud. That's it. Uh, could you tell us something about the cost of these <laughs> new technologies like superconductors? Yeah, so again, uh, superconductors, just as an example, it's um, fairly early stages. Uh, they've only been deployed in a few places, and um, so the costs are still rather high. I, like I mentioned before, if you, as they start deploying more and more, uh, you're going to see that come down. And superconductors, again, in, in particular, in order for them to maintain the um, low temperatures that are required for that conductor to uh, achieve low loss, they have to be insulated, uh, gas insulated in most cases, and so that represents a rather high cost as well. So I think as that technology develops more, uh, you'll see more and more of that. They, they'll become more popular in underground as it's easier to uh, insulate there, but I think you'll see those costs coming down. Sure. Where are they doing it now? Um, I know of a couple that have been installed in Texas. Okay, thank you very much. That was great. I, I want to bring to your attention that we are doing a live stream of this of these presentations this morning, and uh, I I do have a press report here that says uh, after watching the first hour of Wires University, 
Vice President Joe Biden and Energy Secretary Ernie Muniz today will call on Congress to approve millions of dollars in spending for, to repair the rickety electric grid. The pair, the pair will appear in Philadelphia touting today's release of the Quadrennial Energy Review. So, see, this is we're making a amazing, a big impact already. So, by this afternoon, we should have all the answers, I, I, I think. Um, uh, I, I hate to rush um, um, through this. Uh, I know you all have questions, and um, our, our presenters are going to be available throughout the day if you can collar them. But uh, we need to we need to move on. I'm afraid. Our, our next uh, our next uh, uh, presenters. We have four of them, and I, I guess I would invite them to to come up to the table. Um, and uh, I will. Uh, give you brief introductions and I think you will see from what they have to say the method in our madness. We've talked about the operational realities of the uh, of the bulk power system and the high voltage grid. And now we're going to talk a little bit about regulation, uh, uh, including things like siting, how RTOs transmission organizations work. Um, first up, and I, I, I don't know, are we doing this in the order that's in the program? Do you um, care? One, one, two, two. Yeah. I think. Am okay. I third or fourth? You're supposed to be I think fourth. you're, I yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> first up is, is Professor Amy Stein. Amy, Amy's an old friend and, and, uh, uh, and an associate professor uh, of law at the University of Florida. Uh, Levin School of Law. Uh, she's teach at Tulane, um, and uh, she is. Uh, I've heard her lecture on a number of occasions. She teaches energy law and policy, environmental law, climate change, um, grid governance, uh, distributed energy, uh, environmental law, federalism. Uh, it's quite a, quite a full plate. She's got a forthcoming article coming out at the Colorado Law Review called Distributed Reliability, and she's done one called Making a Case for Energy Storage. Uh, today she's going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the, the basic legal and jurisdictional concepts that, uh, that are confronted when we talk about uh, uh, getting uh, transmission projects authorized. Um, uh, our, our next uh, uh, presenter, and, and also a good friend, and something that's been uh, uh, very helpful to me personally, David Mornoff is the general counsel of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and uh, has a long history in that organization, um, uh, having, been, uh, having been a legal advisor to, uh, to uh, uh, the, the commission, uh, special counsel in the uh, office uh, of uh, general counsel. You were acting general counsel. You were deputy general counsel, um, and uh, and senior counsel to the chairman, I think. Um, and uh, uh, in he's been in private practice. He's a Harvard Law graduate. I'm telling you, there's nothing you can't ask this guy if he doesn't already know so um, uh, I hope you uh, I hope you find uh, I hope you find an occasion to, uh, to ask him uh, a tough question about 
you know, page 18 of South Carolina versus FERC or something like that. Um, I'm, I'm very glad you're enjoying yourself up there. <laughs> Randy Satterfield um, is uh, Executive Vice President for Strategic Planning and Project Development of American Transmission Company. Uh, in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, Randy has been a longtime supporter of WIRES uh, and uh, has uh, uh, given us briefings on transmission siting, but his responsibilities uh, range all over the, uh, uh, all over the map, as, as his title suggests. He's uh, been head of communications, regulatory and government relations, um, and uh, has done a, a lot of work in, in Plano project uh, development. Um, Randy, uh, Randy is a graduate of Marquette University, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted he's here today. Uh, and, and finally, uh, Pauline Foley um, uh, is, is with us. She works at the PJM Interconnection, which is the RTO we happen to find ourselves in right now. Uh, the uh, the regional transmission organizations uh, uh, play a, a very important role uh, since FERC helped to uh, them to emerge in, in the late uh, 20th century. Uh, they they uh, reflect the regional uh, realities of, of energy or electricity <laughs> markets and. Um, and uh, I, I look forward to hearing uh, what, what Pauline has to say. She's primarily responsible for legal issues regarding transmission planning, uh, generator and merchant interconnections. Uh, and she's been extensively involved in, uh, in a, lot of, uh, a lot of cases. Uh, some of mine, as a matter of fact, didn't come out so well, but uh, <laughs> we love her anyway. And the, uh, the, uh, uh, the job of, of uh, legal counsel uh, for RTOs is an exceptionally difficult one. Uh, it's uh, it, it's uh, essential uh, to understand the breadth of the authority of the RTO and, and what FERC wants, uh, as well as what uh, competing uh, utilities within the RTO uh, want from from that organization. So I, I look forward to hearing what she has to say. I'm going to turn it over to Amy Stein. Wonderful. Well, welcome. Good morning, and thank you all for being here, and thank you to Chairman Hecker, of course, for organizing, and all of the WIRES folks for putting together such a fabulous panel. But there are so many wonderful speakers here, I think, that we were each given 10 minutes. So unlike your morning panel, we get to do the entire world of our different areas in only 10 minutes. Um, and I wasn't aware of how fabulous um, Don and Adrian's presentation was going to be. So if you have already flipped ahead to mine, you'll see there's a few repeat slides. So mine will be even less than 10 minutes because I'm not going to bore you by covering slides we already handled. Um, I had the pleasure of kicking off our panel, and so my job was supposed to be sort of laying the fundamental groundwork for some of these issues, um, and then touching upon jurisdiction. And happily, I don't really need to do the fundamental groundwork anymore. Um, so transmission basics we can sort of skip, but I will then talk about transmission jurisdiction and then give a nice, hopefully, segue into transmission management. Um, 
And the idea being that David will be able to dive deeper into what FERC is doing with FERC's um, authority and jurisdiction. And Pauline will be digging deeper into sort of regional issues in terms of management. And I believe Randy will be digging into siting issues. So I'll touch upon the basics of jurisdiction upon each of those three areas for our panel. So transmission basics, the one slide you have not seen yet, um, which is our sources of electricity generation in our country. And even though this is a transmission panel, I took the liberty of branching out a little bit to be thinking just about generation first. Um, as Don explained, our uh, industry is generally broken up into three segments, generation, transmission, and distribution. That's how we have historically viewed the entire industry. And we are seeing now a lot of technologies which are sort of crossing over. Things that can perform multiple functions, like energy storage, for instance, which Adrian briefly mentioned. It's causing lots of interesting jurisdictional quandaries for all of us, because what do we do? We sort of used to have these nice lawyers like to partition. We like clarity. We like categories. And now all of a sudden we have these things that cross over. Um, but I think it's important to just have some sense, particularly with my students. Um, I'm assuming all of you know this, but that, you know, things like, one, what's striking? Um, petroleum is not an issue when we're talking about electricity. So just really remembering that energy as a whole, we often think about it in terms of electricity and transportation. Um, but then once you're in the electricity world, coal is still king. Um, natural gas is giving it a run for its money. Um, as many of you, I'm sure, have been following the fracking boom uh, <clears throat> over the years, this chart from EIA, the Energy Information Administration, which if you have never frequented their websites, have some of the best data out there in terms of more than you could ever imagine on any single thing. Um, and they have all these cool new Excel formats that I was just on a panel with the administrator of EIA. And so thinking, though, about if you look historically how this has changed a little bit, nuclear has remained relatively constant. It's always been around 19 20%. And renewables being 13%. And then this little box is the further breakdown of that. And based on what you see in the news, you would think renewables is all wind and solar. <laughs> um, but if you see, look, solar is actually 2% of the 13%. And wind, 32% of the 13%. Our number one source is hydro, actually. Um, and so biomass is a big source. This is important when we get to thinking about reasons why transmission lines are important. Um, this is from uh, New York ISO, does this great graphic, which then tries to break down, I think, the segments for you in a step-by-step -step process. I think Don showed you something similar, so I won't show a lot of time. I won't spend a lot of time. But just know that uh, the generator, and then we have sort of our transmission, it includes the transformers that Adrian mentioned, our substation, and then the distribution at the end. But what I will draw your attention to is underneath that. That can be a value added for those of you. You see how the blue boxes say wholesale and the reddish boxes say retail? And this is very important from a jurisdictional standpoint because although you'll see my slides focus on FERC's jurisdiction over transmission, um, FERC, of course, also has jurisdiction over interstate wholesale sales of electricity. Now, that's a mouthful if you don't deal with this, but really what the way that I think about it, and David can correct me, but is often sales to a middleman. <laughs> when you're not selling to the end user, those are the wholesale sales. And so then, from the middleman to you, the customer, that's the retail side. And in Congress, in its wisdom, has decided that we have split jurisdiction here, and that FERC, we have federal jurisdiction over those wholesale sales, but we leave it to the state public utility commissions and public service commissions on the retail side. 
So that is probably fundamental takeaway point number one. All right, then Don also used this great chart that I showed you. Now, the only interesting thing that I did, I think, was that I'm showing you, this was the map of, this is a few years old now, but this is the existing transmission lines. And then I think, Don, you were using this one, right, which was including the proposed lines as well. So just to kind of show you the difference, um, and you know, in terms of how massive this is, this only includes the lines that are 345 uh, kilovolts and up. So there's a whole mess if you go even lower than that, that the map gets even more complicated. Um, he had also mentioned to you the point about how the grid is not just one grid. So I would say that's probably takeaway number two for me, that um, it's really important to remember that we're really talking about three separate grids here in our country. So we have the Eastern Interconnect, the Western Interconnect, and the Texas Interconnect. Um, and why is this important? Because of a whole history of legal cases that have decided that if electrons get onto the transmission lines, they are on the grid and that is in some way connected to another state, even within your own state, because those lines connect to other states, that qualifies as interstate which triggers the Commerce Clause, which triggers the interstate provisions of the Federal Power Act. And hence, FERC is able to grab jurisdiction over those sales. So this has been a long time coming. And what that also means is, can anyone guess what happens to dear old Texas down there? They are not connected to any other state, officially via interstate. And so they are able to largely avoid FERC jurisdiction um, through this process. So it's very interesting. I think two times they've needed to have a special request, right, to interconnect to be able in an emergency. And the second time, I believe, they went to Mexico instead <laughs> of going up. So, right, but the idea that they can kind of go it alone. Um, whereas I think that, as we'll, you'll hear definitely throughout the day, some benefits in trying to um, connect on a broader regional scale to have um, lots of benefits there. So the big drivers of new transmission, I think you've heard most of them already. Um, I'll just touch upon them briefly, one being enhanced reliability of the grid. I do a lot of work on reliability, and so to me that means both adequacy of resources to make sure we have sufficient resources there when we need them to get this perfect balance between um, you know, supply and demand, but also security, the ability to withstand disturbances. And so this includes things, I think, that um, the, pan the agenda for today is fabulous because it touches upon all these Cybersecurity, I would include in there, right? But the ability to withstand the physical attacks as well, like the Metcalf incident. Um, and so all that goes into trying to enhance the reliability of the grid, which is a big goal of everybody involved. Um, but to relieve congestion is also a really important one. Um, we can have equipment that restricts flows, but we can also have operational constraints. Um, one of the um, case studies we do with my students is actually we look at Bonneville Power Association where they had an incident where they had so much hydropower and so much wind that they couldn't get it all on the lines. And so they had to tell, curtail the wind farm and say, sorry, we got to let the, the water go. And you know why they had to let the water flow? Because of my other favorite topic, which is the interconnection of all of these different laws. It's not like we're acting in a vacuum under the Federal Power Act. We have the Endangered Species Act lurking in the background and the Clean Air Act lurking in the background, which we'll talk about later this afternoon with the power plant. And so what happened is we needed to maintain minimum
minimum stream flows for endangered species. And so the water had to run, so they had to curtail the wind. And then, of course, it led to a fun lawsuit that's beyond the scope of here today. Um, but these are the sorts of issues. If we had had more transmission capacity, then maybe we wouldn't have had such congestion. Um, also to facilitate the wholesale markets, I think that's already been talked about, but the idea being that historically you were sort of limited to buying from generators who were local, and that the broader you get in terms of interconnecting, the, the more op options you have, uh, less ability for someone to maintain a monopoly in a, in a narrow area because you don't have choice. Um, and then, of course, to support the diverse and changing portfolio, mentioned briefly, but remember that first chart with the generation sources? As that changes, for instance, as fracking and natural gas is becoming a primary source for so many states, um, states are able to make their own decisions about what they want their resource mix to look like. And so that chart was just nationally, but there's another great chart that shows, breaks it down regionally, how if you look at our United States by region and you see drastic differences in terms of what's the primary source. As we have so much more natural gas, that means a real need for more natural gas infrastructure, both pipelines and transmission lines to then move that around. Same with wind. Wind is being, our, there's a great map that if I had known that I would have time for it, I would have showed you, but it shows sort of our strength of our wind resources across the country, and they're all where we do not have large population centers. It's sort of that middle swath of our country, uh, you know, sort of western, but not quite all the way west to be close enough to L.A. and our big population centers. And so that means we need the transmission lines. I mean, the most fundamental reason for these is to connect our sources of generation to the people who need them. Um, and so then lastly, just a more flexible and resilient grid. Um, I think of resilience as being different from reliability to the extent that it's really about reducing the magnitude or duration of disruptive events. So kind of how are we going to recover from these? The, the learning process being adaptable to be able to come back on. Okay, so what I said I would really talk about in my four minutes remaining, right, is jurisdiction. Um, so if you only remember one law governing energy and you come out of here today, remember the Federal Power Act. So this is the big one for our purposes. Um, it is about 80 years old. It has been enduring since 1935 with some very um, interesting language. The first uh, important section, don't, I don't want all your eyes blazing over just because I put some legal citations up there. Okay, so the first provision is section 201, and this is the one that gives FERC, right, big first point, of course, FERC implements the Federal Power Act. Two, it gives FERC exclusive jurisdiction over the transmission of electric energy in interstate commerce. You see, there's that lovely frame. So we have the exact same language for jurisdiction over wholesale sales, but I just focused on transmission for our purposes. Now, it also requires FERC to ensure that all rates, charges, terms, and conditions of transmission service are, and here's your second big takeaway, just and reasonable, and not unduly discriminatory and or preferential. Um, and so this is massive because it applies to so much of what FERC does. Um, sections 205 and 206 are their provisions that basically have FERC review all public utility filings of rates. They respond to complaints. They can bring independent actions to review of rates. And in all senses, they are judging everything based on these standards. 
Now, if you have never seen this language before, you may be thinking, wow, like my students, that's really vague, Professor Stein, is what they tell me. Uh, what does just and reasonable mean? And then we get to dive deep. Well, let's see how the courts have interpreted it. Um, and so as much as it is vague, I think that this is the reason it has survived 80 years, is that we have been able to sort of use this term to suit what the current needs and situations are. Um, and so I don't see them going away anytime soon. Um, the other important piece would be siting of transmission lines. Now, so far we were talking about rates and terms and conditions, but it's not as easy as saying FERC has jurisdiction over transmission. That would be wrong, okay? Because the other really important piece is, well, who exactly is going to build these things and who decides which, which lines get built and where they're going to get built? And in the wisdom of Congress, this is part of the jurisdictional divide that goes to the states. So uh, it reserves power exclusively to the states over transmission siting. Um, for those of you who follow this, uh, there you all, of course, know about the backstop authority. But for those of you who are new to this, this was causing some concern that states were totally in charge over whether a transmission line could get sighted. Just think about that for a minute, and you can imagine all this talk about lines getting longer, lines crossing over multiple states, and all of a sudden you have three states, and there's that middle state who says, no, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm not going to be your extension cord. And so the one holdout state could basically trash an entire project. So folks started getting very upset, right? Because, well, what are we going to do? It's not cost-effective to we'll go all the way around the state. This is really important to connect two different states. And so Congress tried, and they amended. <laughs> we had a little piece here where it decided to give FERC authority over siting in certain limited circumstances. They put all these conditions that they had to work with Department of Energy. And Department of Energy first had to do a study, a congestion study, and they would have to designate certain certain areas as being so highly congested that it justified FERC making a decision about this. Now, everyone sort of thought, wow, is this going to be massive and make big changes? And, and what actually happened is that our lovely balance of powers in our country, that the judicial system sort of came in and took away all that power with a big, important case that basically said that FERC, they, they limited FERC's authority even more to say it's only in situations where the state withholds approval of a line, which basically meant that any smart state that didn't want it could just say no. And then there you go, all of a sudden, FERC didn't have this authority. And then sort of the second big hit to this federal extension of siting authority happened with another uh, Ninth Circuit case where they basically vacated those two congestion areas that Department of Energy had actually designated. They happened to have been in the Northeast and in LA. And so now we're in a state of limbo where the next congestion study is coming out right now, I think, aren't they? I think they're in their DOE should be coming out with their good. Every couple of years they have to do these congestion studies. So suffice it to say, in the world we live in right now, even though this is on the books, the states are still fully in charge of the siting of transmission lines. Um, the only other um, point I will make on this uh, would be sort of thinking about jurisdictional entities under the Federal Power Act. And just noting as well that FERC has a jurisdiction over public utilities. And this is any person who owns or operates facilities subject to the jurisdiction of the commission. 
This includes most of the investor-owned utilities that you had, um, had been referred to earlier, a few electric cooperatives, but that also means you should think about who is a non-public utility and whose uh, FERC jurisdiction does not extend to. And this would include state and municipal utilities, um, most electric cooperatives, federal utilities, and also, of course, you have to think about your old Alaska, Hawaii, and Texas, which are our, you know, two that we can't get under interstate, just geographically, and Texas, who now you all have learned because they're sort of on their lonesome. Um, so managing the grid, you have all seen this before, so I will not say much else. Um, I think that everything I was going to say has been covered, and I think even David's going to speak to it, so uh, we will let that happen. I will save my last minute to just tell you that the other entity you should be aware of in all this that I haven't heard discussed is NERC. NERC, just more acronyms in the energy world, but NERC is the North American Electric Reliability Council, and it is a nonprofit regulatory authority that's job is to assure reliability of the grid, along with 10,000 other entities that, as you hear here, I have uh, a reliability talk I give, and I basically say, well, these folks are in charge of reliability, and so are these, and so are these, and so are these. So it has really become a group ordeal here, um, and everyone is in charge, but just know that NERC is there, because you see all these these different ways we can cut our country apart. So they actually still see the three interconnections there. But now these colorations are giving you the eight reliability planning areas that our country has been divided into. And NERC adopts reliability standards and is subject to FERC oversight. And so this, of course, is another important component to all of the mix, trying to make sure that our transmission lines are doing it. This was just another added detail um, to show you that even those reliability regions are further divided into assessment areas. And NERC, if you're interested, comes out with all sorts of projections, reports, uh, short and long-term assessments about reliability in all these regions. And this is becoming so important, as you all know, reliability is being strained right now, both by the increase in extreme weather disturbances and events per Katrina and Hurricane Sandy and the rest. Um, the environmental regulations, which you will hear about this afternoon, EPA's uh, proposal to regulate carbon dioxide from stationary sources is the latest that is causing a whole lot of concerns because it is arguably going to push out and more and more coal closures. And as you saw on that generation slide, if the coal plants start closing down to try to comply with EPA rulemakings, because of course it's not just the carbon rule, there's a whole host of historical rules in the pipeline that are all sort of coming to be effective at the same time. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean natural gas is going to step up to fill that void? We, of course, still see demand for electricity increasing. Although it's increasing by smaller amounts, it is still increasing for the near future. Um, and then, of course, the move to renewables and distributed resources is also putting pressure on reliability. Renewables have so many benefits, but it is no doubt that solar is only good when we have sun and wind is only good when the wind is blowing. And that means they make for very difficult base load sources. They're not quite fungible with all of our base load coal and natural gas. By base load, I mean the flames that can kind of run 24-7. And so energy storage is very interesting because if we can find 
find a way to firm up those renewables. They can help with the reliability issues. Um, there's a lot going on there, and sort of the aging infrastructure that Chairman Hecker has referenced. We have a D-plus, I believe, for the energy industry per the um, engineers have sort of taken all of our infrastructure, and we are dealing with a D-plus there. So a whole lot of reliability pressures that um, we have a lot of entities to kind of focus on. So I will skip next steps and hand it off to David. Thank you. Um, so thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, Chairman Hecker, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I'm honored to be following up on the presentations that Adrian, Don, and Amy have made. Um, I have a couple of, kind of picking up on some of, their, some of their key points. And then we're talking specifically about a few FERC initiatives that are particularly important to the way the grid is currently operated and is developed going forward. Um, so, as Amy had noted, the uh, key statute and source for FERC authority with respect to these topics is the Federal Power Act, first enacted in 1935 and with particularly notable amendments in 1992 and then again in 2005. And also, as Amy had noted, the most important, I think, for present purposes in this discussion, FERC responsibility is to ensure that the rates, terms, and conditions of transmission service by public utilities and interstate commerce I do apologize. I know that is a mouthful. We did those clauses. Um, for transmission service and the practices affecting those rates must be just and reasonable and not unduly discriminatory or preferential. Um, those are very broad terms. I agree with Amy that that's an important part of why the Federal Power Act has been enduring, uh, particularly in contrast to PURPA, another statute that FERC implements, which remains important, but it's enacted in 1978. It is very, very specific and um, it hasn't aged as well as the Federal Power Act. I think in some ways that's because the broad terms have allowed FERC and given FERC a responsibility to interpret those terms in light of the many changes that have happened in geography, in the economy, and importantly in technology over the 80 years since then. There are many important FERC responsibilities related to transmission that I'm not going to try to cover today. Uh, one good example of not to be talking about is the um, Mandatory Reliability Standards Authority is something that FERC was given in 2005 by Congress. Uh, that is the relationship between FERC and NERC and the electric industry. Um, that's a relatively new responsibility. It's evolving. I think there's been important progress there, but that would be a whole story of its own. Um, but what I am going to focus on today uh, is probably the three most important FERC generic rulemakings that have uh, <laughs> currently affect the operation and development of the transmission grid. Uh, the first of those, really a landmark for FERC, is noted here as Order Number 888, uh, which FERC issued in 1996. Uh, is Order 888 because just at that time FERC was moving into a new building, which is 888 First Street Northeast. And um, the old building on North Capitol Street was widely regarded as a dump, so people were very excited to move into the new building. And uh, the key principle of Order Number 888 is open access of transmission. Uh, the premise there is to say in the traditional vertically integrated utility world, uh, you have one entity that owned the generation, owned the transmission, and owned the distribution. In that world, FERC had a concern that there would be the prospect for undue discrimination by the owner of transmission systems in favor of its own generation. At a time when Congress in 1992 was trying to promote the development of more competitive generation, that prospect could be really a problem. And so FERC said that there can't be that discrimination in favor of your own generation Rather, there has to be what's called an open access transmission tariff 
by which everyone can have access to the grid on an equal basis. Um, that also helped us set the stage for further development of competitive or called merchant generation. And that is upheld by the Supreme Court on uh, the issues of the extent of FERC's jurisdiction in the case of New York versus FERC in 2002. Uh, order number 2000, another major step. And did Chairman Hecker leave the room? Well, <laughs> Chairman Hecker is very modest in saying that FERC led the development of encouraging RTOs. Uh, he is the chairman who was driving the, the, the driving force behind the development of order number 2000. And the premise here is to promote voluntary membership in regional transition organizations. Um, picking up on something that Don said, right, to a slightly different perspective, uh, FERC has always emphasized that participation in regional transmission organizations or RTOs is voluntary. Uh, the voluntary nature of RTOs was a core principle by which the D United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit upheld uh, order number 2000. Uh, FERC certainly continues to try to promote the development and expansion of the RTOs with the belief that doing things on the regional basis provides a lot of benefits. Uh, we've seen membership continue to grow over the past decade as I think increasingly people are realizing for the operation of their system there are indeed benefits to that participation. Um, I think for the foreseeable future, FERC is not moving to mandatory RTOs. Um, FERC made a push in that direction in 2002, 2003, and a lot of considerations, uh, particularly concerns about lack of respect for regional differences, uh, FERC pulled back from that, and I think anything's possible. I think for the foreseeable future, voluntary participation in RTOs remains the key principle. Uh, and the RTOs work, it's not transfer of ownership of the transmission facilities to the RTO, but it's transferring operational control. So you still have the utility owns the transmission lines, but is allowing this independent entity, the RTO, or in a single state in California, New York, the same entity is known as the independent system operator. It's responsible for how the transmission system will be operated. Um, that premise, again, builds on the undue discrimination point I was describing for Order 888 and saying it's a further benefit if you have an independent entity that is operating the grid rather than having the <laughs> vertically integrated utility that has its own generation that would also be benefited through the operation. Um, I think as we've now seen this slide two or three times, but this is a helpful contrast to what I'll show you later. This is again the operation, the location of the RTOs, ISOs in the United States. As people have noted, FERC has jurisdiction with respect to six, uh, not with respect to ERCOT, the Texas ISO RTO, with the exception of reliability issues, which I mentioned briefly earlier. Um, and then talking a bit about order number 1000, uh, that is, so as I said, it's order 888 is 1996, order 2000, which gets that number because it's heading into the new millennium, it was issued in 1999. Uh, in 2011, FERC issued another major rulemaking with respect to transmission planning and cost allocation. Uh, that's called order number 1000, and that is just, it's um, an easily remembered brown number. Um, but, uh, the core premise of Order 1000 is that um, taking a broader look at transmission needs rather than only having planning done by each individual utility is more likely to identify more efficient or more cost-effective solutions to those needs. Um, so what the slide I have up here now shows the transmission planning reasons that have developed in response to Order 1000. For required public utilities to participate in a regional transmission planning process that meets certain criteria, 
but FERC did not take out the crayons and draw on the map and say, this is who has to go where. Uh, every utility gets to decide what uh, planning region it wants to join into, with the caveat that you can't be your own transmission planning region because that's, even though there are some utilities that carry, have very broad geographic scope, if you're, own, if you're planning only with yourself, FERC has said, that doesn't get the benefit of broader regional looks that Order 1000 is intended to promote. Um, so some of the core requirements of Order 1000, building on that regional transmission planning, is that every regional transmission planning process must develop a transmission plan. Importantly, in this respect, Order 1000 is about process. That plan needs to be developed, but that plan is not required to be submitted to FERC. FERC does not do a thumbs up or thumbs down on what the transmission plan is. Um, that, that transmission planning process must account for three different types of transmission needs. Uh, the one we've talked the most about this morning is transmission needs driven by reliability. Uh, when you're getting to the point where one of the reliability standards is going to be violated in the near future, utilities know you need to do something to fix that. Building transmission is one of the solutions. Um, other types of transmission tend to be looking a little bit farther out in time. That can be transmission that's not needed only for reliability, but can have economic benefits, such as reducing congestion on the transmission system. Or for the first time in Order 1000, FERC specifically identified a category of transmission needs driven by public policy requirements. FERC did not say there are any specific public policy requirements that need to be considered, but was anticipating a situation where, not only at the state level, but possibly at the federal level, you would have other laws or regulations being adopted which transmission could be part of the solution to how those needs would be met. Uh, a good example is I think 35, 36 states have adopted various forms of renewable portfolio standards uh, saying that utilities within their states need to buy a certain percentage of their electricity from qualifying renewable resources. As a general matter, you need transmission to get the power from those resources. Um, so one of the things FERC said, there has to be a home in the planning process. If someone wanted to come in and say, my state has a 20% renewable portfolio standard, I think we should be getting it from wind in this general area, you need to look at how transmission could address that need. Um, people have also briefly touched upon cost allocation requirements. Um, cost allocation is a core part of how transmission rates are formed. Uh, that goes to the just and reasonable aspect of that statutory authority for FERC. Uh, the, probably the most, uh, FERC set up six principles in Order 1000 that cost allocation methods need to meet. Uh, the cost allocation method, FERC said, has to be presented in advance, with the thought being if there's uncertainty about how a developer is ever going to get its money back, people won't want to make the often billions of dollars of investment that we're talking about for a transmission line. And then the cost allocation method has to be tied to who will benefit from that transmission line. Uh, that's an exercise in planning, determining what are the relevant types of benefits, uh, and doing a lot of modeling to see what that would be. Um, FERC also said that uh, the key phrase comes from a Seventh Circuit Court decision in 2008 or 2009. Uh, the phrase is that the cost must be allocated at least roughly commensurate with the benefits. Uh, roughly commensurate is acknowledging this is an art, not a science. Uh, you're not going to get precision, uh, but you at least have to be looking for who are the beneficiaries <laughs> of the transmission line, and they should be making contributions covering those costs. Uh, the flip side, which FERC said explicitly, is if you're not benefiting, then you don't pay. 
Um, if you wind up using the line later, then you'll pay for that service, but you won't be part of the initial, excuse me, cost allocation method. Um, two other brief areas in Order 1000 I wanted to touch upon is uh, the requirement that there has to be a place in the planning process for people who are not currently the transmission owners of the region to provide proposals. Uh, the thought was this is an area in which people, um, people may have new ideas that the incumbent transmission developers, for a variety of reasons, may not want to propose. If you can create a place for people to prevent those other present those other ideas, uh, hopefully you can wind up with benefits rates <laughs> if you have those innovative solutions. And then for also required uh, that every transmission planning region must coordinate with its neighboring transmission regions on a paired basis. In the West, it's not even, uh, they've gone above and beyond that and are coordinating throughout the Western interconnection. And um, pretty much every segment of the industry challenged at least one part of Order 1000. Um, last year, in August, Order 1000 was upheld in its entirety by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and there were no uh, requests for the Supreme Court to take it up. So Order 1000 is the law. Um, the process of implementing all these requirements has been a major project for the intervening four years. Uh, still going on, though at this point, much of the compliance work is done and regions are beginning now to do the planning processes that reflect those requirements. Uh, the last thing I want to say before I hand it off to Randy is that um, picking up on something you said, FERC has very broad authority with respect to transmission service and interstate commerce, but it would be wrong to say that FERC has jurisdiction over everything that is transmission. Uh, particularly with respect to siting, um, FERC has the backstop siting authority. It has never been used in large part because of the court cases that Amy noted. Um, given FERC's goal of wanting to develop promote the development through regional planning of more efficient and cost-effective transmission facilities. Um, if you promote that on paper and they're never built, then there's no benefit for customers. So the relationship <laughs> between the important platform FERC is developing and then the siting processes which actually get the transmission built is very fundamental. And with that, I'll hand it off to Randy. Good morning. Uh, thank you all uh, for being here. So what we've learned so far is uh, how the grid operates, uh, how it's regulated, and how we go about uh, uh, planning transmission. Let me talk a little bit about uh, siting. But first, just a little bit about American Transmission Company. We're a little bit unique. Uh, we're not a vertically integrated utility. We're a transmission only utility. Uh, the first of its kind, we began Operation 1101 with about $500 million of assets. Those assets were the uh, divested assets of our owners. Our owners are the utilities that gave up their transmission assets for the formation of our company. Over the last 13, 14 years, we've invested about $3.5 billion uh, in the transmission system for which we are responsible, which is most of Wisconsin, uh, the UP of Michigan, uh, with little pieces in Illinois. Uh, and Minnesota. Uh, we have uh, been very successful in uh, routing, siting, planning, building, uh, operating uh, transmission. Uh, when it's the only thing you do, you, you better be good at it. <laughs> so you won't be going along. Uh, transmission can be sited and built. Uh, it requires time and effort. It's not rocket science but it's a lot of hard work. Uh, I'm going to share with you some of our perspectives um, 
from having done this for the past 12 or 13 years. When we go about citing a new project, and here I'm talking about large projects for, uh, for our system, that's 345,000 uh, volts. We go out uh, and engage the public uh, very early in the process uh, and very exhaustively. So one of the first things that we do as part of that process is we, we share with them what we're going to walk them through over the course of four phases of routing and siting. So you see those four phases here. The first phase, we go out to the public and we say, we've got to get from point A to point B, so here's a study corridor. Uh, an area that we're looking at. Um, give us some thoughts and ideas, what we should avoid, um, maybe where we should site it, etc. We then come back to them sometime later with some preliminary quarters when we narrow that study area down. Uh, and then we'll come back yet a third time with some proposed routes. Now, in the state of Wisconsin, uh, the, as, as we learned earlier, you know, the, the, the FERC regulates for, for our tariffs and the states regulate for routing and siting. In the state of Wisconsin, when we propose uh, a project, we have to give them two routes uh, to choose from. So we come back in that, that third phase with a number of proposed uh, routes based on the feedback that we've gotten from the public. We get more feedback, go back, study more, do more environmental analysis, more design uh, work uh, with our engineers, and then finally come back to the public. Uh, with some final routes um, and give the public yet another opportunity to provide some input. This process, again, on major projects, takes typically anywhere from two to three years, and this is all leading up to the submitting of an application to our regulator. So when Don mentioned earlier, um, you know, it requires at a minimum of five years uh, for major projects, he's absolutely right. I mean, five years is probably on the quick end for projects of, of significant voltage. Uh, probably more in the seven to eight year time frame. Clearly there are a number of challenges when citing, uh, uh, I would say, <coughs> intrastate and interstate uh, projects. Um, we're working on a project right now with um, ITC and Darylin Power, a 345 kV project from the Madison, Wisconsin area to Dubuque. Um, it's a very challenging project uh, for a number of obvious reasons. We have to get uh, certificates in the state of Wisconsin, certificates from uh, 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 the state of Iowa, uh, as well as local jurisdictions in Iowa. Two separate state regulatory processes that have different time frames. Uh, add into that the permits that we need to get from Fish and Wildlife for the crossing of the Mississippi River. Uh, and you have a very challenging project because none of those processes sync up from a timing perspective. You know, critical path certainly is crossing the Mississippi River. Uh, we know that's going to take uh, a lot of time. What we don't know is how much time because uh, there are no federal rules around the amount of time that, that fish and wildlife get to evaluate a project and to make a decision. In Wisconsin and Iowa, we know that once we give our application to the regulators, they have a set amount of time to make a decision for us. Uh, we don't have that with federal permitting. And I'll give you just one example. About 10, 12 years ago, we built a project, large project from central Wisconsin to Duluth, Minnesota. We had to cross the Namakagan River in northwestern Wisconsin. Uh, it's a federally designated wild and scenic river. It's a beautiful river. It's actually a large creek. Uh, but we had to cross at a place uh, where the river is about 30 feet wide. And at that location, there was an existing lower voltage transmission line crossing. There was a railroad crossing and a gas pipeline crossing. It took us 60 months to get the permit uh, to cross the Amacoggin River, 60 months and about $8 million. 
uh, worth of payments to beautify the riverway. So that's a challenge, right? I mean, when you're trying to sync up uh, your construction teams and sync up regulatory processes, um, it's a challenge when, when you don't have the timing certainty from the federal permitting uh, standpoint. And then stakeholder engagement, of course, is always a challenge. And, and, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, when you go out and you talk to the public, you rarely meet members of the public who raise their hand and say, put a transmission line in my backyard. So we engage in a very involved public involvement process where we have a collection of processes that we use when we reach out to a variety of stakeholders to involve them in the decision-making process of where a transmission line uh, gets placed. Here's what we know, and we know this from more than a decade of public opinion surveying, uh, which is one of the tools that we use. We know that stakeholders can if not accept a project, um, certainly understand why it's needed. If you can convince them of that very point, that the project is needed, if you can convince them of the benefits that the project brings, if not to them, to kind of the greater society in general, and if you give them an opportunity to participate in the process, if you give them the opportunity to have a say in where the transmission line is placed or where it is not placed. Now, with that said, uh, you're not always going to bring everybody along. Again, we know from public opinion survey that you're going to have about a third of the people in a quarter, you know, in the area where you're going to build the line, about a third of the people that are going to be opposed to the project no matter what you do. Um, but if you give folks enough information um, on a consistent basis, most folks will come to accept the necessity of the project. Again, if you make sure they understand the needs and the benefits and you give them the opportunity to participate. With that said, it takes time. You're going to have nimbyism. I mean, there's just there's no way around that. Uh, who here is, you know, chosen to move near, you know, a power line? Probably not many of us, right? As a matter of fact, in my 12 or 13 years of doing routing and siting work for ATC, I've met one person. Uh, who actually asked if we could move the line onto his property, and it was the sheriff of Washburn County, Wisconsin, and he had a ranch, and he needed a new to build a new fence uh, on his ranch, and that er that project I mentioned earlier was was going through his county, and he wanted the uh, real estate payments uh, that we would provide so that he could buy a new fence, but we were too far in the process to move the line. He's the only guy that's far that's, that's offered to host a power line. Um, you know, and so again, on the challenges, you know, when you're when you're engaging the public, of course, the news media gets involved. Well, they love controversy, right? And so you have to continually and constantly fight, um, you know, all the, the myths that are out there about power lines. And again, if you engage in this process with the stakeholders, um, you can get it done. So at the end of the day, uh, if you have an involved public involvement process, you get the opportunity to build and strengthen your relationship with stakeholders. Uh, help the public understand the need and benefits for a line. Help the regulators, and this maybe is as important as, as anything. Help the regulators understand that you engaged in a process whereby the public got to be heard. And when you do that, then you put the regulators in a position of being able to make a decision on where to put your power line, make a decision based on the merits and not about you know, the politics and heat and light of the controversy. Uh, around a transmission line project. And then at the end of the day, uh, you get your project built, you get it built on time and on budget.
Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to <laughs> Pauline. Good morning. Um, my name is Pauline Foley. I'm with an attorney with PJM Interconnection. I appreciate having the opportunity to come here and speak to you today um, about why RTOs such as PJM are a really good idea. Um, there we go. I'm doing pretty good. Um, okay, PJM was founded in 1927 to ensure the reliability of the high voltage electric transmission system. Um, PJM serves approximately 61 million people in all or parts of 13 states plus the District of Columbia. PJM coordinates and directs the operation of the regional transmission grid which includes 62,556 miles of transmission lines. PJM operates its transmission system as though it were a single system. Corporate and state boundaries are not considered when taking operational action or making planning decisions. PJM also administers a competitive wholesale electricity market. So these are some of the stats that might be helpful. Um, they have been updated for this presentation. I wanted to show you, PJM wasn't made in a day. It started out in 1927 uh, with what they call classic PJM, the dark blue area. And it has evolved as recently as, I believe, 2013, when Eastern Kentucky um, power Cooperative asked to join PJM. Um, and in, in addition, as you can see, um, we have the PJM region, but we also have neighboring regions which are significant, and they would, we have actually have three. We have the Mid-Continent ISO, we have the New York ISO, and we have a planning region that was recently formed under Order 1000 that is known as the Southeast Eastern Regional Transmission Planning Region, or SERTP. Um, PJM has interregional coordination agreements with these regions, as well as with ISO New England. Let's move on. Um, as, as others have stated, there are three primary focuses um, of transmission planning. One is PJM is charged, um, manages the reliability, the real-time operation of the power grid. In terms of regional planning, PJM um, plans functions, um, I'm sorry, the planning function um, assesses the grid 15 years out into the future and directs enhancements, which are otherwise known as either transmission upgrades or new transmission investment, to enhance grid reliability. PJM is also responsible for administering a wholesale market, which includes day ahead and real-time energy markets. It includes an RPM auction, a, a financial transmission rights auction, as well as ancillary service markets, such as regulation, spinning, reserve, black start, and reactive supply. 
In order to maintain independence as an RTO, PJM is governed by an independent board of managers. The board of managers is made up of a president as well as nine voting members who are elected by the members committee. Um, the board supervises and oversees all matters pertaining to the PJM region as well as to PJM itself. The members committee is a senior standing committee and it's made up of five sectors. They are listed here. We have the generation owners, transmission owners, other suppliers, electric distributors, and end use customers. Each member has one vote and the members committee meets regularly pretty much once a month. PJM's authority to carry out its responsibilities is established by FERC's approval of its governing documents and NERC reliability standards, as well as PJM's designated roles with regard to those standards. There are a number of benefits being an RTO and um, maintaining the reliability of a grid on a regional level as opposed to utility by utility or state by state. And some of those are listed here. So for example, there's information and price transparency in terms of PJM. It, um, within the PJM region, there's elimination of seams across utilities. There's reduced prices as a result of efficiencies. There's also operational efficiencies in operating the grid. There's market liquidity, increased system reliability by being able to use each other's systems on a large regional scale. There's also regional transmission planning um, in transmission investment as well as generation investment. There's increased demand response and um, innovation and renewable energy developments on a regional basis. The impact of specific elements of PJM's role as an RTO is estimated to produce as much as $2.3 billion <laughs> per year in benefits and economic value for the region. I've um, separated out some of the market benefits. So for example, through reliability, PJM is able to direct changes in output of generation resources rather than curtail power sales transactions to deal with transmission congestion. And it enables PJM to deal with transmission constraints and to rapidly address um, market emergencies. PJM is also able to plan for future reliability needs region-wide through um, bypassing utility-by-utility utility solutions or state-by-state state solutions. Um, PJM is able to focus on transmission upgrades that meet reliability criteria and increase economic efficiency. In terms of generation investment, large, the large size of the PJM market combined with its diversity of demand and resources reduces overall capacity needs uh, to ensure adequate reserve of electricity to meet peak demands and emergency situations. 
The capacity buffer, known as the reserve margin, avoids costs of additional generation or transmission to meet higher levels of reserve. With regard to generation, PJM does not have the ability to direct the building of generation. It only has the ability to require to direct the building of transmission. So having the larger region for generation and having the diversity that the PJM region has enables us to have a better mix of fuels. <clears throat> the commitment of demand resources to, to reduce load during system peak also forestalls cost of building additional facilities. Through the RPM auction, demand response complete, competes in an equal footing with generation and transmission in the capacity market. Through RPM, the quantity of demand response that is providing um, capacity has increased, reducing the need for further generation and transmission capacity. We're also finding a shift in demand response from limited summer availability to extended and annual availability which improves the usefulness of demand response. In terms of energy production, PJM's centralized dispatch of numerous resources over the PJM region produces significant efficiencies and cost savings compared um, with previous operation of independent control areas that were operated by states across the region. The increased effectiveness of PJM's dispatch Operation has also reduced operating reserve costs. In terms of grid services, by operating markets with grid services, such as ancillary services across the region, PJM achieves economics in providing services that are essential to the reliability of the system. For example, synchronized reserve sources supplies electricity if the grid has an unexpected need for more power in short notice. Also, regulation helps match generation and load by correcting short-term changes in electricity use that might affect system stability. Nonetheless, we have certain challenges ahead of us. Um, in terms of Order 1000, we have implemented a number of new initiatives not um, implemented before or tried before. So, for example, we have a new competitive solicitation process for planning transmission and um, for cost allocation purposes. What does that mean? It means that in the past, PJM would designate the construction of transmission. PJM would plan, identify solutions for transmission, and designate the construction of transmission to its incumbent transmission owners and they were required to build. Um, now, PJM has a competitive solicitation process where anyone who pre-qualifies may submit a proposal to build and be the designated entity to own and maintain that facility. It's, it's um, been a new effort, but one of the things that we have found is, and what FERC had hoped for, is that we would get more innovative solutions to transmission. And we have found that to at least be something that comes out of Order 1000. Also, consideration of public policy was an initiative out of Order 1000. 
PJM believed that while we would consider um, public policy initiatives, in order for public policy to be built, we needed the states to agree to it, especially in a region like PJM where we have 13 states plus the District of Columbia with different public policy um, programs or statutes. And therefore, we have what's called a state agreement approach. If the state approaches us or the states approach us together um, and ask us to build a project that is um, needed for public policy, then PJM will work with the states to get it built. Additionally, as stated by other panel members, regional cost allocation has been a, a huge issue for PJM because of the fact, because of the diversity of its region. And we've had a number of challenges both to our prior cost allocation methodology and we still have some challenges to our current price methodology that the commission has recently approved. In terms of markets, the recent EPSA ruling by the DC Circuit is um, creating challenges for PJM. Um, this ruling could affect how demand response resources are able to be to participate in PJM's market in the future. And as I had pointed out to you previously, um, demand response has become a very key element of our planning process. And um, we're working with FERC and seeing how we will um, address the possibility that um, demand response will not be used as um, a wholesale product. In terms of the EPA Clean Power Plan, PJM is assessed with tasking potential impacts of the proposal on the PJM states. The states are required under the plan, 111D you might have heard of, um, to um, come up with a plan, but PJM is the entity who has been tasked with doing the analysis to see the impact on the plan. Um, Jim has been giving me the circle, so I think that I'll cut it short and allow for time for questions. Thank you. Thank you, Pauline. Uh, uh, we'll take a few questions. Uh, I see on the uh, on the agenda it says break. I think we were only kidding. Uh, we'll, we'll take a very short one, but it will be short. Uh, I wanted to ask David a question um, uh, leading off about... Uh, isn't it true that, that, that wholesale markets are deregulated? Um, thank you. And uh, the thought I wanted to do, picking up also on Pauline's presentation, um, I think the word that I would use for the organized wholesale markets that FERC regulates could be either competitive or restructured rather than deregulated. Um, that while it's true that rather than the price of power simply being done purely on cost, uh, when it is put into the system, um, there's a fairly elaborate regulatory structure by which those bids uh, are observed by an independent market monitor and then can be mitigated. Um, so this is not a situation where even if a generator has market power, that means the prices can rise to an infinite level. I think FERC has felt it's very important to ensure that in order to produce just and reasonable outcomes, there has to be that mitigation side to ensure that customers are benefiting from competition rather than potentially being subject to market power. Thank you. Thank you. 
that was a setup in case. <laughs> um, yes, sir. So, could you talk about uh, streets of Puerto Rico, uh, American Samoa, or Native American tribe near specifically uh, state laws? How does uh, FERC uh, work with those states or uh, Native American tribes? <laughs> Can you repeat the question? Yeah. Can, uh, can you give him the microphone? I don't think we heard it. I thought it may be Puerto Rico. Yes, yeah, so I was trying to ask what about Puerto Rico, American Samoa, or uh, American Indian areas where there's certain federal laws or state laws? What does FERC do with them? How do they regulate that? Yeah. Um, so I think two different answers. Um, as to um, American Samoa or traditionally Puerto Rico, uh, the answer would have been FERC does not have a role because the transactions are not in interstate commerce. Um, there is an interesting proposal. I'm trying to think. It is. It may, con it, it, it may be Puerto Rico or it may be connecting some of the Virgin Islands, uh, but the way the statute is written, if a transmission line is built between a couple of the islands, uh, that could actually create interstate commerce, so FERC may begin to have a role in that area. Uh, and that it would be the same standards that we've discussed would apply there. Um, FERC, uh, at various times, has had a tribal liaison specifically to work with uh, Native American tribes to discuss the specific issues uh, and the roles that those tribes may have under their distinct relationships <laughs> with the U.S. government. I think it is the case that there are some tribes that have seen development of generation resources as a potential vehicle for economic development. And in order to make that work, then the need for transmission becomes important there as well. Sir? Yeah, uh, back to the. Wait a minute, wait for the microphone. We'd like to capture okay. this on. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, pedestrians.org. The issue of uh, building new transmission lines and, and getting public acceptance. Uh, nearby in Maryland, Beco Exelon merger. Uh, but it's still in process. One of the side agreements was to have a pilot trail project along one of the Pepco transmission corridors. Uh, are public amenities like uh, like bike paths and transmission corridors made them more acceptable to the public in people's experience? Uh, they, in our experience, yes. As a matter of fact, in the state of Wisconsin, uh, the law dictates that we first have to use look at using existing corridors, so transmission line corridor, pipeline corridor, railroad corridor. <laughs> Uh, and our statute even gets down to bike paths and state trails. Now, that may seem a little bit odd that you can look at a bike path or a state trail, but if you're, you know, if you have a line that needs to go through, say, a forested area, it's better to use a corridor that's already uh, been affected than, you know, than become a new corridor. So, absolutely. Public polling also shows us uh, routinely that the public much prefers uh, lines sited on public lands versus private lands. So I, I, I think that does make sense. Uh, other questions? Yes? Yes, you mentioned earlier a project where you're crossing the Mississippi River. Uh, have you considered uh, undergrounding in general or in specific instances in a sensitive river system like that? We, we have looked at it on the, the specific project that I referenced. The cost uh, associated with undergrounding would make the project uneconomic. So, you know, if you, if you had to spend the money to put the, put the line under the river, uh, the total cost of the project would render the project 
effectively moved it, its value wouldn't be there. Um, we have undergrounded in certain situations and circumstances elsewhere in our system, uh, but typically at voltages like 345 kV and higher, uh, you're looking at undergrounding costs of anywhere from six to ten times the cost of overhead. So it, it, there are very limited circumstances because it's very cost prohibitive. Okay. Um, I want to mention one thing before we break. Number one is we're going to break very briefly, but number two is obviously all our panelists have a lot more material in their heads and even on their PowerPoints than we could conceivably get to. Um, we will post all this on our website, uh, including the video, but uh, you may be more interested in, in some of the uh, in some of the written materials they've developed. Uh, and we'll do that uh, within a day or two after we conclude. So uh, if, uh, if we could start up again in five minutes, uh, that would be perfect. Thank you very much. from the last panel, uh, the design of this uh, Wires University is to go from 101 to 201. We're, we're getting uh, further into the weeds, and we have some really excellent speakers on our next, uh, our next panel. Uh, two people uh, I know very well, primarily because uh, they have done reports for Wires um, uh, that I think... Uh, 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 stand uh, as some of the best scholarship on the electric transmission system uh, that's been done in, in North America. Uh, Hannes Feichenberger uh, is a, a, an economist uh, uh, with a background in electrical engineering. He's with the Bradley Group uh, up in Cambridge. Uh, he is uh, he, he's uh, he, he lives and breathes uh, transmission, transmission economics, and uh, has done a study for us uh, two years ago on the benefits of transmission, uh, which I think stands the test of times. It's the only place you can find a really succinct, uh, well-rounded um, uh, explanation of the multiple benefits that transmission projects can provide beyond reliability, beyond, beyond production cost savings. Um, uh, he is going to talk this morning about uh, uh, transmission as, as a market enabler, but that's a fairly big, uh, a big concept. Uh, and uh, uh, Hannes is uh, 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 one of the people that we rely on very heavily for, for some uh, skilled analysis. Uh, he is... Um, uh, he has a, an MA in economics and finance in Brandeis, uh, an MS in power engineering and energy economics from the University of Technology in Vienna. And we're not talking Vienna, Virginia. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking Vienna, Austria. So um, our, our, uh, he will be followed by uh, another excellent uh, uh, economist, uh, managing director at London Economics, Julia Freyer. And this little gem is what Julia did for us last year. Now, both of these reports are available either outside or in the lobby as you leave, uh, but I, I recommend them highly. And if you, they're too heavy for you to put in your briefcase, you'll also find them on our website. 
Our website is www.wiresgroup.com. And um, there's a lot of good stuff on there, but this is some of the best. Uh, Julia's uh, piece here is on what FERC erroneously called non-transmission alternatives, what we call market resource alternatives, including storage, distributed generation, utility-scale generation, um, demand response, and so forth, and, and how that works with transmission uh, to make a more robust, resilient um, transmission uh, grid. Uh, and and uh, uh, Julia has uh, 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 a great deal to say, and somebody we rely on a great deal for her expertise uh, in electrical, uh, in electric bulk power matters. She has dealt with innumerable um, uh, transmission projects, including the Montana Alberta tie and, and a number of others. So uh, this is uh, this is your chance to get uh, some very very uh, good input, and I hope you have good questions for both of them. So, Hannes, thank you, Jim. Uh, it's nice to be here again, or as we say in Austria, I'm back, <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> but um, let's talk about uh, what we're gonna do today, and uh, I'm going to briefly talk about how much uh, we've invested in transmission and what we'll need, some of the key barriers to planning more effectively a, what we call a robust transmission grid, the often overlooked benefits of a flexible and robust grid, the high costs and risks of not having enough transmission when you need it, um, and uh, the need for more effective interregional planning, and then end with some recommendations for policymakers. Now, this might be too far for you to see in the back, and I apologize for not bring, getting my slides in on time, but they will be posted, so you'll have them electronically. Uh, this chart starts in 1960 and ends in 2015, and you see that most of the grid that we rely on today was built in the 60s and 70s. And it shows that draft in the middle, there were two decades where we basically have not invested much of anything in the transmission grid. So the grid we're using today for wholesale power markets for deregulated transmission of, of the last uh, 10, 20 years is really uh, the transmission that we built in the 60s and 70s. And that's getting old and that's getting Inadequate in terms of uh, not quite having built for the purpose that we need that we need it for today. Now the good news is, in the last ten years or so, we have started to invest again in transmission. Uh, so what this shows in the 90s, we invested about two billion dollars a year or so in transmission. That has increased to about. Um, 16 billion dollars as of 2013 and the 2014 numbers aren't quite in yet. Uh, you see some projections that they're supposed to stay quite high. Now this means a lot of different things. One is that because we haven't been investing we do need to invest to catch up just like we have to rebuild bridges we have to rebuild the grid. But if we have to uh, upgrade aging facilities let's think about how to spend that money well. Just replacing one facility that was built in the 60s with an equivalent facility today may not make any sense. If you spend that kind of money, let's think about what other options we have to make, to get the most out of the money that, that we spend. 
uh, there are numerous drivers for the need for new transmission. Um, we have projected, and you can find those studies on our website, that we'll need about 120 to 160 billion a decade over the next 10, 20 years. And uh, there are numerous drivers, not just aging facilities that we just talked about, but we do need to integrate renewables. And the lowest cost resources by far, when it comes to renewables, are fairly far from loads. Now, here in the US, uh, we may not be quite as used to that, but uh, the fact is a lot of the best wind is in the Midwest, in the Great Plains, where there's very little transmission. But when we talk about the grid, um, and I have to say we, we've seen all those maps today, you might not have noticed, but Canada is actually on that map too, and we're actually quite interconnected with Canada, and the Canadians know that the low-cost resources are often very far from, from the population centers, and uh, they have managed to do that, and I think we need to integrate some renewable resources. Um, it will take transmission but it will save you way more on, on the cost of producing power than what you spend on transmission. We also have coal plant retirements. We have uh, unexpected load growth in places like uh, Western Texas, where there's a lot of oil and gas drilling. So we do have to invest. Now we might just as well now figure out if we have to spend $160 billion over the next decade, how do we spend it best? And so we are coming out with a, with a new study in two days where we looked at how effective current transmission planning is. And we're not talking about just reliability planning. The industry really knows how to keep the grid reliable. This is not a rickety old grid. It is actually a very reliable grid. But economically, it doesn't quite do uh, what, we, what it could do in terms of keeping the costs low and meeting public policy objectives. And there are really three barriers. One is our planning processes do not adequately consider the wide range of benefits that transmission provides in terms of reducing the cost of delivering power. We're also not accounting in those economic planning processes the high risk of high cost events. The California power crisis could have been avoided had there been more transmission, studies have shown. But we're not even thinking about those economic events. We're thinking about reliability, but the fact is prices spike way before there's a reliability event, and we have many more price spike events than we have reliability events. And then we talked a lot about the regions like PGM. Um, the planning of transmission between these regions is just ineffective right now. We're trying to set that up, but the processes that exist right now, even though they exist, uh, they are not really effective in terms of getting interregional transmission uh, identified, planned, and built. And in fact, some of these scenes between the regions look like demilitarized zones where uh, nobody has built a new line in quite some time. Of course, there are challenges to cost allocation, siting, and permitting, and so on. But if we don't get this right, we're either not investing in enough transmission to keep power prices low. We have to think about transmission is about 10% of what we pay for electricity. If we double spending on transmission and we're reducing the rest of the costs by 10%, we're still better off, right? Because there's a huge leverage that transmission provides in making 
the power system work and be more cost effective. But we are just not identifying the right projects that the money that we have to spend can get us if we don't even understand the economics and the risks of that. So the study that Jim mentioned in 2013 goes through the full range of benefits. And um, of these eight squares or uh, whatever uh, you call it, we are only in the economic planning processes that most regions are doing today. They're considering half of that middle square. We are looking at production cost savings, but not even doing that very well. We are not considering that even if you don't build a new project for reliability, it will improve reliability. We are not uh, considering that it would reduce the cost of uh, investing in generation. We are not uh, considering that transmission makes markets more competitive. We are not um, typically considering the environmental and public policy benefits of transmission infrastructure. Um, and many project-specific benefits, such as storm hardening, and many others. In our study, we have a big checklist of uh, benefits that uh, we recommend people consider uh, when evaluating new transmission projects, but uh, that's way too much detail. So why, why is this important? Well, here's an example. The red line it is a cost, the annual cost of, of a new power line, a specific power line that has been evaluated by the California ISO in 2004. And the production cost savings that most people calculate these days in the planning process are that blue bar. And you look at this and say, well, this is not cost effective because the production cost savings are less than the annual cost of, of the line. Well, that's where the other benefits come in. You see, once you consider the other benefits that transmission provides, uh, the benefits are far a lot larger than the cost of the line. And this is it says base case. Well, what does base case mean? That typically means under normal conditions, normal weather, you know, nothing unusual, no big transmission out, no transmission outages, no big generation outages. But we all know that if everything is normal and we don't have a heat wave and, and the summers are nice, we don't need that much transmission. The Calaiso did a study on some of the more extreme cases um, that you might encounter. And they found, I mean, this line is, the bar on, on the right is 100 million. There's about a 10% chance that in any particular year, these benefits could be between 200 and 700 million dollars. And compare that to the cost of 70 million dollars. So there's a big risk insurance, risk mitigation factor. But we don't really plan for these risks, not the risks in the short term, not in long term. We do it for reliability, but we don't do it for economics. And I'm, I think we don't have that much time, so I'm not going to get into these things. But the risk mitigation is very important. We have this planning paradigm that has evolved called least regrets planning process. So what it usually means is Let's only focus on those projects that are beneficial under almost any circumstances. Well, what this forgets about is that there could be many regrettable circumstances that could result in very high cost outcome, but we're not planning for them. Well, think about insurance. We are 
focus too much on the cost of insurance and not enough on the cost that you might be exposed to if you don't have insurance. If you buy insurance, are you focused more on the cost of insurance or are you focused more on the cost that you might be exposed to if you don't have insurance? Well, you have to look at both. But transmission planning, for the most part, forgets about the economic aspects of the uh, insurance, of, not, of the cost of um, not having transmission when you need it. And a brief word on interregional planning. That's sort of the stepchild of, of the industry. And it just doesn't work. It, uh, you know, we're getting there, we're making progress, but it's going to be a while. One of the reasons why it doesn't work is, for economic planning at least, we have this, we're stuck in this least common denominator process where two neighboring RTOs, they all have their own sets of benefits that they consider. But for lines between the regions, I said, well, we only consider on the benefits that we both agree on. So what happens is that you have the full range of benefits. Each RTO internally considers one of these circles. But when it comes to going to evaluating lines going across the regions, they only look at the overlap of these two circles. So the economic benefits of uh, interregional projects are hopefully understated. And with that kind of approach, no sizable project will ever pass these tests because you're ignoring 90% of the economic benefits. We also have a problem that this is a busy chart, but transmission planning is compartmentalized. People plan separately for reliability projects, for market efficiency projects, for public policy projects, and sometimes for multi-value projects. So if you have two RTOs next to each other, and they insist, well, we have a tariff for inter-regional reliability projects, and we have a tariff for inter-regional market efficiency projects, that framework cannot evaluate a project that might be reliability in one RTO, but market efficiency in the other. So if all these 16 squares on there, these interregional planning processes are only good for three of them. So we have a whole host of projects that have different purposes in the neighboring RTOs will be automatically excluded from the interregional planning processes because it doesn't fit into the definition of these projects. So a few recommendations, and that will be elaborated in the report that's coming out two days from now. We really recognize that policymakers are the key here, state and federal policymakers. And so this is a recommendation to policymakers, not so much to the planners, because the planners won't be able to go there unless policymakers recognize that we need to go there. One is we ought to consider all transmission-related benefits. Otherwise, we're being penny-wise and pound-foolish. And we have to better understand the high risks of not having a, a flexible, a robust transmission grid, particularly if the future is uncertain. We need to plan for the uncertainty. We can't wait for the uncertainty to, to resolve itself because it takes five to 10 years to build a line. And if we wait, uh, we won't have the low cost options available because if we have to act within two, two or three years, 
uh, the lowest cost options will not be available to us because it takes more time to build good new transmission projects. And we need to get away from compartmentalizing transmission planning. Every transmission line has multiple values, and we need to recognize that. And finally, we ought to do something about interregional planning. And with that, let me turn it over to Julia. While we're changing over, does anyone have a, a question for us? That's a, a boatload of information. I should I should mention that the Bradley Group, uh, Hannes and his colleagues, are have developed another study which is partly reflected in this PowerPoint and uh, you'll see that maybe as soon as this week. So good morning, almost good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm pleased today to present a few thoughts. Um, I think um, I always say uh, to my kids when they complain about school being um, repetitive that in fact that's how we learn. So I will in advance note that I think there's repetition between what Johannes has said and what I say and actually even repetition from some of the discussions this morning as well and I hope that serves you all well because I think we're trying to make sure we hit at the key messages from different directions. So let's take it down this direction. Specifically what I wanted to do today was to talk about a white paper that Jim had mentioned earlier in his introductions a white paper about market resource alternatives. Um, and this fits well, I think, with um, the topic that I'm supposed to speak to, which is transmission as a technology uh, partner. Um, uh, so some high-level findings, and maybe to start off, um, I should define what is a market resource alternative. Um, and uh, I think the best way to think about it, um, Adrian did a wonderful job this morning telling us about what transmission is. So think of market resource alternatives as everything else. And in fact, in your um, packets, you had a, a figure that we excerpted from um, our white paper report issued last year that uh, categorizes and lists some of the technologies which we think of today as market resource alternatives. Jim also hinted um, in his introductions that there was a misnomer used, um, a misnomer that called market resource, oh my gosh, I can't speak this morning, market resource alternatives as non-transmission alternatives. And I hope um, from the discussion today and the presentation, you'll understand why I think of that as a misnomer as well. Um, and uh, frankly, it's because it implies that transmission has a substitute, an alternative. Um, and um, if you really do think about our system, our system isn't about transmission pieces here, generation located there, um, wind generators in another location. The transmission that you and I use when we turn on the light switch and expect the electricity to flow through our house or business is really being delivered from an integrated system. And, um, a machine, I heard somebody say a marvel of the 21st century, and it's uh, the reliable so service at least cost that we expect is really about the various um, components of that system working together. The transmission, the generation, the distribution systems, the smart technology, which I'll speak to a little bit, and also even consumers, which um, there's a new uh, 
category in the industry, prosumers, consumers that are actually also uh, generating electricity by the devices they have installed on their homes and properties, uh, consumers that are also being more intelligent with time in the choices they make about consumption of electricity. So with that in mind, um, you may ask, um, so MRAs, what are they? Well, the MRAs in this chart would be everything um, that we can think of but uh, um, the transmission wires. Um, so it is the uh, energy storage, the wind and solar generation, the light bulbs represent energy efficiency projects, it is the um, demand response and distributed generation and smart grid technologies represented by that house with, with appliances. Um, it is also the conventional generation technologies that uh, we drive by and some of us work at um, um, that uh, define the landscape for market resource alternatives. So with that, uh, before we start examining in a little bit more depth MRAs and the key findings of our report, I wanted to speak about why MRAs are now a prominent, prominent topic of discussion. And in my opinion, it can be traced to the restructuring of the electricity sector to some degree. And I know on this next slide I use the, the word that I should be using given the discussions we just had, deregulation, but it really is the restructuring or deregulation that has occurred in the last two decades that has changed our thinking about investment um, and has also raised the, the discussions we're having today about transmission or MRAs or both. Um, before, in the integrated resource planning days, when we had a vertically integrated utility, it was the utility uh, that was deciding on which resources to invest in and build, uh, generation, transmission, it was utility funding, energy efficiency, conservation programs, which have frankly been with us for decades upon decades. Um, that is no longer the case for many parts of the U.S., um, even parts that still have local vertically integrated utilities because planning now involves a lot of different entities. It involves what I would call independent power producers, IPPs in the green tax box, that make decisions about where to put their generation investment. It involves RTOs, ISOs, as you've come to uh, learn today, uh, as well as member utilities who are planning the system, planning where distribution investments should take place, where transmission investments should take place. Um, and it also involves consumers who, through their own um, uh, interests and financial considerations, through utility-funded programs and other types of um, uh, incentives, are looking at um, uh, demand response, energy efficiency, and distributed generation. So um, I think uh, this leads me to the discussion, so why this misnomer about NTAs as a term for MRAs? And it's because this graphic to the uh, right shows the generation and transmission in silos, independent of each other. So there is um, a fallacy, I think, um, in this industry that transmission can be substituted for through generation investment or demand side management um, uh, and vice versa. But I think it's actually much more common if we think about um, the realization of our integrated system that um, <laughs> transmission investment motivates generation investment and generation investment as well serves as a catalyst for transmission investment. So today I wanted to share two examples with you. 
And uh, these are examples that are actually real-world applications. I'm not making up stylized case studies here. And in fact, in our white paper, we talk about some other examples of um, investments we have seen that highlight the, the complementarity or the integrated nature of our grid system and um, present a different way to think about investment planning um, and making sure that we are considering MRAs on equal footing with transmission. So we have to the, I'm always confused, and it's not very clear I see either, but again, these slides will be available. But we have um, two case studies. One of them is in California. It's the Tehachapi Renewable Project. And another is in lovely Texas with the competitive renewable energy zones. In both instances, these transmission development projects were um, instilled in order to unlock and motivate new generation investment. So the transmission was a leader and a catalyst for generation investment. Um, and um, in fact, when you think about the timing of the investments that need to take place, transmission, as we've heard today, takes five to 10 years to develop um, from initial idea through construction and permitting. Generation, on the other hand, um, can sometimes be developed on a much shorter time cycle. So we do need to think, if, if, if we're considering about who goes first, chicken or the egg, um, there's a natural order of things with transmission leading generation. Uh, the Tehachapi Project, if you're interested, there's a lot of information on the Cal ISO and Southern California Edison website, but effectively that project was meant to um, bring about, um, it started in 2004 and it's uh, nearing completion at this point, but it had multi, multiple segments that meant uh, that was gearing to bring 4,500 megawatts of new wind generation to market. And then the competitive uh, renewable energy zones and Texas was um, doing a similar thing with um, a slightly different scale, 18,000 megawatts of wind to market, some of which were already in the ground, but others that have developed since then. Started through legislation um, in, uh, uh, I believe, 2005, but really commenced in 2008 after the state regulator um, did a full um, cost-benefit, well, I won't use the word full, but did a cost-benefit analysis of the options for transmission investment and um, um, approved a $5 billion plan, which actually turned into a $7 billion, almost a $7 billion um, investment strategy <laughs> that is nearly complete as we talk here today. I was also going to spend a little bit of time talking about distributed generation because, again, a misnomer or perhaps a bit of an oversight in the, uh, in the industry is that if we have distributed generation, we don't need transmission. We can all survive on the generation that we put on our homes and businesses. And I think a great, again, real-world case study of this is Germany. Um, Germany has had phenomenal growth in um, solar distributed generation through incentive schemes that they um, implemented through legislation in the early 2000s. Um, literally, I think, within the last five years, they've grown from a system that had zero megawatts of solar DG installed to over 30 gigawatts of capacity. They had to now cap it at 52 gig gigawatts. But <laughs> that's a significant number when you think about the overall size of their system, which is only 190 gigawatts. So we're talking about a um, significant transformative change in that country. Um, but solar DG isn't going to fuel the entire economy. 
and their realization because of technical and economic reasons that they need other types of investment. And those other types of investments are really pairing the solar DG that individual households can deliver with new transmission investment. Based on the 10-year network plan that the European transmission owning entities do through a two-year cycle, they've identified over $30 billion in euro terms of expected new transmission investment for Germany alone. Uh, and a lot of that is being triggered by the need to uh, uh, distribute the distributed generation to different areas of the country and also to tap into offshore wind, which is a significant balancing source for the solar DG that uh, Germany is planning to use now that nuclear is being phased out in that country. So a little bit on smart grid, but I won't stay very long here. I think um, very similar to DG, um, smart grid, as we've heard, it's, it's the ability to control, to monitor, to, to have access to information and digitally to integrate the information better between the consumer, all the appliances we use, the consumer electricity, and ultimately the network grid and the wholesale markets. Um, we're still struggling, but I think we have an image for what the future is going to hold, and uh, there's beautiful drawings and renditions that uh, um, graphics artists and uh, um, forward thinkers have thought about how our homes would look with smart grid technology being deployed in the coming decades. But smart, um, smart grid technology doesn't mean that we're all going to disconnect from the grid. And in fact, the purpose of smart grid technology is to better integrate our consumption patterns with the system as a whole and provide a more efficient wholesale and retail market, kind of an, um, a convergence of those two with time. So now, finally, <laughs> getting to a couple of slides on the market resource alternatives. Um, what I've done here, and this is a, actually a, a figure that we had in that um, September 2014 report, I've um, uh, laid out some of the technologies, market resource alternatives, that we think of today. Energy efficiency, demand response, utility scale generation, distributed generation, energy storage, and smart grid technologies deployed at the distribution level. And um, uh, one of the challenges that um, Jim had posed for our firm uh, when we started looking at market resource alternatives is to consider a way that you can actually evaluate those types of technologies on a level playing field with transmission. And for us, the first task really was to identify what we're talking about. What are the characteristics of market resource alternatives? And how do they line up with the characteristics of transmission? And um, as we went through and populated this grid with our understanding of the various technologies, I think one of the very important observations that we had is that um, each technology has its own services that it delivers to consumers. And those services may need different types of actual products in the market, ancillary services, renewable attributes, energy capacity. It may also mean that different technologies actually focus on a um, different geographical dimension. Some technologies like energy efficiency, demand response, distributed generation are really tailored to focusing on very narrow or small geographical areas, whereas um, 
uh, um, utility-scale generation transmission is looking at much broader geographical areas. And so it goes with how the questions of how and when um, and um, other characteristics of these technologies. Um, bottom line, what we see is that in order to be able to evaluate MRAs on equal footing with transmission, the planning analysis um, needs to be able to recognize these unique characteristics for different technologies and evaluate them, monetize them, because I think dollars is a common denominator that speaks to many of these characteristics. So um, we also, uh, through our analysis, wanted to um, introduce um, some guidelines, precepts as we call them, to thinking about the, that evaluation or planning process that we would be recommending um, in order to have um, a comprehensive and a robust consideration of the type of investments um, we would like to see in the future, both transmission and MRAs. And I think the first precept really speaks to my prior slide, which we would want to make sure that there is um, a similar objective set of criteria for looking at the economic benefits and technical reliability benefits of transmission and, um, uh, and MRAs. And that would allow us then to have an effective uh, framework for looking at investment opportunities, one that's efficient, so we're making the best choices possible, one that's practical too, so that we can actually implement it, and non-discriminatory, which as we've heard today is a mainstay of the requirements that FERC has imposed on planning um, for some time. Other precepts in my six precepts uh, list, which you can find in the, in the report, talk to the actual analytics uh, of thinking through how to go about and do this investment analysis. And they speak to comparability and ensuring also technical feasibility. Because in, in some cases, I think we get carried away. We see a new technology, we really want to have it, almost like we see a new iPhone and want to have that. And sometimes um, consideration of the technical reliability concerns that uh, presented themselves um, initially are, uh, are overlooked just for the sake of trying out something new. Um, and uh, with the transmission system, uh, reliability is almost like the first order constraint on this investment decision-making process. We need to meet the reliability technical needs of the planning process first and foremost. And once we decided how we meet that, that's when we then look at least cost and maximum benefit type of solutions to investment. Finally, if we go down my list um, of the precepts, just wanted to kind of rattle off a few more. Um, uh, I think um, number four is um, uh, fairly important, and as we showed in that uh, moon diagram, there are many different benefits and services that different MRAs and transmission can deliver to consumers. They're very situationally specific. We, we've done a very generic view, and I think those types of benefits, um, market services and non-market services, need to be evaluated thoroughly. And in some cases, I think um, for the sake of expediency, um, for the sake of simplicity and analysis, we overlook that type of um, comprehensiveness in looking at benefits and costs. Uh, finally, um, preset number five, or almost finally, preset number five, this is going back to that misconception or misnomer I talked about earlier between transmission and MRAs being perfect substitutes. Um, 
you know, that's really an artifact of us having moved away from integrated resource planning into the restructured environment where we have different entities participating in making investment decisions in parallel. Um, but that's not to say that we can't have regional coordination. We, don't, we can't have a vertically integrated utility anymore, but we could still have regional coordination. And I think um, it's important when you build up the planning environment and the economic analysis that flows from it that um, as part of the regional coordination, you're looking at um, rational patterns of investment not just for the regulated entity, the transmission entity that's planning investment, but also from a variety of other stakeholders. You're looking at how generators would respond to transmission investment, whether they would actually build more generation. You're looking at uh, consumers and understanding the um, trends in distributed generation and energy efficiency and understanding how those link back to transmission investments that are made or not made. And I think with that rational, endogenous thinking, that's where we will actually get to a place where we can look at complementarity between investments. Um, I like to always say is that when we're setting up an, an analytical framework, uh, we get what we, we look for. So if we're looking for just substitutes and uh, choosing A versus B, that's the, uh, the investment analysis will um, basically get us to that common denominator. But if our investment analysis is more comprehensive, um, more open-minded to the dynamic investment decisions we would expect in the longer term from the industry. That's an opportunity to really get to the um, uh, to a higher order solution for investment planning, where we're building out um, uh, a number of different technologies: transmission, generation, uh, smart grid technologies, um, and. And looking at complementarities, we're basically taking into account what you may have heard in economic classes, things like positive externalities um, and um, incremental benefits that uh, we wouldn't otherwise identify. And uh, I think lastly, and just as a, as a side way to explain preset number six, Johannes pointed out uh, today that uh, planning is not about making, in my words, um, uh, it all work under normal conditions. Planning is really making the best decisions with information we have on hand. And in the way I think about it, those risks and uncertainties are really about the information we don't have on hand. And what we want to do is plan for that as well. And so um, it's very important to um, underscore that those uncertainties, our risks, are represented within our planning methodology, not considered as an afterthought. So with that, thank you for your time today. Our, uh, our two uh, keynote speakers are here, and, uh, but uh, I think we have time for a couple of questions. Uh, Hannes. Uh, uh, Hannes and Julia, be happy to uh, talk to you, of course, offline. Uh, after this panel, but uh, I think I think we'll just move on to our, to the main event here. So, thank you very much. That was terrific.
It's uh, if you do need to get up and get uh, some further lunch, please do so. But um, it's uh, it's very uh, it's it's a very honor and highly unusual that you get um, that you get uh, two distinguished. Uh, legislators, uh, both of whom have both a background uh, and a uh, and a desire to work in uh, the electricity or energy areas. Uh, our first speaker uh, is Senator Martin Heinrich, uh, who is a senator from New Mexico. He's a junior senator from New Mexico. Uh, I just learned something very interesting from him, and that is. His father was a lineman, and he kind of grew up in the utility environment. Um, he's, uh, uh, he is on the uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee, quite appropriately, as well as uh, the Intelligence Committee and Joint Economic Committee. Uh, I think that uh, he's spoken recently at uh, other conferences with our our uh, friends uh, at the Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, uh, and um, uh, he understands the issues that we are all grappling with in this period of great change. Uh, he is uh, also a committed advocate for New Mexico's middle-class families, a champion for uh, the burgeoning clean energy economy, and New Mexico has some wonderful resources in that regard, uh, and a uh, and a protector of, uh, of our public lands. Uh, he's the only engineer in the Senate, uh, and so he brings a unique perspective to creating good, sustainable jobs and protecting vital missions of our national laboratories, uh, particularly Sandia, uh, which our other speaker happened to work at at one time. So this is, uh, this is a, a, a great, uh, uh, a great uh, harmonic convergence we've got going here. Um, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm delighted and honored to introduce to you uh, Senator Martin Heinrich from New Mexico. Thank you, Jim. Um, it's certainly an honor to be here today and to join you to talk about how uh, we build a robust 21st century transmission in infrastructure that reflects all the changes that Jim just alluded to, from cleaner sources, dealing with intermittency, managing that uh, storage that's coming on rapidly uh, from the horizon, and power controls that are just simply a light year away from you know what my father experienced as a lineman back in the 1980s, uh, when he would oftentimes walk lines for miles looking to see uh, you know, to, to manually inspect switches and other controls. So things are really changing rapidly right now. Um, and oh, I should correct one thing uh, for the record because my bio is a little out of date. There are now two engineers in the Senate. Uh, so Steve Daines from Montana is a chemical engineer, so we're making progress. But, it's slow. Um, but customers are now generators. I mean, myself included, for the last 10 years, uh, you know, I've been putting electrons into the grid and taking electrons out of the grid. And the industry certainly has new responsibilities uh, with respect to cybersecurity in, in particular to provide not only advanced control technologies but improved security as well. 
So I want to commend WIRES for hosting this event to bring folks together to seek pragmatic solutions and innovative opportunities and to gain a better understanding of why transmission infrastructure is so critical to our economy. And I want to start out by pointing out the, uh, Dr. Dan Alpert from my office is in the back corner. Uh, if, you, uh, if you haven't gotten to know him and you're working on these issues in any way that that touches us natural, uh, nationally or with uh, New Mexico in particular in the Southwest, please get to know him. Uh, he has forgotten more things about this field than, uh, than I know. Um, so we, we try to put him to work on these issues on a regular basis. And uh, I want to thank Jim for just inviting me today and to everyone who made this event possible. Thank you. Many of the important developments in regional transmission over the past 20 years are really a direct result of the things that Jim got started as FERC chairman. And I also want to recognize my colleague who um, I, I'm going to try to not do the faux pas. Ike Skelton used to introduce me sometimes as a gentleman from Cole Camp, Missouri, because when I was a little kid I lived in his district in Missouri. So I'm not going to quite do that with Jerry, but there was a time when Jerry worked at Sandia National Laboratories in New Mexico, and we, uh, we still count him as one of our own, uh, not just as a New Mexican, but as somebody who really understands these technical issues, and we need a lot more folks like that in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, and it's always uh, a pleasure not just to share a stage with Jerry, but to work with him. So you've got a great lineup of speakers who are really at the forefront of this innovation and who are focused, uh, like myself, on unlocking America's clean power potential. And certainly energy is really at the heart of almost every issue across the country. And it's a cornerstone in my home state of New Mexico. We are certainly an energy exporter on many fronts. And as a member of the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources, I'm supporting a number of proposals right now to help expand both traditional and renewable domestic energy production. However, it's going to take a lot more than any one policy or one initiative or any one law to transition our nation and the planet uh, from the energy of yesterday to the energy of tomorrow. And certainly given the current polarization, which, you know, Knock on wood, we're seeing a few cracks in um, in Congress. I don't have to tell you that it's not going to be easy, but it is going to be absolutely critical for our future. The transition of our nation's power generation portfolio to more efficient and cleaner technologies is already well underway and will surely accelerate as new regulations like the Clean Power Plan are implemented. But there's a big disconnect right now between transmission access and the best geographic renewable energy sources. And there should be no doubt that full utilization of our renewable potential will only be possible when we have the transmission capacity in place to deliver that power to market. Our system of power transmission and federal regulation were really designed for an era that no longer exists. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, I didn't oftentimes didn't even realize how much of a utility brat I was. I had a yellow t-shirt that said, I turn on after seven. That was, that was the campaign to try to deal with uh, peak uh, generation challenges in the, in the 1970s. I used to draw a little ready kilowatts when I'd hang out at my, my dad's office. But in those days, electrons sort of flowed from your 
your central generation out through the <laughs> transmission lines to the distribution lines and then out to businesses and homes. And it was a one-way street. Um, the development of an interconnected transmission network, regional transmission operators, independent power producers, distributed generation, um, soon I think distributed energy storage, using the grid in a way that no one foresaw just a couple of decades ago is the new reality. And at the same time, the Federal Power Act is now 80 years old and is increasingly limiting in the full development of robust markets for energy power in interstate commerce and certainly limiting in terms of uh, you know, the, the kind of time management that we, we need to have in place today. So we need to work together to ensure that the regulatory structure is in place so that priority transmission projects can be sited and built. And I don't need to tell any of you what a challenge that has been. In New Mexico, building new transmission and modernizing our existing electrical grid is central to becoming a state where our potential for new generation projects and our reality actually meet. And according to the U.S. Solar Insight 2014 year in review, New Mexico was 10th in the nation last year for added solar capacity, about 88 megawatts of new solar, bringing our total to about 325 megawatts. Um, not bad for a state of 2 million people. I mean, that's 75,000 new homes, but nowhere near our total capacity. And when you add in the potential we have for wind on the east side of the state that is currently stranded, it is a substantial wasted resource. Um, we should be a major exporter of electrical power, even beyond what we're doing now. And we can spur substantial additional renewable energy development by adding that transmission capacity that will allow us to export clean energy to markets in Arizona and in Congressman McCarran's state. Um, and while we're at it, the benefits are manifold. Uh, for one, we have uh, had a real dip in construction jobs in recent years since the Great Recession of 2008-2009. Uh, the number of construction jobs would be substantial and many new permanent jobs associated uh, not just with the construction of new generation but the operations and maintenance of new generation. But the reality is that regional planning for transmission just has not developed in the West the way it has in the East and the Midwest United States. And other than California, most of the West does not have competitive markets for electric power generation. Though the regional transmission organizations are developing in much of the rest of the country, the large distances and the low population densities in the West have been a real challenge. Uh, the Western Interconnection can count dozens of individual balancing authorities that manage the operation of a local transmission grid. The development of the new short-term energy imbalance market in the West is one positive step forward uh, that will help to better integrate intermittent resources like solar and wind into the marketplace. Uh, but we have a long way to go before we're managing uh, intermittent sources at the level of, say, Germany, uh, which has really shown what is possible uh, to do in terms of uh, managing very high penetration levels of renewables, even in the midst of a solar eclipse. So we need to improve the overall transmission, siding, permitting, and review process if we're going to get there, ensuring that transmission projects get timely regulatory approvals, 
especially when there are multiple jurisdictions involved, which seems like always, is, is just critical to realizing our true potential. So FERC has played a strong leadership role already with its Order 1000, setting the rules of the road on regional transmission planning and cost allocation. And I'll also add that we're lucky to have Norman Bay as the new chair of FERC. Uh, he is, in my view, an outstanding public servant with extensive experience to address the challenges that we face in our country right now. He gets extra points in my book, not only because he's from New Mexico, but because he's an ardent fly fisher. Um, but I'm also confident that Chairman Bay will continue to judiciously implement the law focused on FERC's statutory responsibilities of energy infrastructure, competitive markets, and reliability. And I would hazard to guess that Chairman Bay's tenure will see changes in the adoption of both central and distributed storage on a scale analogous to the recent changes that we've seen in the last few years with solar generation. With his leadership, I know that FERC will be well positioned to navigate, implement, and manage that change. Additionally, the administration has established a clearinghouse to try and streamline approvals on federal land. And in those few cases when the responsible state regulatory bodies cannot come to agreement on a priority project that has been selected as part of FERC's 1000, Order 1000 process, Congress, Congress should establish an option for developers to seek approval directly from FERC. This idea has been talked about for a long time. Congress took a crack at it back in 2005 in the last energy bill. Uh, there was litigation. Things didn't quite work out as planned. But today, I am pleased to announce that I've introduced legislation that will provide transmission siting authority at FERC as a backstop in the rare case where states have been unable to act on priority projects. The bill amends the 1935 Federal Power Act to provide FERC narrow authority to approve and site new electrical transmission lines. The siting authority would only apply to regional transmission projects that serve multiple entities and where the costs are to be shared among the entities. Under FERC's Order 1000, each public utility transmission provider must participate in a regional transmission planning process and produce a regional transmission plan. Order 1000 also requires transmission providers to develop methods for allocating those costs of new transmission facilities among those who will either use or benefit from them. Currently, developers of new priority regional transmission projects must seek approval from local or state authorities to site and construct their projects. My bill would allow FERC to step in and provide backstop authority but only after local or state approval has been, uh, is not provided within one year. Any cases where a state simply does not have the legal authority to consider or approve a project under existing state law. FERC would also have to first determine that the proposal, uh, proposed project is in the public interest and advances public policy goals, including supporting the development of new cleaner power generation reducing emissions like carbon pollution, or enhancing competition and reliability. FERC would be required to conduct a full public process to review the project and perform all required federal authorizations, such as those under NEPA, uh, and the use uh, 
for those under NEPA and for the use of any federal lands, including uh, tribal land. This siting authority wouldn't apply to Alaska and Hawaii, which uh, at least currently don't connect to any other states. But it's my hope that the Energy Committee will consider this bill this year. And additionally, today, uh, as we know, the administration is releasing the first uh, quadrennial energy review. Someday I'm going to learn how to say quadrennial easily. Uh, but which will include recommendations on energy infrastructure, including transmission. And while I have just started to dig into that, I am hopeful that that will be another tool for advancing uh, the rapid change that, that we're all struggling with right now. I understand that you're going to have a session today as well on cybersecurity, which is also one of those issues that Congress should be acting on soon. Uh, one area I believe Congress should consider is providing the Secretary of Energy Emergency Authority to protect the nation's electric transmission grid from an imminent cybersecurity threat. Currently, no individual is clearly designated to take immediate actions to protect the United States from a possible national security threat to the electrical grid or to respond in the case of that kind of an emergency. Now, modernizing our nation's electrical grid isn't just about new jobs or harnessing clean energy potential or, for that matter, reducing the risk of energy disruptions due to cyber attack. It's also, at its root, about dealing with the challenges that we currently face with regard to climate change. Uh, I am of the opinion that it is our moral obligation to lead the world and not be a follower uh, with regard to the climate crisis. Uh, certainly the world is looking to us for leadership. And if you come from a state like I do, you wrestle with the fact that these things are no longer theoretical. Uh, the stubbornness of the challenges that we have faced in the last few years are very, very difficult to ignore in my own state. We are seeing dramatically different fire behavior. Uh, we're seeing very different seasons. Um, our humidity levels are lower, our temperatures are higher, and we're dealing with changes that we've, we have just never experienced in the past. Uh, over the past four years, in fact, we have seen the two single largest fires in New Mexico's history. And with elevated temperatures, studies at Los Alamos National Labs predict that three quarters, literally three quarters of our evergreen forest in New Mexico could be gone by as early as 2050. A radically different place than the one I live in today. At the same time, in the past several years, we've experienced some of the driest periods on record since records were started in the state. And at the heart of this, it's simply irresponsible for us not to take concrete steps to begin to address these challenges. Uh, we cannot pass on 100% of the burden for this to our kids. But we have the technology, and we have the resources, we have the human capital, uh, and I know that through American ingenuity, we will unleash the full potential of clean, homegrown energy and put a lot of Americans to work while we do it. I'm a strong believer that innovation is what America is literally best at. And in fact, I think the very character of our nation has been shaped by hard work and innovation over and over again. That's the American story. 
We're going to have to embrace the challenge of addressing climate change. We're going to lead the world in clean energy and make modernization of our electrical transmission infrastructure a priority in this country again. And I hope that all of you will see me as a partner as we, uh, uh, as we face those very challenging challenges in front of us. So thank you again for having me today. Yeah. Senator, I'll take uh, take a question or two. Um, um, yes, sir. So I want to ask you, given how close is Texas to you, right across to you guys, and you want to export your energy, how would you convince Texas to actually get into FERC and you know get energy from you guys? How are you going to convince them? Right now, um, we have ready markets to the west, and so the short term. Uh, play is to be able to move generation to Arizona and California. The long-term play is to see and interconnect uh, with Texas. And the timing of all that is, is relative, too, because there are uh, competitive issues between the two states as well uh, in terms of, of cost uh, and when some of that generation comes into play. So I think our what we're staring at right now, the, the most immediate opportunities, are to be able to, to uh, uh, create new generation that will flow to the West. In the long term, I think we'll be uh, producing generation that will be able to wheel back and forth between the Texas grid and New Mexico. Other questions? Let, let, let me ask uh, what your timetable is for, for this legislation, because we'd love to help in any way we can. Well, I think that uh, the first thing I would simply ask is that if you have an opportunity to speak to other folks on the committee, uh, the chair and others, please encourage them to take a look at the bill. Uh, we're going to be asking them to schedule a hearing, and that's always a critical first step, uh, and be in contact with us if you have suggestions for uh, who we might have um, as uh, uh, who could testify yes. at that, uh, that hearing. Yes, my concern is environmental considerations. In this uh, part of the country, we really mounted opposition to some transmission lines that were going to go through some pristine sure. um, ecological areas that are, in many ways, as important as preserving in terms of mitigating climate. So sure. does your bill account for that? Well, I think, I think NEPA does a good job of accounting for that, and there are a number of other rules in place, uh, and and we've actually been able to, in the state of New Mexico, if you look at a number of the transmission projects that are on the table, um, the portions that have gone through my state, I'm very proud of the siding that's gone on there. I can't speak to whether, you know, that's always been the case in other places. They aren't straight lines. Obviously, the developers would love them to be straight lines. But we've been able to navigate around wilderness areas, wilderness study areas, national wildlife refuges, um, other natural features that are really critical to, uh, to my home state. And I think it's worth looking at those. It's just like wind energy. I'm all for wind energy, but you don't, you don't cite a uh, wind, generation, um, uh, wind generation facility in the middle of a flyway. Um, so we have to be thoughtful about where we put these things. Uh, that's not trivial, but it's certainly also not impossible. 
Thank you very much. We really Thank you, uh, Senator. Uh, we have uh, uh, a, a uh, double header here. Uh, the Honorable uh, Jerry McNerney is with us. He is a five-term congressman from California, uh, and uh, and uh, one reason we are delighted he's here is he is a co-founder of the uh, House of Representatives Caucus on uh, Grid Innovation, uh, the Grid Innovation Caucus. And uh, uh, he has uh, a background also in New Mexico, which uh, well, we didn't plan that, but um, uh, he uh, has an extraordinarily appropriate um, uh, personal history for for this kind of industry, this kind of uh, conversation that we're having. Um, he is a, uh, uh, a, has a doctorate in biophysics uh, from UC Davis. Uh, he is a, uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, mathematician and engineer. Um, I should read part of this because it is quite amazing. Before and immediately after graduating, uh, from the University of Mexico, New Mexico. Uh, he spent several years working on renewable energy and national security programs as a contractor at Sandia. Uh, and after leaving Sandia, he spent two decades in a variety of positions as a developer of renewable energy projects. So uh, a lot of what we're talking about today, um, he has a very personal uh, uh, knowledge of. Uh, and uh, and he is uh, of course on the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, of the House, where he has helped to put together a very bipartisan emphasis on the future uh, of the grid. So it's it's indeed my pleasure again uh, uh, to uh, to uh, uh, introduce uh, the Honorable Jerry McNerney of California. Good afternoon. Uh, it's, it's really a pleasure to be here. I want to thank the Senator for his kind words. Um, Senator Heinrich and I were colleagues for a few years in the House, and uh, we both uh, have a very strong engineering background, have a lot of passion about this area, and I hope that that comes through today. Uh, I also want to uh, acknowledge my former colleague, uh, Mike Ross, uh, who's a part of the organization here today. He was also a member of the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, and um, someone that uh, was very bipartisan and willing to work together, so it's a pleasure to see you here today, Mike. Um, well, you guys are the nuts and bolts of the transmission industry, and that is uh, a big part of the grid. It's a big part of uh, what anybody that wants to do something with uh, electric power has to deal with and manage in one way or another. Uh, my background, um, as mentioned, I spent about 20 years in the industry creating new, uh, new uh, wind energy technology, uh, new solar, uh, new um, uh, residential metering technology at EPRI, and so on. So I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the industry from, from an employment perspective. And I just want to tell you a little story about uh, my first days in the business. Uh, I, I went to Massachusetts to work for a company that created wind turbines, uh, and we got, a, we got some investment money. 
in order to design a wind turbine on a blank sheet of paper. So we started from scratch. Uh, we designed a, a beautiful wind turbine. Uh, we had it manufactured. Uh, we had the components manufactured and put them together in our shop. Uh, and it was just something uh, of real pride for all of us. Um, we got to plant that thing in the hills of New Hampshire, where it was nice and windy and nice and cold most of the time. Uh, we went out there, uh, invited investors out there to, to see the main voyage. Uh, we turned it on, and then, man, the blades just started flying, and everyone was running for cover. So that was, that's a good way to impress your investors, but we got them emotionally uh, involved as well. So, uh, but you know, the thing is that, uh, and it's like the, it's like the transmission uh, business. We, we, we looked at the problems, we looked at the blade roots, how do we make those secure, how do we make the bearings uh, last long, uh, how do we make the generators cost effective, uh, what do you do to make the, the, uh, the foundation secure without spending a ton of concrete. All these things year after year, incremental improvements uh, until a wind industry is now a very, uh, very successful, it's very cost effective. Uh, and it's, it's leading the world in, in generations, some parts of the, uh, of the world. So uh, it's just a matter of sticking with it, uh, you know, having confidence in your engineering, engineering ability uh, and making it happen. So uh, I, I think you all can relate to that story in one way or another. Uh, and in the wind industry, uh, where I spent most of my career, um, you really rely on transmission. As Martin pointed out uh, with his uh, comment on stranded assets in eastern New Mexico, there's some really good wind uh, energy resource in this country, in the Dakotas, in, in that whole uh, uh, line uh, from the country, from the Dakotas all the way down to New Mexico and Texas, uh, and yet that we don't have the transmission capacity uh, to install that, that wind energy. So uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunity still in the business if, if you think you've uh, run up uh, against the wall. No, there's plenty of opportunity out there. Um, and that's why I wanted to start uh, the Bipartisan uh, Grid Innovation Caucus. Uh, my co-chair is Renee Elmers. Uh, she's a, a Republican from uh, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, if you watch the news, it looks like Washington is a place where people are always fighting. Uh, and the newsworthy items, uh, they're newsworthy because we're fighting on those items, but there's plenty of other issues that we're able to work on, and this is one of them. Uh, our caucus has uh, 20 to 25 members now, very bipartisan. Uh, we're working with utilities across the country to, uh, to get ideas out there uh, in terms of engaging my, my colleagues. Uh, I think that's the biggest challenge is to uh, see that my colleagues uh, in the House and, and maybe in the Senate understand the challenges uh, and the excitement in this industry uh, and, and the opportunities. So uh, we're working together. Um, PG&E was out here and made me get up in one of those, those uh, man cups over there. It was all electric. It wasn't the gas powered. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Ms. Elmer's had a skirt on, so she didn't want to get up there. But it, it, was, um, it was quite an experience, and, and we do those kind of things all the time. So uh, I just, uh, uh, we're going to focus on uh, transmission and distribution, cyber and physical security, which is uh, very important, as we've seen. Um, um, and how, how can Congress, how can we in Congress be effective in, in, in developing policy that will help this industry move forward? Uh, and when we do that, there's several things we need to take into uh, uh, consideration. Uh, Mark mentioned the uh, siting issue. Well, siting is very important, and I appreciate his, his, uh, his legislative proposal. 
Uh, we'll have to take a look at that in the house and see if that's something we can move forward. Um, having a, a, a supply of skilled labor also very, very important. Uh, that that um, depends on some of our educational policies. Um, the integration of renewables, how are we going to uh, integrate renewables? Uh, Martin, when, when, Ms., when Senator Heidreich sat down, the first thing he asked me was, are you as excited about storage as I am? Well, yes, I'm very excited about storage. Uh, it's expensive, but there's uh, innovations coming along, uh, and I think we're going to see some breakthroughs uh, that will make storage cost-effective uh, within the next decade or so. Uh, we ought to start planning how to in integrate that and to use that um, technology uh, to uh, meet the goals that Senator Heinrich was referring to in terms of uh, climate change, um, which we're all facing. Um, we want to make sure that investors get a return. Uh, you don't want to uh, have a system out there where, where people can invest uh, their dollars and, and not have some sort of um, uh, confidence that they're going to get that return, uh, or else it won't happen, as you know. Uh, we need regional planning, another issue that Martin touched on heavily. And we also need to look at the wheeling rules. Uh, how are we going to wheel? Are we going to want to put in a, a 721 overlay? Or are we going to want to depend on uh, distributed generation? I mean, those are very difficult questions. Um, the, the overlay issue uh, is complicated because it seems like it's good. You can generate power in one part of the country, ship it to another. But then uh, if you do that, people in New England are going to say, well, you know, we can produce wind energy, but we can't compete with coal uh, from, from Wyoming. So uh, we have these regional issues to, to consider when we, when we talk about uh, large-scale uh, high-voltage overlays uh, for our transmission system in this country. Um, of course... Uh, the, the goal of all this is, is reliable, uh, cost-effective, resilient, and regionally effective uh, electrical transmission. Um, <clears throat> we need to know, uh, we need to get some idea, uh, and I hope we can continue to discuss this in the Grid uh, Innovation Caucus, where is our electrical grid heading? Um, how are we going to start planning uh, for the challenges, uh, and can we plan for the challenges? Do we? Do we need economic models? Do we need better load flow models? I mean, how are we going to uh, understand all that? How are we going to get the resources out there for you all to actually uh, take those, those challenges on? Um, superconductors. Does anybody feel strongly about superconductors? Super I mean, uh, there is technology out there. The uh, superconductor temperatures are um, as high as minus 100 degrees or something. I don't know exactly. But uh, if we can get superconductors out there, uh, you know the story about losses. You know the story about heat. Uh, if we can get superconductor transmission out there, that would be an incredible boom for our country. Uh, we create a lot of employment, uh, and as you know, uh, the footprint for a, a superconductor transmission is, is really only going to be about uh, six feet uh, laterally uh, as opposed to about uh, 50 feet for, for transmission lines. So, um, you know, we have a lot of opportunity out there in terms of technology. Switching gear, that's something that we developed uh, in, in, our, uh, in our wind in, uh, industry. Uh, we have these... Uh, generators uh, that tend to be induction generators, uh, utilities like synchronous generation. Uh, we need to be able to control the power factor because we had transmission, uh, we had generation that was way out uh, in the boonies. Nobody wants to live near uh, those, well, not nobody, but not many people want to live in extremely windy sites. So uh, we had to transmit 
uh, power, uh, pretty good distances, which means we're having power factor changes, so we could either lead or lag. Uh, and, and we developed the, the switching technology to, to follow uh, the sinusoidal uh, um, um, current distribution we needed on that. So uh, that uh, sort of technology is going to have to extend even more to the transmission facilities because we want to make sure that our transmission lines uh, can cut off uh, quickly to avoid system-wide uh, disruptions. Uh, we want to be able to, to use the, 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 the electrical uh, energy we have efficiently and so on. So uh, there's an opportunity for that sort of technology. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I guess, uh, as Martin pointed out, we're going to work closely with FERC uh, and NERC, uh, he mentioned their orders uh, 1,000, but we also have the 764 and the 890. So uh, there's plenty of involvement, uh, there's plenty of opportunity for uh, involvement between the Congress and the regulatory agencies that are uh, managing uh, the business. Um, and uh, as, as Martin mentioned, as I got a question earlier, uh, the Quadrennial Energy Review just came out. I haven't had the time uh, to really dig into it either, but I think it's going to give us an opportunity uh, to sort of point us in the right direction of uh, how, uh, how to address some of these big problems. Um, the Energy and Commerce Committee now uh, is working on a bipartisan uh, way uh, to develop a new uh, comprehensive uh, energy package that will uh, address some of these issues like, um, like uh, return on investment uh, and so on that will help you all move forward in this industry. Um, and uh, I hope to, uh, to get some feedback from you all uh, in this process. Uh, as, this, as this new uh, legislative package is introduced, there's going to be a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of uh, opportunity for you all to, to chime in and tell us what uh, is going to work and what isn't going to work and how we can make this uh, the most effective uh, legislation possible in this environment. Um, and again, um, I want to thank you all for allowing me to address you this morning. I just want to say, um, uh, I, I live in California. Normally I come back an uh, early flight on the day of votes. Today is the day of votes, uh, first day of votes this week. Uh, but because I had an opportunity to come here and meet some of you fine folks, I decided to come back a day early. So just uh, tells you how... Questions uh, for the congressman? Well, um, I guess the, the question that's certainly on my mind is uh, what is the agenda of the uh, Grid Innovation Caucus? Uh, and do you see some, some natural issues coming out of your uh, bipartisan efforts uh, anytime soon? Well, I mean, the, the, real, uh, the real goal in my mind is to uh, establish a forum so that we can discuss what legislation will be useful, but also uh, to get people excited about it, because we're going to be doing these demonstrations. We want uh, some of my colleagues to get out there and see what's going on, to meet some of the players in the industry. Uh, so it's as much uh, of, a, of an opportunity to get people excited in sort of a PR way uh, as it is a policy uh, forum. So I think the two objectives will be... Uh, what I have in mind, I think my colleague uh, and co-founder, uh, co-chairs also feels the same way. Well, I would make the same offer that I made to the senator. We'd, we'd be delighted uh, if you'd call on us for, uh, 
for uh, our input and expertise. We have quite an array of, uh, uh, of technologically astute people here. Thank you. Be glad to. Are there other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, what approach would you like to see the committee take in addressing cybersecurity? <laughs> Well, that's uh, cybersecurity is one of those uh, really hard to get your hands on issues. I mean, there's uh, there's three or four aspects. There's the uh, the data breach notification uh, part of it. There's data sharing. I think there's a data sharing uh, bill going to be marked up uh, and voted on relatively soon. We had a, uh, a data breach notification markup in the House um, last week. It was it was relatively bipartisan, um, and uh, I think. Um, the, the members of the majority uh, listened to the members of the minority. Uh, they didn't accept our, our proposals exactly, but uh, they certainly have promised to work with us in finding a, a compromise solution, which is important, because if it doesn't have a compromise solution coming out of the House, it's not really going to go anywhere uh, in the Senate or the White House. So that's important. Uh, the other uh, part of that is data security. How do we make sure that our data is secure? Uh, and then if you look at your uh, part in that question, uh, data security for, for transmission companies, uh, for, for utility companies, is a bit of a different question than it would be for healthcare uh, companies, uh, health insurance companies, or uh, for banks, or for credit card companies. So every sector, uh, every, every part of the economic, uh, every sector of our economy is going to have to look at what it's going to take to make uh, their data secure and make their customers have confidence that their data is secure. Uh, and then once we understand what that is, uh, what those requirements are going to be, I think we're going to be able to be in a position to, to legislate what's needed and uh, get the uh, Federal um, Communication Commission uh, and Federal Trade Commission to enforce those rules. So uh, we have still a big challenge. Uh, but it's a necessary and it's an urgent challenge. Uh, we see that there's an opportunity uh, with some specific sorts of cyber attacks to uh, to destroy perhaps some of our uh, of our um, uh, um, uh, tra uh, our uh, transformers uh, and so on. So uh, we need to act urgently, um, and uh, legislation is moving forward, uh, at least on data breach uh, and data sharing. And we need to get something more solid on. On, uh, on data security as soon as we can. One more. What, uh, what are the research needs on new transmission technology uh, that the federal national laboratories can address? And do they have the resources to, to do the role that the federal government might have in research? Okay, I don't quite understand well, okay, well, the question. You have changes in, in transmission technology with uh, tube generation and everything else. Uh, are there, uh, is there basic research that the federal government needs to do in that area, or is this something that would be more done by private laboratories? Well, uh, I, I think the current mood in Congress would be to uh, provide a um, uh, situation where there's a return on, on in the research investment in the private sector through tax breaks or, or other means, rather than trying to, uh, to, to fund, although uh, I'm, I'm certainly in favor of, of providing the Department of Energy money uh, to grant money to do research. I think the mood of the Congress is, is more in, in terms of uh, letting the private sector do it. So uh, the, the vehicle would be to make sure that there's tax return on investment on that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much.
We are not going to waste any time. I believe uh, our next uh, panelists are here. I, I see Joe and um, Assistant Secretary Durkovich, I believe, is. Uh, all right, we're going to, this is a perfect segue. The congressman uh, was talking about uh, cybersecurity and legislation. And uh, Assistant Secretary uh, for Infrastructure Protection um, and, uh, and Homeland Security uh, is, is going to talk a little bit about what the government's uh, responsibilities and activities are in that area. Uh, Caitlin Durkovich is uh, 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 Assistant Secretary for Infra Infrastructure Protection, the National Protection and Programs Director at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Um, that, uh, I suspect, is an enormously complicated and responsible uh, uh, job. Uh, she uh, uh, she uh, leads the department uh, in uh, strengthening public-private partnerships and coordinating programs to protect the nation's critical infrastructure, uh, assess and mitigate risk, uh, build resilience, which is very important for the power grid, of course, and strengthen uh, incident response and recovery. Uh, she has many years of experience at Homeland Security and, and in, um, in related positions. Started out at Booz Allen, uh, She's, uh, ironically, was born and raised in New Mexico. Oh, is, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, a graduate of Duke University uh, and uh, uh, has, a, has a, 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 an incredibly uh, 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 great background for the job she holds. Uh, she and, uh, and Joe... Uh, uh, Denzel are going to talk about cybersecurity, and we frankly haven't given them nearly enough time on this subject, on this program today. So, you know who they are, and uh, we'll give you their home phone numbers. But um, uh, we we want to make sure that this subject matter gets a uh, a lot of attention. Joe, uh, and I'll go ahead and introduce him now. Has more than 20 years of IT and cybersecurity experience. He's the uh, Chief Information Security Officer and Head of Cybersecurity at ABB Enterprise Software. Um, uh, this is so far above my pay grade, I can't tell you. But Joe is, uh, is uh, uh, working on uh, a lot of uh, security issues relative to uh, public utilities and has spent a lot of time uh, working in, in the electric utility industry, including on uh, NERC's SIP standards, uh, and, uh, 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 and rather than belabor the subject, let me turn it over to the Assistant Secretary, and, uh, and we will look forward to hearing your remarks. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. It's wonderful. Uh, to be here. It is a glorious day uh, outside, and so if you have a chance to go outside and uh, just enjoy the sun and the flowers, and if you have allergies, I'm sure that hampers it, but it's certainly uh, pretty nice out there. Um, I am delighted to be here today, and what I would like to do is, is talk to you about um, our relationship uh, with the electric sector, uh, and frankly, 
um, the other critical infrastructure sectors, uh, why my office does what it does, uh, and to provide you with um, kind of a broad look at the range of threats and hazards uh, that can impact uh, the electric sector and, frankly, other sectors. And then I'll let Joe really do um, the deep dive into um, the, cyber, the cyber part of it. Um, so my office at uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of Infrastructure Protection, is an office that is organic to the Department of Homeland Security. It is not one of the 22 different departments and agencies that transferred out of other uh, departments and agencies to form uh, DHS, but it was established with the recognition that at the end of the day uh, on 9-11, terrorists weaponized critical infrastructure uh, and flew it into uh, iconic buildings, which are also uh, considered critical infrastructure. And that at the end of the day, the majority of our nation's critical infrastructure is not owned or operated by the federal government, but is in fact owned and operated um, by the private sector and other uh, unique uh, ownership uh, arrangements, um, some of them municipal, but you know, complex, but again, not necessarily owned um, by the federal government. And it was incumbent on us uh, as a federal government to work with those owners and operators to help them understand, and at that time, in post 9-11, really the threats uh, that could disrupt uh, their, uh, their infrastructure and their operations and thereby impact um, both national security but economic security and prosperity as well, to help them understand those threats and hazards and then to work with them to uh, develop tools uh, and programs uh, to to mitigate uh, to mitigate that risk, and so really over the course of um, the last dozen years, that's a, a good part of what my office has has been doing is working to develop those trusted relationship with the owners and operators of critical infrastructure, and again um, to help them change this or understand this evolving risk environment. And I think that's an interesting thing as I kind of set up the. What are the things that we're worried about today is that it has, the world post, since post 9-11 has evolved. And we remain very concerned about the threats um, from our adversaries. Um, we've certainly, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda remains one of our main um, concerns. But the, the, the terrorism front is changing. And with the rise of ISIL, um, we are con um, increasingly concerned about uh, domestic terrorism, uh, violent extremism here on, on U.S. soil and the impact that, that that can have on a critical infrastructure. But we're equally concerned um, about um, increasingly extreme weather. We're uh, concerned about uh, cyber threats. And so really the range of risks uh, and threats and hazards that a, a utility and a critical infrastructure owner and operator has to worry about um, is, is growing and increasing. And so we spend a lot of time, again, looking um, at these threats and hazards, um, helping them understand what is the probability, what is the likelihood, and how do you craft a security posture, a resilience posture that accounts for these, these range of, of threats and hazards. Um, we divide the world into 16 um, sectors. Uh, the energy sector is one of them, and under energy you have oil and natural gas, uh, and you have electric power, uh, as well as pipelines. There's water, uh, there's transportation, there's commercial facilities, there's the chemical sector. I don't want to go through all 16 sectors, other than to um, state that in the last few years we have begun to recognize that of those 16 sectors, there are um, a few of what we call lifeline 
sectors, that we recognize that without um, these key critical infrastructure functions, it would be hard to do what you do on a daily basis. Uh, and so in particular, uh, those are um, electricity, water, uh, telecommunications, and transportation. And think about what you do in your daily life. And if you took one of those, if one of those stopped functioning, if you couldn't access uh, the internet, if you couldn't make a phone call, if there was no power, right, if there was no water, how hard it would be to do uh, what you do on a daily basis. Well, the reality is all of those critical functions underpin um, our economy and the functioning of our American way of life. So we um, work very closely with those functions in particular, again, to help them understand what are the range of things that can disrupt um, their operations and, and how can we mitigate uh, that risk. Um, so what I want to focus on is two things. One is what are um, the specific threats and hazards um, that, again, could disrupt the electric um, industry, but equally important, the recognition that that particular critical uh, infrastructure function is dependent on other these other lifeline functions. And that as we work with owners and operators, it's not only helping them understand what is going to disrupt their own operations, but they are, there are dependencies and interdependencies, both in their supply chain, um, but across the critical infrastructure landscape, where a disruption in, uh, in, for example, the water sector can actually impact how, how an electric utility operates. And so as much as we're focused on terrorism and on uh, natural hazards, we're also very focused on the ecosystem of critical infrastructure itself and how disruption can have cascading uh, impacts. So um, when you look specifically at the range of threats and hazards that can disrupt the electric industry, they are far-reaching. Uh, and it is everything from vandalism and theft. Um, there is a lot of copper that you'll find on substations. And uh, you have junkies who uh, have made it um, a habit, uh, no pun intended, to um, go out and they try and mine that copper that you find uh, in a substation and they can go sell it. Um, and they can make some money and they can go you know, buy drugs. Uh, that is, as, we see as many of those incidents as anything else, but you have stupid people who are doing these things and sometimes when they're going and stealing um, copper, you know, they cause disruptions. Um, so it ranges from, from something as unsophisticated as copper theft to the very sophisticated and what we see on the cyber side from attacks on um, control systems to um, an adversary that is increasingly attuned to the fact that um, you, um, you can um, disrupt uh, communications and you can cut fiber lines and that can impact um, how the, the transmission and the distribution system works as well. I'm going to talk a little bit more um, about that. But uh, it's also natural hazards. Uh, and I would say um, you know, we're all very aware of how a storm like Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina um, can disrupt power, but um, we're, in, in, and the industry itself, I think, has become, um, it's very resilient and it learns from these lessons and that overall uh, it is well um, suited to handle what I, have, what, what I would call kind of high frequency, um, but increasingly low impact storms. We've gotten used to hurricanes in this country. 
uh, and most of the utilities know how um, to deal with it. And you, you see this as, you know, in particular in this region and particularly in the southeast, but when we have an approaching storm, you'll see um, the, the linemen and the trucks um, staged uh, outside the storm area because they know that coming in, they're going to have to come in, they're going to have to get debris removed, and they're going to have to get the transmission and the distribution, most, most often the distribution lines back up. So that's a hazard that we've, um, we've gotten used to. But increasingly, we're seeing severe storms. We're also worried about, um, believe it or not, something called space weather. Uh, and you have sun, uh, sun flares that can disrupt uh, not only the um, uh, electric sector, but the telecommunications sector. Uh, we had a storm here a few weeks ago um, that did cause um, some havoc, uh, but solar weather is, is, is uh, a concern. We're worried about electric magnetic pulses. Um, again, a range of threats and hazards um, that can impact uh, the system itself. Um, on the cyber side, uh, and again, we're going to hear uh, more about this from um, the next speaker, but I would say that overall, um, the likelihood that you know, the next cyber Pearl Harbor is a day away is not the case. Uh, and I'll say that for a couple of different reasons. One is that, again, the electric um, industry is incredibly um, resilient. Uh, and at the end of the day, they learn uh, and they adapt. But equally important, both the way the system works, and I think you've heard about that this morning, um, but also the recognition that while they are increasingly dependent on industrial control systems, at the end of the day, they're still an operator sitting in an operations center that can go turn, um, that can go flick a switch, that can go turn a crank, uh, and that can mitigate the impact of some sort of cyber intrusion. Uh, it is certainly something that as we think strategically um, about where uh, we're going and as we work to modernize our nation's infrastructure and we become more dependent on the digital infrastructure, it's something that we work with owners and operators across the board to think about, that you still need that human um, uh, uh, interface and that, that ability to go and mitigate um, a potential cyber disruption, that that, that back... Uh, that back channel, that back uh, fail-safe is important from a human um, asset. But at the end of the day, and as much as we're seeing on the industrial control system um, front and the, and the number of different malwares and intrusions um, that can impact uh, the operations, again, there's still a human at the end of the day that can go uh, and mitigate that potential threat. We don't have that, um, that type of fail-safe when it comes to physical damage. Uh, and it is why we are increasingly concerned about um, our adversaries doing damages, um, our damaging um, substations and transformers, and or a space weather or an EMP event where you would see multiple transformers uh, damage. This is the biggest challenge that we have at, at the end of the day. These are the component parts of the electric system that are um, take a long time to manufacture. Many of them are not manufactured here in the United States. In fact, most of them. Uh, they're manufactured overseas um, and in China and some of um, our other foreign partners that we've got, um, you know, tenuous relationships with at times. And so both getting, um, ensuring that there is an adequate supply of these transformers, but equally important, if there were to be major um, disruptions to transformers across the United States, how you actually physically move them is what the biggest challenge is. Um, okay. And 
they are large. Um, they often uh, they they are they require being moved uh, on rail, and there's a lot of kind of interstate regulations that make it difficult to move these things um, easily. So we are working very closely with the electric sector and with the transportation sector, um, again, to um, address this uh, potential threat. Um, what is encouraging to me is, again, I find that the electric industry is very um, forward-thinking uh, and very resilient. They understand um, the dependency on these transformers and the impact that um, damage to multiple transformers can have, and so they have developed a a transformer sharing program depending on the class of transformers, that at least we know that there is a, a sufficient number of backup transformers that if there were multiple incidents, we, you know, they are here on American soil. The, the, the challenge is, again, is how do you move them across interstate lines? And so um, we are working to, to mitigate that potential uh, impact. What is interesting um, about some of the recent events that we've seen, and, and uh, some of you may be aware of this, but there was a, uh, an incident in California two years ago uh, this month uh, outside of San Jose at a, a PG&E substation called Metcalf. Um, and, and ironically, this was in the hours following uh, the events of the Boston Marathon, uh, and it was... It went, um, it kind of flew under, the, the incident flew under the radar for a bit, uh, in part because um, of the nature um, of the attack, and obviously there was a lot going on in those 24 hours following the Boston Marathon, but you had an adversary who lifted the manhole cover um, and went underground in this uh, subterranean and, and cut the fiber lines. Um, that connected this substation both to the downstream um, PG&E substations, um, but also cut the fiber line that controlled the 911 um, system, which meant that all 911 service in the San Jose in the San Jose area um, was was disrupted. Uh, the adversary uh, then proceeded, and, and they knew what they were doing, by the way. Where they cut the fiber lines was up against the wall, uh, and made it difficult um, uh, to do a quick repair. Uh, they then proceeded to fire 120 rounds of an AK-47 into the radiators um, of this particular uh, substation, draining the oil, and what they were intending to do was to cause um, the substation to fail and, and really to you know, make San Jose and the Silicon Valley area um, dark. Um, but because there were some redundant uh, capabilities in place. PG&E was able to um, rebalance uh, the load. It was also night. Uh, it, the weather <clears throat> was cool enough that there was not a, a, a large load at the time, um, and there weren't a lot of customers using power because it was night. And so PG&E was able to rebalance um, the load, and there was no disruption to the San Jose area. But this adversary knew what they were doing. One, in that they cut um, the the downstream, the SCADA, the, the, the line that connected the SCADA, the SCADA systems that would have, in theory, prevented PG&E from be, rebalancing the load, but it also made it difficult for local law enforcement um, to communicate uh, with PG&E. Uh, and so we have since gone around the country to raise awareness again of, of our adversaries recognizing that they can both perpetrate a cyber attack and a physical attack and potentially um, cause significant damage. But this leads to my, my final point, which is the interconnected nature of how, uh, of how we work. And that is a lot of what we spend our time doing. 
is helping owners and operators understand that as much as they need to think about securing um, their own assets and their own systems and ensuring they are resilient to a range of threats and hazards, that they are also dependent uh, on other functions. They're dependent on telecommunications. They're dependent on water. The electric industry is dependent on downstream natural gas. Uh, and as they think about security and resilience, that plan um, has to include uh, the continuity of these other critical functions. And so to use an example, as we went out around the country raising uh, awareness about what happened at Metcalf, it was as much about having the utility owners and operators, or the electric utility owners and operators in the room, as it was about having the telecommunications provider and having the state and local law enforcement. So as they start to see anomalies and incidents, that they are communicating with each other. So that PG&E operations center the next time knows that in addition to and they had um, some intrusion systems on their fences that at the end of the day could have pointed to the fact that something was happening. They accounted for the high winds at the time. But had they known that there had been a 911 uh, line uh, cut and had the sheriff's department been able to contact them because they had also gotten a call about shots fired in the area, they may have approached that particular incident a little bit differently and actually sent folks out to see what was going on. Um, I will end with um, just a, a note about how we work with owners and operators. So in addition to working directly with chief security officers and chief information security officers to talk to them about the threats, we have a range of tools and assessments that we do. We push threat information out to them. We do training around everything from cyber threats to improvised <laughs> explosive devices to um, space uh, whether we try and exercise where we bring, again, owners and operators together, we you know, um, have a scenario and talk about how folks would uh, respond uh, to and also prepare for these types of events. But we are increasingly finding that engaging um, the senior executives um, of these companies, of trade associations, uh, is really important. These are the folks who are managing brand risk, operational risk, regulatory risk, uh, and I would posit that they need to have security and resilience uh, on their radar too, because a disruption caused by a security event can have an impact uh, on operations, can certainly impact the brand. Look at what happened with Target. Uh, and and the, the cyber intrusion that happened um, there, uh, and it causes all sorts of regulatory levers to be um, uh, initiated as well. And so we have been working very closely, especially in this sector, with the CEOs of the investor owns, the rural um, firms, and and the um, public power companies. Um, we brought them to the table. We've given them a, a kind of much deeper dive of of the um, environment that I've given you. Um, and now on a quarterly basis, meet with them. Um, we've got a work plan in terms of the things that we're trying to address. Uh, we're working on a plan for how we would handle um, something like what happened in Japan where you had an earthquake, a tsunami, uh, and then the event at Fukushima. Uh, what are the roles and responsibilities of industry? What are the roles and responsibilities of government? Where do we know we have some challenges? Let's go back to the transformer issue and how we would uh, move those transformers and how can we ensure that we're working 
uh, in coordinated action. But increasingly, these CEOs also recognize the importance that they need to be working with and meeting with their counterparts in the financial services area, in the water sector, in the transportation sector, in the downstream natural gas, and in the communication sector. Because again, without those key functions, it would be hard for uh, the electric sector to do uh, what it is doing. So um, to end, uh, it is a very complex and dynamic uh, environment. Um, as you learned earlier, uh, um, the, the electric industry works very closely with its public utility commissions to, um, as they make investments in upgrading the electric infrastructure and putting in security and resilience measures, they actually have to go to the utility commissions to get to do rate recovery. They can't pass those costs on to customers without getting approval from the public utility commissions. And so in a day and age when they're looking at everything from vandalism to cyber threats to how are you resilient to space weather and EMP, it's asking a lot in terms of what are all the things that you put in place to mitigate them. So part of what we do is help them understand what are the protective measures that uh, can mitigate a number of these different threats, but also working with them to help make the case to the public utility commissions about why they should be able to you know, do rate recovery for these particular investments. I find it, I will end with this again, that, that it is a, a very resilient sector. Um, they are um, very cognizant about the range of things that can impact them to include cybersecurity. Uh, and um, they are, uh, again, working to ensure uh, that they can remain uh, resilient through a range of different threats and hazards. So with that, I'm going to turn it to Joe, and uh, then we'll take questions afterwards. Oh, one thing, if you have not um, read this or seen this, this is the EPRO handbook. This is a great primer just into the range of threats and hazards faced by the electric uh, industry, how it works, how they're dealing with it. It's an easy read. Uh, and in fact, I, I've got folks all over the country. I've given a copy um, to all of my folks uh, out uh, in the field so they can get a better sense of how uh, the uh, electric sector works. Thank you. Yep. So I'm going to keep this simple. This is We started this morning. Uh, with a great overview of how complicated this machine is. Mm -hmm. And it's ex an extraordinarily complicated machine. I'm convinced that the electric system, at least in North America, is probably the most complicated man-made machine in existence. And the fact that it works in real time every day is a testament to how great our electrical engineers are in this country. I mean, that we have a product that is produced the instant that it's consumed, and we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but it all works. So I'm going to ask the engineers to, uh, to forgive me as I oversimplify the system, because uh, I know it's against their nature, but they're going to want to correct every, every imperfection in my talk. So please. Uh, but here we've got an example of these things are massive, and this is just one generator. Right? In a typical generating station like this, we have dozens of subsystems from fuel handling, water purification, turbine monitoring, emissions monitoring that are all controlled uh, by industrial control systems, which is a fancy way of saying computers. So they are all have a cyber threat element. So we're 
controlling them in real time with computers. We no longer staff to control these things manually. We no longer have the skilled personnel to operate the electric sector like we did 50 years ago. It's, we depend on automation or it wouldn't work. Here's another example of a, of a generating station. And remember, we've learned today, these are typically large. I mean, it's changing a little bit, but still today, we typically have large generators that are geographically isolated. Uh, we talked about the siting challenges we have with transmission lines. Well, believe me, no one wants one of these in their backyard either. These are tremendously difficult uh, facilities to build, to engineer, and to site. And for those of you that are, I, I see some colleagues that I've worked with over the years who have gone through this process of, of getting, the getting the permitting, uh, getting the uh, rate cases approved so that you can get recovery from your constituents and your customers in terms of paying for these assets, and then they have a lifespan of 30 to 40 to 50 years. Uh, when we look at the electric infrastructure in North America today, we've got a huge percentage of it that's more than 30 years old. So that's one of our challenges from a cybersecurity perspective. So additional background, we've got to get it from where it's made to where it's going. So this is a substation. Again, massive facilities, and there are thousands of substations in the United States and North America. Again, all of this, there's a control room, someone you can't see it in this picture, but there's a control room that's again full of computers. And all of this information that's coming back to these operators in real time, we call it telemetry, and it works over SCADA systems. All of this is coming over computers, computer networks, older uh, protocols, telephone networks, etc. back to an operator to make informed decisions. So all of that, we had a talk earlier this morning where they mentioned situation, situational awareness. And the situational awareness is all of that data coming back to an operator so they can make informed decisions. So one of the things that I want you to think about when in terms of a cyber threat, what if the information the operator is given is incorrect? What if, the, what if it's the exact opposite of what's really happening in the field? What if this breaker is open but the operator's console shows it as closed. You know, the very, very severe consequences in that this equipment that is extraordinarily expensive, difficult to procure, and difficult to manufacture and install, long lead times can be damaged and loss of life. I mean, the, when, when we have technicians working on this equipment, we expect the, uh, the state of the equipment to be safe. And that's made that decision is helped by the situational awareness and by the operator. So we've got another transmission substation. This just shows the scale of these facilities. It's, it's just remarkable. If you ever get an opportunity to tour one, or if you uh, do so, I mean, they are fantastically immense, and the fact that they work is amazing. So how do we pull it all together? Well, this is, a, this is an older picture of a control center. Uh, this is probably a, a mid-90s uh, vintage, maybe early 2000 uh, vintage control center. That is a, a map board that is uh, uh, digitized. So it's, it, they used to have them with push pins and magnets even. But all of this information uh, show, is showing the system operators who would typically sit down here in real time what, what, this, what the transmission system is doing. 
So these are probably substations and generators, and then you've got transmission lines in between, and the color coding tells the operators how, how much uh, electricity is going across each line, uh, what actions they need to be. And this is where they make those decisions that the load, the customer usage, is now balanced with what is coming out of my generators. And in every phase of this operation, we have an opportunity for cyber events to take advantage of it. And that's what we're trying to protect. And we're challenged by this aging infrastructure, uh, the aging workforce. We don't have human operators every place anymore. Uh, we certainly have them in our control centers, I mean, that's, but we do not have operators in a typical substation anymore. Uh, we, how many people have a meter man that comes to their home to read their meter? Uh, you know, th those folks are no longer. Uh, our, all of our meters are, are almost all of our meters are read in an automated fashion, and we have old protocols, protocols that were designed decades ago where these new cyber threats were not envisioned. It's not that the people that designed this equipment were stupid. Uh, they just had, it had not occurred to them that someone would maliciously want to take this over and cause the equipment to misoperate. It was not even in the realm of possibility in their thinking at that time. So these protocols were not necessarily designed with security features. Uh, the equipment gets a message and it executes it. So we have a lot of security questions that need to go into that. Like, how do I know that the message that is is coming from a legitimate system operator, and that the action that I'm going to take will not be destructive? And we have newer protocols now that can allow us uh, to authenticate those messages, encrypt the messages, etc., so that we can help mitigate some of those cyber threats, but we're in the same risk management problem that everyone else is, right? Uh, upgrading the equipment is capital intensive, it costs money, uh, it costs people who need to go install it and maintain it, and we have to balance these risks along with all of the other risks that affect the grid. What I will say, the threat actors are extraordinarily sophisticated. And I've worked um, in the utility industry for, for many years and have had the opportunity to work in a security operations center where we're monitoring security events across our system, uh, both physical you know, alarms and, and uh, cybersecurity events. And I've worked with a number of utilities that, <clears throat> that have similar facilities. And the number of events that we see is the, the challenge is not getting the events, it's filtering out all of them and, and getting to the one in 100,000 that's actionable. Because when we look at our systems, we find out that they're being probed constantly. And in fact, the number of events that we see resulting from probes is the capacity of our equipment to log and get them to us. So, you know, 50 to 100 events per second uh, on a traditional medium-sized utility that are monitoring their assets. So, I mean, it's just looking constantly for an opening so that I can exploit that system. 
and, and we, there are just fantastic statistics. You know, if you put an unpatched system on, on the internet, which you would never do with a control system, by the way. Uh, unfortunately, there are people who have. Uh, there's a search engine out there called Shodan, which will find them for you. Uh, I certainly hope they're not our customers. I uh, know it certainly would not be our recommended installation. Uh, but check. Those systems have a, a lifespan of seconds before they're taken over by an adversary. So we have to be diligent. We have to engineer our systems uh, to pr protect the authenticity of those control messages. Uh, but it's extraordinarily challenging. Uh, I, will, I will leave it with that. It's a complex machine. Uh, we are, are faced with the aging infrastructure, uh, reduction in the skills needed to maintain it, and the sophistication of our threat actors is continues to increase. So we are approaching it in a systematic method. Uh, the electric sector, uh, ISAC, and, and NERC do a fantastic job. Uh, the financial sector does an excellent job as well. And, and the electric sector, sector has been working together for a very long time to address these issues. And, and we're doing so in a, in a balanced way. And modernizing the, the equipment, allowing the equipment to use the newer protocols that will authenticate the messages, encrypt it to keep adversaries out, and act in real time to uh, route around issues or problems of any kind uh, will help improve the overall resiliency of the grid. So with that, I will open it up for questions for, for Caitlin or myself. Thank you very much. We, uh, we'd be delighted to take a couple of questions, um, if there are some. Uh, and we are, of course, over time already. Yes, sir. Uh, as houses get more interconnected with you know, the house or anything hooked up to the internet, uh, typically have very poor security, they get hacked into. Uh, two questions. One is, can that be a way to get through the smart meter into the electric system if you don't have the right security in? And the other thing is, could that be a, a source of vandalism to the system if the hacker gets into thousands of houses and then all of a sudden has them put on all the appliances all at once and, and gives you a huge load spike? Yeah, absolutely, uh, we're concerned about that as a threat. And uh, particularly in these smart grid distribution management systems, uh, remote disconnect is the, is the threat that we're most concerned about. Uh, we're most concerned about someone being able to get upstream into a control center environment and with the push of a button, uh, disconnect hundreds of megawatts of load immediately and cause uh, imbalances in the system that could cascade and cause widespread outages. Not that hundreds of megawatts wouldn't be a widespread outage, but we're talking now across the, the greater part of one of those interconnects. So the, the systems have been engineered to prevent that. So while it is certainly theoretically possible uh, that you have, uh, from a meter, connectivity back to a control center. There are numerous safeguards in place to prevent that from happening. All the way to the operator control and having uh, you know, more than one person <coughs> pushing the button before we do remote disconnect, remote, you know, uh, controlling the numbers of meters that can be disconnected at a single time, those types of things.
That's a, that's a great question. Well, we're going to end with that great question, and I'm going to ask uh, Caitlin and Joe's indulgence and and uh, uh, say thank you very, very much for your presentations. Uh, and uh, uh, we obviously need to have a much longer conversation about this. We have one very great panel and one long panel, and. Um, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Professor Klein and, and Monroe to come up. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the clean power plan that EPA has proposed and what its implications are for transmission. And you'll have to forgive us, forgive me in particular, for not allowing enough time to really explore this in detail. Um, but again, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this as EPA finalizes its rule this summer. So um, uh, Steve Fine is, is Vice President of ICF International, uh, uh, the, the Energy Advisory and Solutions Practice. Um, he's been around the business a long time, and, and uh, I'm, uh, I, I've seen some of ICF's work in this area already. It's really quite impressive and, and, uh, and helps convey, uh, you know, kind of tangible tangible evidence of what the implications of this change in the generation mix that EPA is proposing uh, augurs for the, for the future. Carl Monroe, of course, uh, is uh, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of SPP, uh, somebody who's known very well, certainly to our membership. Carl and SPP are members of, of WIRES, and uh, as is ICF, actually. But um, uh, Carl, um, uh, Carl is uh, going to explore uh, a little bit about uh, uh, how an RTO would look at this issue and the kinds of dilemmas uh, that you're facing in terms of, of planning for the uncertainties involved in, in the clean power plan. So uh, I'm going to ask you to try and keep it brief so we don't run out of time. Unfortunately, they're going to... They're going to send in a general that looks sort of like that to run us out of here at 3 o'clock. So I, I, I want to make sure we have enough time for our last group. So I'll turn it over. Can we just tee up the slides? All right. Well, good afternoon. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jim, for the invitation. Um, as Jim mentioned, ICF is uh, we're an energy and environmental consulting firm. We've been doing this kind of work for a long time um, and are, in addition to that, a member of the, the WIRES uh, consortium. So I've been asked to be brief. I will definitely try to do that. Um, I'm going to talk about the Clean Power Plan, 111D, New Source Performance Standards. comes under sort of a, a bunch of different names. I, I, it's the talk. If you're in this part of the, in the environmental regulatory part and looking at what environmental regulations are on the, on the power sector, and we've been looking at these for a long time, uh, it's clear that once you look at this, that this is just not another air regulation, right? This is essentially is in many ways rewrites the resource plan uh, of the U.S. Um, and really rearranges the U.S. power map. Uh, the reduction requirements vary significantly, uh, and, and this came about as a result of not getting federal legislation to, uh, to control greenhouse gas emissions. So what we have is EPA regulating greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean uh, Air Act, and everybody said, don't do it, don't do it. You really, you need to go down the, you should go down the federal legislative route because if you do it through the Clean Air Act, which isn't really meant to 
regulate uh, greenhouse gases, then it's going to be a mess. Well, here we are. Um, but what EPA has done is given tremendous flexibility to the states. I'll talk about this all a little bit more briefly. But so state policy design really matters, but we don't know what that looks like at all just yet. Um, the, the, it will result in significant retirements of, uh, in the system. Coal retirements, it's what it's meant to do, is to drive down coal generation, increase gas generation, increase renewable generation, and increase the use of energy efficiency. So it really is going to sort of rewrite the resource map. Uh, and how all those things come into balance depends on the standards that EPA sets, and we're yet to see a final rule that's coming this summer. Uh, and it depends on the programmatic way in which each individual state will implement those standards, will implement obtaining the program to obtain those standards, to obtain those standards. Um, and it's clear that given how it's going to rearrange the resource map, the transmission has a tremendously large role to play in all this. So that's the setup. A couple of sort of basics about the Clean Power Plan. Uh, it was proposed last June. EPA, is, they received comments, over 2 million comments received on new source performance standards. And what I'm talking about right now is 111D as opposed to 111B. 111D, even though it says it's called new source performance standards, regulates existing sources, um, the cutoff being January 8th, 2014. So if you were under construction or in operation as of January 8th, 2014, you are regulated under 111D. If you are a new unit, including new gas units, um, that are being constructed currently or any time after January 2014, you fall under 111B, which for a gas unit is not difficult to meet. Uh, it essentially rules out coal without carbon capture sequestration. Um, many have argued that you're not going to build a lot of new coal anyway, given the economics and low natural gas prices, and, and there's something to that. Um, but EPA based it on four building blocks. You often hear of block one, blocks one, two, and three, one, two, three, and four. Uh, there's a, there will be a lot of legal arguments. EPA will be sued over this rule when it comes out. Um, a lot about whether there was regulatory overreach. There, I'm not going to go into all the details right now. But safe to say that blocks two through four will be the ones that are going to be legally challenged. Um, and for transmission and resource planning purposes, it's really blocks two and three that matter. Block two is the redispatch of coal to natural gas, and block three is there's some preserve there's some nuclear in there, uh, but it's really about building new renewables and, and the amount of new new renewables that will come on the system. Um, so I'll, I'll there, so lots to be discussed about the building blocks, but um, in the interest of time, I'm going to keep moving. Uh, I'm going to show you some maps that are based on EPA analysis. These bubble charts, <laughs> third diagram down. I'll go into that in a little more detail that show where EPA, in their own analysis, when they, that they came out with the proposed rule back in June, is expecting to see additional coal retirements, where they're expecting to see additional renewables, what the shift in generation overall is going to look like. And, and, and the purpose of that is just to emphasize the fact that you can agree or disagree with the specific analyses that EPA has done, but the fact of the matter is, again, that the map is going to move. And resources, as we've known them, are going to change, and, and how they have how those resources access load and how they balance the system um, is going to matter and, and is yet to be completely figured out. Um, and then, of course, the final rule will be coming out this summer, as we said. Um, and then states are the ones to implement the programs they have between one and three years. 
to actually write what is the equivalent of their state implementation plans. They're not quite called that, but they're effectively the state implementation plans, where they're going to be um, coming up with the programmatic uh, ways in which they are going to, to meet those rules. So you're going to see a parallel process going on here. On the one hand, there's going to be a lot of smoke uh, and um, uh, around the legal issues and a lot of, I, I would suggest, and you'll see a lot of, uh, there'll be a lot of discussion in Congress and there'll be a lot of discussion in the courts as to where this rule is going to go. And at the same time, states are going to have to start moving down that the pathway of putting programs in place. Uh, so in short of a full-on stay by the D.C. District Court, uh, the states are just going to have to keep moving. So this is just a, a chart that goes across the 47 states in, in the lower U.S. Uh, Vermont is the only state that doesn't have fossil generation. But what it does is show the starting rates, the fossil rates in 2012, which is what EPA based this all on. And you can see the states on the left-hand chart side of the chart are sort of all those above 2,000 pounds, this is pounds per megawatt hour CO2 emissions. Those on the, the left side of the chart are um, those that are sort of all coal all the time in their fossil mix. Those on the right hand side of the chart that are under 1,000 pounds a megawatt hour are all basically natural gas uh, all the time with no coal and those states in the middle are some blend between the two. And this again is just fossil rate, not blending in renewables and nuclear or other non-emitting sources. Um, and then the decrement, so the, the 2012 is the starting point, the height of the total bar, and then those color bars represent the four building blocks that EPA used to get them down to the final rate, right, which is called the best system of emissions reduction. And those rates, again, these are what were in the proposed rule. EPA is rejiggering some things, recalculating some things right now in response to the many comments that it received, over 2 million, as I mentioned, on 111D by itself. Um, and, and they're going to be coming out with those final rates uh, come uh, this summer. And, and those rates matter because they essentially they differentiate between the states. So some states have higher compliance targets, some states have lower compliance targets. And that sort of alters the playing field right there, and certainly the traditional playing field. It's already altered from the get-go, uh, but this alters it considerably more, with some states having a larger obligation, some states having a smaller obligation. Uh, I'm, I'm going quickly. So uh, so this is the first in a series of uh, maps I just wanted to show. EPA, by their own analysis, is showing that coal retirements in the U.S. is basically going to double by 2020. And that is relative to the base case that they analyzed that included the mercury and air toxic standards, so the MAT standards, which already took out roughly uh, 50 gigawatts, that and low natural gas prices. Uh, certainly have hurt coal economics. But that is responsible for roughly 50 gigawatts of coal retirements. Add on the clean power plan as analyzed by EPA, and you see another, an additional 50 gigawatts of coal retirements. And so if you just to put it in context, we started um, before the match regulations uh, with roughly the coal fleet of nationwide of roughly 300 gigawatts. So, and by the time we get to 2020 with the clean power plan, we're going to basically weed out 100 gigawatts, right? So a third of the coal fleet, rough numbers, um, is going to be gone by 2020. So that's just a, a reorientation. It's not to say many of those plants were older. Many of them were relatively inefficient. Many of them were not controlled. Hence, they didn't make it past the MATS bar, which controls for mercury and air toxics. Um, so there are multiple reasons. But the fact of the matter is that the, gen the traditional generation mix in this country and that's 300 gigawatts of coal out of roughly 1,000 gigawatts, or a little bit higher than that now, uh, total. But you take 
that we're, we're wiping out basically a third of the coal fleet. So just it's going to rearrange the map. Again, at the same time, you're going to have an almost doubling of renewables. And this is where you've got wind. Um, this is just referring to wind. You have some other renewable solar PV in particular, solar and some solar thermal coming in, uh, looking at EPA's analysis. But this just shows you that the green dots are where you're going to see increased amount of wind builds, um, whereas the, the, the white bubbles are where you're going to see decreased amounts of wind build. And sort of in the decreases are in the Midwest. It has to do with a certain way that EPA has sort of set up the interstate transfer of renewable credits versus how RPSs actually work today. I'm not going to again go into details, but the fact of the matter is, is that to access these renewables, there's going to need to be, and we heard that this, uh, we heard that this morning, that there's going to need to be transmission, right? Because getting accessing good renewable resources and bringing that into the load centers is going to require some transmission. Um, and then lastly, just looking <laughs> at uh, generation across the board, and this is just gigawatt hours, so all generation, all resources that are putting power onto the grid. Some regions are net positive, some regions are net negative. Again, this is not arguing good or bad. This is arguing that there's actually going to be a big shift in the generation mix of the country, and uh, the transmission system is going to have to adapt to that. Now, when you look at um, power system reliability, and there's been a lot of discussion about reliability and, and how FERC should weigh in and how NERC should weigh in around the clean power plan, um, and how the, the individual RTOs should, be, uh, should weigh in on these, and we'll hear about that in a minute. There are a few things to look at when you look at power system reliability. The first is resource adequacy, and that is, do you just maintain reserve margins, right? Reserve margins are because electricity is, is a real-time product without the advent of significant storage, which is just starting to sort of make its way into the market. Um, you need to balance that system on a real-time basis. Because of that, you need to hold the reserve in place. Typically, that reserve is 15%. It varies a little bit, but that, that's not a bad sort of back-of-the-envelope number. Um, and so when EPA looked at this and looked at the Clean Power Plan, they looked at it in terms of resource adequacy. And indeed, given the changes in the mix, so you're retiring coal in one place, you're building gas in another place, you're building renewables in another place, you've got some energy efficiency going on. So on balance, they looked at the resource adequacy issue and they deemed that it was sufficient, that there is, and indeed, the lights stay on in their analysis. Um, what they didn't look at, and what they say they're not charged with, which is true, are the transmission security and the transmission adequacy issues. And so uh, I'm sort of teeing it up for Carl, uh, because that's really the role of the RTOs, right, to look at that. And, and, and I won't steal any, any of Carl's thunder. Um, but he can tell you about SPP and how they're looking at, at, at this issue. So, but just keep in mind there are multiple aspects to power system reliability. Resource adequacy is, sure, is certainly important, but not the only component. Uh, and again, just another uh, segue into Carl's piece, various system operators, including ERCOT, SPP, WEC, PJM, and, and others, MISO, have, have sort of weighed in and uh, have looked at this and have come out with their own regional reports. NERC is going to be coming out with a report uh, and, and so there are, a lot of, there, there are a lot of folks that are very concerned, particularly with not so much the 2030 date, which is where EPA goes with those final targets that I showed you, that bar chart, um, but with the interim targets, with the 2020 target. Uh, and, and there's a lot of concern about how, given enough time, there's no doubt that the system can adapt. 
it's a question of timing and whether you can get, we've all heard about the lead times associated with new uh, transmission projects, but can the system adapt quickly enough? So, last slide, very quick. Um, just to, to recap, transmission is going to be part of the compliance for the Clean Power Plan. Um, the states, as we said, are going to play a key role, and those state programs are going to start to be developed once the final rule is issued this coming, sun, this coming uh, summer. Um, lots of uncertainty around the impacts. We'll know more once we see the final rule, and especially the thing to look for are those interim targets and what happens in, in that 2020 time frame. <laughs> 2030 is less, again, because of the time to adapt, it is less of concern. Um, and transmission is an integral piece of all of that. So with that flyby, I'll uh, turn it over to Carl. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I am going to talk about some of the things that actually have been talked about this morning, uh, but also Steve's done a great job of introducing the subject of transmission and what reliability means for MED. And as you can see up there, that's our mission statement, helping our members work together to keep the lights on today and in the future. So you can see that our main mission is reliability itself. Uh, this is actually a chart that shows both the capacity that we have to create electricity and the consumption on a particular uh, year itself. This was in 2013 itself. And you can see that, at least from SPP's perspective, we're pretty much mixed between gas and, and coal itself, although as coal is actually cheaper to produce electricity, uh, we use a lot more of the coal. But you can see that we have renewables that are starting to get in there. Both uh, We've had uh, traditional hydro, but then the wind itself is uh, at least producing, in 2013 was about 11%, in 2014 it was about 13%. We've had days where 36% of the energy, or an hour where 36% of the energy uh, from SPP was produced by wind itself. Uh, and we've been constructing transmission. These are transmission projects that have been constructed uh, over a nine-year period itself. Uh, a lot of that uh, construction has taken place in the last three or four years. That's about a third of what we intend to build with, uh, over the next uh, uh, six to eight years. Too. So we have a lot of transmission projects that are already in uh, process, and that transmission was being built both to deliver some of these renewables and to actually uh, provide reliability for that and provide reliable service to our members, but also uh, to get the economic benefits of using this mix of generation that we have in, in and of itself. This gives you a chart, and this was probably one that was mentioned before that people have seen before, is this is a chart of actually the average wind speeds, um, annual wind speeds, and then you can see where the SPP footprint is. This includes uh, some members that are joining as of October 1st of this year in North and South Dakota, and you can see that it's a pretty significant wind uh, development area in SPP. And you can see that it is on the west side. For the most part, it's on the west side of SPP, and on the east side is where all the load is, even within SPP. Uh, another interesting thing is from the panhandle of Texas to San Francisco is actually closer than to go from the panhandle of Texas to Chicago. So in that sense, you know, we're kind of sitting in the middle of the country with all these natural resources, both this and, as you can see, uh, with solar uh, provision, too. So there's a lot of potential there uh, to be used uh, in the CPP to, to respond to the, the intents of that. Uh, this is just the same thing Steve showed. This shows the, the ones for the SPP region itself. A significant number of our states have a lot of work to do to comply. 
this is the, the waterfall chart. This is what Steve was also talking about, about the interim goals and the final goal. You can see that for the most part we have to meet the interim goals. It's significantly the final goals anyway. Um, and as you can see, that's in 2020, and here we are in 2015. The rule comes out in summer. They got a year to put the, the states have a year to put the plan together. Maybe two years, maybe three years, uh, and so you only have two, three years to respond to that. And, and in some regards, building new gas plants may even be restrictive in that point. You may be able to build more renewables in that time frame, but at the same time, we've got to talk about transmission too. Uh, <clears throat> so we did a. We did an analysis uh, actually back last year uh, to look at the reliability impacts of the clean power plan. Uh, and we did that on two things, and Steve's already introduced both of those, resource adequacy uh, or reserve margins, or what we call it, or transmission impacts themselves. Uh, so what we did was we just took the, the expected retirements that Steve's already talked about in the uh, uh, rule uh, and uh, retired those generators uh, and saw what the problems were just in retiring that generation itself. Uh, and we saw that from both the transmission impact and from a uh, capacity margin or reserve margin impact itself. Uh, but then we also said, well, what would be a natural way to respond to the capacity issue with additional generation? What would that cause on the transmission system? So those are the two parts. And the best way to say that is what happens if we comply by just retiring the generators and we don't build any new infrastructure, or what happens if we retire all the generators that are expected and add new generation, but we still can't build the transmission in the time frame. And in both those cases, we have to, we have to make a choice between violating the NERC standard, one law, uh, in order to meet the other law, or the other regulation, if you want to look at it that way. So we're in a quandary here on 2020 of which law to, or which regulation do we actually violate. Uh, this is all of the retirements of CISO, but this shows the specific, the particular ones, at least in SPP. And then this was when we did the part two. This is where we added generation and the types of generation. And you can look at this when you get it uh, to see where we would have expected to add generation. Again, this was based on just the best guess we had about where we would add generation. It's not up to us to add generation. It's up to the members to add the generation. And here's where all the violations occurred uh, from a reliability assessment of the transmission system. And this is a reserve margin. You can see we have a minimum of 13.6 as a reserve margin, uh, but by 2020 it'd be only 4.7, which we'd not be meeting that requirement, and that would put loaded risk of being able to serve it. Uh, this uh, gives you an idea of what it takes us to build transmission, and that's from the time that we start to study for what we need to transmission. It takes us anywhere from 12 to 18 months to, to get the study done because you want to make sure you're making a wise decision. It's a 40-year asset. You're talking billions of dollars here. Uh, you want to make a wise decision in doing that. And then you actually have to now, under Order 1000, you have to go out and actually bid this stuff out. So that means you spend another year uh, bidding the projects out to get them built in and of itself. And then it takes anywhere from two to six years to actually construct it. So you're talking somewhere between eight and a half to, to ten years to get transmission built uh, from the time that you envision just starting the study itself. And that's the long lead time. That's a long pole in the tent now for, uh, for planning uh, is transmission itself. And that's why it's important that we understand what the impacts are going to be and have the time to do it uh, so that we can build the correct transmission infrastructure to actually make this work. Uh, <clears throat> 
So anyway, this just sums up what we talked about. What we actually asked the EPA in there is that we needed more time. We needed more time to meet the interim goals. It's, it's almost impossible to meet the, uh, the interim goals without putting the, the load and the transmission system significantly at risk. risk. Uh, but if we have the time, we should be able to, to meet those requirements, uh, particularly given enough time so that parties can make wise decisions, not only the states and how they're going to do the implementation plan, but the parties who have to respond with their generation plans itself and then the transmission that actually lags all of that. At the same time, we ask for a reliability safety valve, so that if you know we're going to cause a reliability problem, give us you know don't give us this this choice of violating one rule or the other. Give us the choice of making sure that we protect reliability of the transmission system. We also uh, started another study uh, the end of last year and just completed it. It's out uh, on um, our website if you want to go look at it. But this, the members came and asked us to also look at what the, how we could actually comply um, with this, you know, using those building blocks, at least what was reasonably to expect that you could do in each of the building blocks, how could we comply, and what it would cost. And they not only want to look at it that way as uh, what would it take SPP, but we want to look at it on a regional basis and a state-by-state -state basis to see if there's a difference between uh, trying to have the states work together to come up with a regional solution uh, and see whether that makes a difference in cost. Uh, we just completed the regional part of that. We've just started the state-by-state. -state. Uh, everyone else that's done this before has found that a state-by-state -state is more expensive than a regional. We expect probably that will be the same case here. Uh, because you don't get that overall efficiency of the use of the, the planning and the gen and the actual operation of the system on a regional basis. That's one reason that we are here because our SPP is here because we get more efficient, efficient operation and planning out of a region than we do out of trying to do it state by state. Uh, so, but anyway, it, it will take significant amount, even within uh, the regional, which is the one that we published. It'll take significant amount of changes uh, in the generation mix, which then says there's going to be a significant amount of uh, uh, changes in the transmission system itself. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at with SPP. Again, we're waiting, as Steve has talked about, we're waiting for the final rule to see if there's been adjustments in the, hopefully in the interim goal, hopefully it'll give us a... a uh, a uh, reliability safety valve. Hopefully, it'll make it easier uh, to do a regional approach than it was in the in the draft rule itself. So that's what we're really looking at uh, from SPP's perspective. Again, our mission is to protect uh, the members in their delivery and make it where they can keep their lights on. So I appreciate your interest. Thank you, Carl and Steve. And uh, we, uh, when this rule hits the streets in June, something like that? Uh, June, August. June, whenever. Uh, we'll probably have another Wires University just to delve more deeply into this. Uh, and uh, because the, it will raise a whole new set of questions, I'm sure. But thank you very much. We're going to go on to our, to our next and final panel. Uh, I'm... Uh, uh, delighted to invite up uh, four uh, executives and experts in this area. I'm glad you all stuck with us today because this is uh, the piece de resistance. And uh, I looked out the window and don't worry about it, it's snowing out there. So <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me 
let me uh, let me briefly introduce uh, our last panel and thank you all for coming. And I also want to recognize that I didn't do it earlier. Uh, the Honorable Mike Ross, a former congressman from Arkansas, uh, and who now works with the Southwest Power Pool. And I'm delighted, Mike, that you're able to be here. This is great support for us. Um, uh, Commissioner Phil Moeller um, joined the uh, FERC, the, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, uh, the first first chairman of the of the FERC hated it being called the FERC uh, because he he was on the hill at the time the legislation that created FERC was drafted and it almost got called the Federal Utility Commission and I, I think he never <laughs> he never quite got over that but but um, we call it FERC we believe agency of ours and uh, Phil has been here since 2006 he has been a great friend of transmission of competitive markets um, he is in his the end of your second term I believe that's correct and um, has uh, was previously a uh, energy policy advisor to Senator Slate Gordon from Washington and uh, has had uh, jobs in the utility sector. Um, uh, I consider Phil to be a great friend and a great friend to Wires, and, um, and I hope he uh, uh, has a third term, fourth term. Um, anyway, uh, thank you, uh, Commissioner, for being here. Uh, our next panelist is... Uh, Vice President uh, of Transmission Operations for Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, Greg Lemler, excuse me, um, has been in that job for a while now, but he's had almost every other job uh, uh, in the uh, in the uh, uh, in PG&E. Um, uh, had various positions uh, in engineering, planning, uh, maintenance, construction, project management. And uh, his uh, his story career at, at PG&E is is not over. We're we're, uh, we're especially pleased that uh, that Greg um, uh, chose to last year to have PG&E join our organization. Uh, his uh, his uh, uh, most recent role was senior director of electric transmission system operations, and uh, you know PG&E system is. 18,000 uh, miles of electric transmission, a lot of it at very high voltages, uh, and 960 transmission and distribution substations. So he really knows whereof he speaks, but uh, the, the interesting thing is that, the, that his company is so involved in the evolving um, uh, Western um, uh, bulk power markets. Uh, and. Uh, he may want to say some things about that. He's a registered engineer. He's uh, an alum of my uh, um, of my school, University of Wisconsin, and um, and he also has an MBA. So you know, and a lot of engineers with MBAs. I think we we see a, a definite trend here. But uh, our our next uh, a panelist is is Mike Skelly, uh, who's president founder. 
um, uh, of clean line energy. If you follow the development of big uh, electricity pipelines, that is, high voltage direct current lines that are interregional in nature and designed to bring renewable energy uh, from parts of the country where we have very high quality uh, wind uh, to other parts of, of the economy and the other parts of the country. Um, that is, that is uh, Clean Line's uh, mission. Mike, Mike um, was uh, one of the founders uh, of uh, Horizon Wind and uh, was there for a long time. He has experience in thermal, hydroelectric, biomass, and energy projects. Uh, but uh, uh, naturally, he, he would come home to good old transmission. So uh, we're, we're delighted that he's, uh, that he's here. He's, he's a Notre Dame grad, and he has an MBA, too, from <laughs> Harvard Business School. Well, um, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Wade Smith, who I just met today. Uh, Wade is President and Chief Operating Officer of AEP Texas. Um, and... Um, uh, the, 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 uh, this represents a, a branching out in, uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of essentially a Midwestern, big Midwestern utility into, into new markets. Uh, he oversees uh, distribution uh, of electricity for 900,000 um, customers in Central and North Texas. Um, and uh, as, as uh, in that role, he, he sees all parts of, uh, of the grid. He was uh, uh, formerly uh, Vice President of Transmission Engineering and Project Services at AEP. Uh, he's a mechanical engineer um, uh, and, uh, oh my God, he's got an MBA from <laughs> Abilene Christian University. Yeah, I'm feeling sort of inadequate, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let, this, uh, let this go. Um, this is an open discussion, uh, uh, one you can all raise your hands and ask questions, but uh, I had the temerity to sort of come up with some, with some questions for them to, to answer. It all seems a little silly right now because uh, they probably want to talk about what they want to talk about. But um, let's, let's just put this on the table. Uh, how has the role of the grid changed in recent years? And... And uh, do you see new demands on uh, the electric transmission system that are going to fundamentally change your jobs or change the way we think about um, the high-voltage transmission system? And um, I think that would be a, an especially interesting question for a regulator, too, because, uh, um, sure. well... Mr. Chairman, would you like me to start? <laughs> uh, well, thank you for holding this forum. Thank you for all attending. I'll go just about anywhere to talk about transmission because I've tried to make it the top priority during my, my uh, terms at the commission because, as you've probably heard in themes throughout the day, depending on how deep you are into this issue, it's the ultimate enabler that we have as our fuel mix changes, either because of economics or because of regulations. Transmission allows us to go through that change uh, with uh, flexibility. It's also, of course, essential to the reliability of the grid, something 
we take for granted, but which uh, thousands of people work very hard to assure. Uh, a little anecdotally, 1.2 to 1.4 billion people in the world have no electricity. Another 1 billion have intermittent electricity. So reliability uh, is something that they would obviously like, something we pretty much have, but it's increasingly important uh, from health and safety and economic perspective as well. Transmission can cut customers' rates when a congestion on the grid, similar to con congestion on freeways, costs people money because power can't flow to where it's demanded without the, the cost of, of a congested grid. So it has a variety of benefits. The technology is changing. Uh, some of the people be, uh, behind those changes are here at the table. It's an exciting time, but it's still, uh, it still has its challenges in terms of us expanding the grid, which, again, based on the panel you just heard, uh, is perhaps going to be increasingly important, particularly in terms of building block three under the clean power plan. Uh, so, thank you. So I, I guess I would add to, to that, or perhaps reinforce a couple of points there. And uh, this is something that FERC has focused a lot on, is the facilitation of markets. So over the last uh, decade or two, we have gone from uh, regulatory construct where we said, okay, we got an incoming utility, they have assets, they put them in rate base, everybody pays for them, everybody pays for the transmission, and if, it's a, if the utility makes a great investment, then that works out well for the rate payers, and if the utility makes a dumb investment, that doesn't work out so well for the rate payers. And so uh, we've gone, we're slowly evolving toward uh, a, and it's spotty in different parts of the country, but we rely more and more on markets, and we rely on the markets to uh, allocate capital and to and to make decisions around uh, resources to a large extent. So, uh, without a grid that can facilitate the movement of power around. These markets don't work very well. This is why we have, uh, I live in Texas, we have uh, farm-to-market roads. And uh, in similarly in electricity, if you want markets to work well, you have to, they have to come with uh, infrastructure to move power around. Now, uh, many would argue that given the absence of, of uh, electric infrastructure at a national level, one of the reasons we have big differences in value of electricity around different parts of the country is because we don't have markets that are interregional, and uh, part of the reason for that is we don't have the transmission infrastructure that you need to support some markets. But we are slowly moving uh, in this direction, more reliance on markets, and uh, a, a, a recognition, I think, by everybody in the transmission space that uh, one of the really important things that, that wires can do is, is facilitate markets. And then the other point that, that uh, I would reinforce a little bit is as we have uh, built out the grid over the we sort of got a pass on the grid for, for some number of years while we moved toward natural gas. And the way basically natural gas works is you build a pipe and the pipe goes underground. We've got well-established authority to, to get lots of pipes built. Uh, and 
those pipes go to cities, you build a gas-fired power plant relatively close to load, uh, and off you go. So we had a great infrastructure to move energy in the form of natural gas. Um, as we look for new options uh, on the energy side, uh, renewables are, and this is sort of this weird term of art that we use in the wind industry, we call it a locationally constrained resource, okay? Which is, uh, and we do that with, uh, anyhow, it seems like a funny term that is only designed for us to understand. But what it basically means is that wind's out there in the middle of nowhere and you need <laughs> wires to get it to market. So uh, as you, as we move toward more solar and more wind, uh, we need the wires to get it there. And what we've seen over the last decade or so, there's been, and you saw this in the SPP presentation, big, actually a fair amount of transmission has been built over the last decade. A lot of it driven by uh, increasing demand for renewable energy. So when uh, when Carl talked about SPP hitting 13% and on days 30, 35% of their electricity coming from wind, that's because SPP and its members have gone about the task of building the transmission system to support those new resources. Without the grid, that would not happen. And we see the same thing in Texas, where we just underwent a big transmission build-out that, that uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about. Um, and that is facilitating the integration, uh, interestingly, first of all, of, of new wind, but then as uh, as new uh, oil resources opened up, there was actually grid required to get to the, to the drilling rigs and so on, so it supported that. Now with uh, the cost of solar dropping uh, almost by the day, uh, these wires are supporting uh, new, new, uh, new solar projects, which I think reinforces the point that the that, that commissioner is making about uh, the role that the grid can provide in terms of optionality. So again, the market facilitation and new new low-cost energy resources are uh, some of the really big trends that we've seen over the last decade and that we think, at least in our business, that are going to be even more powerful uh, over the next 20 years or so. So if I could add on to that, I think, I think the grid is not only uh, enabling uh, um, everything else that's going on. I think it also enables the policies that are coming out from uh, either at the federal or state level. So for example, in California, we have a 33% renewable goal. Um, that, that in essence, uh, in PG&E, we're probably 28, 29% there of our, of our sources is renewable, which is very, very important. Um, but what we're finding is, is that uh, it not only enables the market and the ability to transport power back and forth, but we're finding that um, it's, it's also brought a lot of uh, new innovation, I would say, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the markets and abilities to uh, provide different resources. And we talk about storage, we talk about a lot of different things. But we're seeing at it at at the not only the transmission level, but we're seeing it at the distribution level. Uh, rooftop solars. Um, uh, we have, for example, we have uh, over 150,000 rooftop solar customers in PG&E. Uh, three years ago, we were connecting about a thousand a month. 
a day or at about 4,000 a month. And we expect that to grow to about 10,000 a month. But what we're seeing, though, at the distribution level is that there's only a certain amount of rooftops uh, that can take solar, right, that take solar panels, and that, that capacity is going to run out. What we're really seeing at the, the policy level, again, to meet that 33%, and, and, and many of you know there's a discussion at the, uh, at the California legislature rate, legislation to raise that up to 50%. Um, but we're seeing, really, to meet that demand, it really requires uh, wind, it requires utility-scale type uh, renewables to make that happen. And we're seeing a lot of our changes and in investments in the, in the transmission system required to meet and to deliver that, whether it's in, it's in the Rocky Mountains in the east or it's uh, down in Southern California for us with, uh, where the, most of the solar opportunity is. But it's really uh, utility scale that's, uh, that's, that's really going to make that happen and meet those policies. But again, it's an enabler. So the way we look at it at PG&E is the grid is really, and we've, we've heard it a lot today, is really changing from just a you know, deliver, uh, deliver power from one end to the other integration. Uh, we are really looking at it as a, a network uh, that, that enables um, all kinds of technology, all kinds of uh, interconnections. There's, there's all kinds of different things that we haven't thought about today um, that are going to be introduced and want to be interconnected to the grid uh, to buy or sell power or whatever it is. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of that. We're getting a lot of requests for different uh, technologies that aren't necessarily uh, making it in the mainstream today. And I think that, as we move forward, to me, that's the, that's the real vision or where our 21st century grid or, or whatever you want to call it is going is... Um, it, to me, it's almost analogous, analogous to the, uh, the Internet, to a certain extent. It's, it's really a grid that people want to connect to and do different things, um, whether it's buy or sell power or connect in their, their electric vehicle into one area and charge it and then drive to work and, and sell their energy from the electric vehicle at a different location. It's just giving that, enabling that uh, customer's choice, customer's ability to do whatever they want with that system is where we see it going. Um, and we, uh, at pg and we've actually coined it as, you know, you've heard of the Internet of Things, we've coined it as the grid of things. It's kind of a, you know, whatever you want to call it, but um, it's, that's, what, that's what we really see the 21st century uh, transmission system as well as a distribution system. Because for us, it's all interconnected, it's wires. And uh, that's, that's what we see the, the, the vision of the future for that. All right, so there's always a risk of going last. <laughs> uh, I would like to start by saying I worked one summer for a few weeks in Albuquerque, so I have my New Mexico connection for those of you who have been here all day. I want to go back, though, to the stuff that's not changing. You were asking what's changing. I think one of the things that, that's really important for us to keep in mind, is, and, and I think we heard it earlier today, um, the grid really is the underpinning of our American way of life. We have to continue to invest in the grid. We have to have a robust grid, a resilient grid, one that can adapt and that is flexible because if you look at, at all that it supports for us today, it supports our commerce. It keeps our food cold. It keeps us well lit at night. It provides comfort to us. It allows our medical devices to function. So it's just critical for us, and that's something that's not changing. And, and having a robust, 
resilient underlying grid is just imperative for us. So what is changing? As you said earlier today, we're asking the grid, which was built largely in the 60s and 70s. In some cases, it was built long before that. We're asking it to do things today that it wasn't designed to do, and it really wasn't intended to do. It was originally intended to connect you know, neighboring generation stations to improve reliability. Well, we have to continue to focus on improving reliability, enhancing that, but I think you're right on target. <laughs> the, the challenge today is integrating and connecting everything else. The grid doesn't pick generation. We don't care what the voltage source is, whether it's a battery or wind generation. You're right, we're seeing grid um, utility scale solar connecting to the grid in Texas today on lines that were originally built to connect wind. And I think that's just the importance. The other thing is just integrating the new technologies that we're developing. You think of our industry as being a 100-year-old industry, you know, how innovative are poles and wires. At AAP, we've come up with a new design for overhead transmission lines that will allow us to increase throughput on where we, in the past, may have had a single 345 kV line. We've got a, a new line that's developed now that will let us use the same right away, shorter towers, and, and move one and a half. Or if we want to make it be a, um, a double circuit line, three times the power that we could move down that same existing right of today. So to me, the challenge is embedding the new technologies and allowing folks to connect to, what do you call it, the... The grid of everything? The grid of things. Yeah, grid of things. It's, a new, it's a new mantra. I think that's a good approach. <laughs> well, if you were to uh, um, to look ahead, say, 10 or 15 or even 20 years, we we may see, well, it's hard to tell what we're going to say, the, the, the things that are being hung on the grid could be quite different. Uh, some of the uncertainties that are being created by, uh, by law or policy uh, could be resolved, maybe not. Maybe they just create more uncertainties. But do you have any, you, this is an immensely unfair question, of course. <laughs> you know, you look at your crystal ball. Um, what, what, what do you see, um, uh, 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 what's the role for the grid? Is it, is it going to change in fundamental ways in terms of resolving some of these uncertainties? Can we uh, plan a transmission system without knowing what all the uh, gadgets are that are going to be out there that people are going to want to use? Uh, I, I, I think Hannah suggests that there is a way to get at that issue, but it requires a different kind of planning regimen than we have today, or maybe even a different kind of regulation. I don't know. But uh, uh, it, it, if uh, if you were to uh, uh, time travel a little bit, what what do you think? Where do you think we need to be in 2000? Pick a date, 30. Well, I, I think uh, the main thing to take away is that the grid is going to continue to be very essential. And I think of it in terms of after Superstorm Sandy, there was a lot of talk of microgrids. And you know, I hope I'm not offending anybody here, but microgrids are great. Uh, but 
you know, it's going to take a long, long time for them to be widely dispersed. And the ones we have now are for very specialized purposes, like Princeton that wants to keep tissue samples that are 70 years old uh, cold so they don't lose them. You know, they were willing to pay a lot more for that. In the meantime, we're seeing market expansions throughout the country. More and more entities are, are joining organized markets. Uh, and it's been really quite remarkable just in the last couple of years. And in my home of the Pacific Northwest, which has generally been hostile to it, the effort is growing. It's not a full-blown RTO, but it's essentially taking advantage of the efficiencies that are allowed through uh, a larger transmission footprint where the most efficient, uh, low-cost power dispersed over a wider footprint adds reliability, helps consumers. It allows those location-constrained resources to access the grid because they're the wind is usually blowing where there isn't a lot of people consuming power, somewhat similar to solar. So in 15 years, we're going to have a grid, I believe, that will take advantage of, of uh, additional technology that allows us to see into it uh, more frequently, 30 times a second as opposed to once every four seconds, for example. But it, it will be as important as ever even if we have developing distributed generation and microgrids, because those are still going to need to be interconnected. Great. Yeah. Um, whatever we do, we need to start now, because uh, you know we talked about yeah, it takes five to ten years to build a transmission. I I would argue that uh, it takes five years just to get the permits. Sometimes ten years to get permits. So um, it, we, whatever we need to do, we need to do it now because it, it takes a lot of, of time to do that. I think, I think it really gets back to. There, I mean, it's a multifaceted question. There's a lot of variables to play here, right? And I think though, when you get back to uh, uh, the policy and the planning component, is that's where it really starts. And I think it, it would be incumbent upon all of us. Uh, no matter who it is that's involved in this industry or has influence in the industry, to think about how do we how do we expand the grid such that it's modernized, it's more resilient, uh, whether it's cybersecurity or physical security tax. I mean, it's all of those kind of things, as well as interconnecting all of the zones that we know their renewables are, whether it's wind or solar. We know we know where those areas are. And I think we need to think about the regional planning or national planning of that and establish policies that enable that to happen. I think it starts with that. Uh, so I, I would, uh, I mean, thinking about the grid in 2030, uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that we're, we will have a less carbon-intensive fuel mix. And that means a lot more uh, either zero carbon or low carbon energy. Uh, if you think about it from a national perspective, we we are actually extremely well endowed with low uh, low cost uh, uh, energy sources in terms of solar, uh, wind, uh, natural gas. So we this this country is even from a sort of a global competition perspective, we're in much better shape than most of the rest of the planet if it comes to reducing uh, carbon footprint. Now, we got a ways to go, but we're, from just a, a natural resource perspective, we're, we're in a pretty good spot. 
um, if we can figure out how to how to get all this done. I, I think the other big thing that we'll see is more uh, efficiency will clearly play a role, but. Uh, the most popular high-end car in the country these days is a Tesla. And so uh, we will place new, every time we come up with more efficient things, we're gonna come up with uh, exciting new things to plug into the wall, and that will, uh, and that's noteworthy because it's it's very, very difficult to decarbonize the uh, liquid fuel uh, world. And it's very hard to replicate uh, a barrel of oil in terms of its energy intensity, uh, but with electricity, you can make electricity a lot of different ways through naturally occurring phenomena. Uh, it's really hard to do that uh, to, in, if you're going to try to make fuel. So that, if, if we're thinking about sort of a 2030 time frame, I, I just have to think that's going to be part of the equation. <laughs> I think some other things that, that we'll need to see, uh, I'm going to call it cooperative planning as opposed to interregional. Interregional seems to you know, get people's hackles yeah. up. But <laughs> co cooperative planning, I think, needs to take place to address some of the issues you were, you were talking about. Um, I think we're going to see uh, better coordination between the gas and electric sectors. Appreciate what's going on there. But that's very important if we're going to to be able to really address the, the needs of the country as as there's a bigger shift toward natural gas as a fuel. Um, in many cases, it, it could be a lot easier to move the electricity than to move the gas, and I think we have to look at that and figure out the, the right approach uh, on that front. You know, one, one trend that we're seeing uh, so far is really the uh, what I call the electrification of the transportation industry, you know, electric vehicles. I think that's uh, that's going to become much more of an influence and much more of an impact on our industry than, uh, than people realize. Well, you, you guys will be seeing it more than anybody. What are you what are you seeing? Uh, we're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing um, uh, we're seeing certain pockets of demand picking up, but it's a, again, it's a multifaceted grid and planning. You've got renewables. You got a lot of different things that are going on from a planning perspective. Uh, but we are seeing a big increase in, uh, in electric vehicles. And, and it's not only the increase from the load perspective, but it's also, going back to what I mentioned earlier, is customers want uh, the flexibility to do whatever they want with the grid, just like you can do with your iPhone today, right? You want all kinds of different things, right? And we're seeing customers that want to, again, they want to charge up in all kinds of different locations. They want to discharge and sell their power back to us in all kinds of different locations, not just one interconnection point. So we're seeing a lot of that kind of demand where it's, it's uh, again, not just a single point, but multi-point type activity. <laughs> and so there's a lot. I think that's going to be a big impact for us as an industry. I think the other thing that's going to be interesting to see exactly where it goes is, uh, you know, for quarter 1,000 is really just kind of getting off the ground. Yeah. And, and as we see what happens there, it's going to be important to have a level playing field for everybody that's playing and make sure that, you know, we're all following the, the same approach generally so that it is a level playing field across the country. Uh, let me put one more issue on the table, and then I'm going to open it up for all of you. I know you're itching to ask this panel some questions, but... Um, one, one issue that comes to mind when we're talking about change uh, uh, is new business models. Um, at least three of you are involved in 
uh, an industry, uh, I think one of you described it as, you know, building transmission to connect, you know, the, the, the local generation with load, and, and that was about it. Now we're looking at, uh, at, at transmission, anyway, as, as more of an enterprise. There are new entities out there. Uh, perhaps uh, Clean Line is represented, one representative example of a non-utility transmission company. Uh, those those business models are changing. They're changing with joint ventures and uh, spin-offs and and uh, new companies that we hadn't even thought of uh, 15 years ago. Uh, any any observations about where all that might be headed from a from a business perspective? I, all you guys with MBAs, I mean, figure this out. I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of different players in the industry, not so much owning the wires and the grid. I mean, there's a, there, there are, there's utility players, and they're coming, they're, they're, a lot of the same players are taking different forms. Um, but what we are seeing is a lot of other people getting in, into the business. For example, I don't know if you noticed, but just the other day, Google announced uh, that they're going to build a utility-grade solar facility. In partnership with, I think it's first for solar and things like that. But they're doing. Why are they doing it? I mean, why would Google be wanting to get into the generation business? Well, they see a benefit from an environmental perspective. They see a benefit from an energy <laughs> perspective. But they're doing it to meet their own needs. So I think we're going to see a lot more larger, more sophisticated customers starting to do their own kind of thing. Um, and then that, to me, is another player in in our industry and and another. Customer that we have to uh, we have to meet their their needs. On well, another one like that, you know, Tesla is working on batteries, not just for cars, but for you know, utility applications. That that's another place that you're seeing. Um, I think the other piece that, that you're going to keep seeing is going to be technology companies like Google, but it's trying to get at the meter so that they can work to offer products to you know customers uh, at a meter. You know, one of the things we've seen in Texas, uh, most of the utilities there have deployed smart meters uh, that are there so that, you know, they get 15-minute read increments. We don't actually sell to end-use customers. There are retail electric providers in Texas that do that. But they're starting to offer all kinds of different products. To, you can buy prepaid electricity uh, from any of the retail providers if you want. Uh, you can have free nights and weekends. Uh, if you want. It's just the different products that they're uh, starting to offer to customers to meet their requirements as well as to address the demand issues that the suppliers have. So, uh, not to be too contrarian, I don't think over the next few years we're going to see a ton of business model innovation on the wire side of things. Uh, traditionally, uh, the 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 new upstarts like us in, on the wire side of things are typically focusing on HVDC projects or scenes projects that go between, you know, New York ISO or um, and PJM or uh, Manhattan to New Jersey, um, et cetera. But they're not. Um, we, we haven't seen a lot, and I don't think we're going to see a lot of new companies springing up that are in sort of the competitive transmission realm uh, other than existing utilities who sort of recast themselves 
and, and largely in defensive mode because they're worried about some other utility coming in and trying to fish in their pond, so they arm themselves up to, to go fish in somebody else's pond. Uh, it's a... Um, and it's it, and I, I think FERC went as far as they sort of felt they could in terms of creating uh, trans, uh, competition in the transmission space. But, uh, you know, you really need to go to Brazil or certain provinces in Canada if you want to find full-on competitive transmission where uh, instead of saying, hey, you invest some money and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll largely put up with your cost overruns and we will guarantee you a certain rate of return. That's kind of the world we're in today. Other folks who tried to solve for the same riddle have said, okay, we've got point A to B here. Uh, you tell us how much you need in terms of revenue requirements each year and whoever's revenue requirements are the lowest gets to build the project. And so that particular developer, and I'm referring here to Brazil in particular, gets has to optimize their design, they have to build an efficient project, they have to optimize their capital structure around that, and lo and behold, the people who pay for all this, the ratepayers, generally get a dramatically better deal out of a competitive process like that. And I know that there's folks at FERC who would like to go there, but the, the, we don't have the framework in place at, at the state level and the federal level to make that happen. But if we think about what a, uh, a truly competitive world might look like 15 years down the road, I think you probably have to focus a little bit on less on the here and now and tweaking the model here and now in the U.S., but, and look at, at what the, uh, how effective competition is in bringing down costs uh, uh, elsewhere, elsewhere around the world. So, uh, but absent this sort of fairly dramatic departure from our current regulatory paradigm, it's hard to see, like, huge changes in the business model landscape on the wire side. There are opportunities, and we're firm believers in that, but it's not a wide open competitive world here in the U.S. Oh, I agree. Uh, to first credit, and I think this started really when you were there, Jim, uh, the Commission's been open, and certainly I have been to a variety of business models. And there is quite a variety out there in terms of some of the projects. Order 1000 trying to inject more competition, but there are the merchant pro, uh, uh, proposals that we have certain guidelines on in terms of uh, how we approach them. There are a lot of joint ventures. Uh, I think of uh, the Sunrise Project in, San in the San Diego area, which was both a utility and a and you know, citizens' energy, uh, building a power line. Uh, we've, we've seen, again, uh, more interest in the concept of, of an outside developer joining perhaps an incumbent utility. Uh, there's a, obviously there's ways to go, particularly on the interregional, uh, which we really didn't tackle in Order 1000, and it has a lot of potential, but uh, there's such Order 1000 fatigue right now that we kind of have to get through this before we, I think, take on any 
any big major issues. But uh, there, there were issues I had with Order 1000 that I didn't think we made the right call overall. I, I thought it had benefits, and at least one example of that is when PJM put out uh, their bid for the artificial island which was a area where there are nuclear plants, a long-time issue that had to be resolved. And they got 27 bids in that ranged from, I think, $157 million to $2.1 billion. And then there were three finalists, and we haven't resolved it, and there will probably be litigation to go. But the point is, you inject some competition, you get the, the, the creative new approaches that ultimately, uh, suing, you know, ultimately benefit ratepayers and hopefully the reliability of the system as well. That's, that's, very, that's a very great answer. Questions for this panel? Yes, Kurt. Hi, Kirk Perillon with Stantec. Um, I have a question that I guess follows on some of the dialogue and conversation that we've had today. How do you anticipate um, the transmission grid being able to respond to consumers' non-logical decisions? In other words, um, it's hard to make a cost-effective <laughs> argument for an Audi, uh, but yet people buy Audis all the time. And I think we're seeing that now where uh, consumers are making decisions to, uh, to to buy new technologies and implement new technologies that don't make good cost-effective sense. And we need to anticipate where those decisions are going to go in the future. So how do we do that? And in particular, how do we do that when we are looking at uh, the logic model for new transmission in terms of a cost-benefit analysis? Thank you. This is a tough question. Nobody yeah. wanted it. Um, I think it, it when you when it really bottom line, if you get to the bottom line, it's all around the price signals to that consumer or whoever, <laughs> and, and that customer that wants to interconnect to the grid. And, and it really gets back to the markets. If there's a if there's a robust market and there's a price signal or an opportunity um, to reduce that price, I think that's really what the, the trigger is. And I don't we don't. We don't have that yet, I don't believe, uh, in our industry, especially even at the distribution level. I think, you know, customers aren't seeing uh, that level. Um, and I think it's really, it really boils down to that. If we can get to that point where if you want to buy an Audi and you can afford it, you can buy one. I mean, that's what we've got to get to. Yeah, so I would question the, the uh, premise of the question. I mean, people buy Audis because they like them. And it's a, I don't have one, but it's a... You know, I've written them. They're nice cars, and they perform well, and there's a certain prestige associated with them. And those are, I don't know, maybe in some people's view, that's not a rational thing. But um, it's, I think we need to accommodate consumer preferences, <laughs> rational or not. And I think that's what you're getting at. So if somebody says, "I want solar panels on my roof because that's cool," then what we ought to do is say, you can do that, uh, and you're going to get roughly the wholesale value of that electricity. We're not going to subsidize it because you're typically, you know, you're probably driving an Audi or a Tesla as well with your solar panels. Um, so you're in a certain income bracket, and we shouldn't subsidize that. Um, but if you want to show off to your friends that you've got cool solar panels on your roof, then, you know, we should make that option available to you. <laughs> if I could add to that, if I may. Um, 
I think it's all around. I, I think where we're going with the grid and the grid of things and that kind of uh, uh, enablement, um, uh, we the the rate structures associated with yep. it really have to match yep. that, and they don't today. I mean, you look at the internet, right? I don't know what you pay, but between internet and uh, cable TV, I, I think I'm paying about 200 bucks a month a fixed rate, and I use it a lot. I got unlimited access to it, so. Uh, whereas the electric system, it's you know you pay on usage. So I think we've got to somehow make sure that the rate structure matches uh, you know where we're going with the, with the grid. Just explain that if you don't mind. Explain that the rate structure. Yeah. Uh, no, I can't. Very important. It's a non-subtle point. No, we don't have enough time. <laughs> well, well, that's what I wanted to build on. I'll, I'll twist the question a little bit in that. Uh, it was alluded to by Michael, but we have this, like it or not, this complex tension between state and federal regulation. Our state colleagues regulate the distribution side. Uh, we're at the wholesale level. Uh, one trend to watch for is those are somewhat converging with distributed generation, and there's probably a battle on the horizon related to a jurisdiction over some of those power sales. But setting that aside, uh, it's easy for me uh, to talk about the retail rate making because I don't have to face the consequences, but that doesn't stop me. Um, and, and the fact is that consumers are not seeing accurate price signals now at the retail level. And, and I hope they do because I think it'll be transformational. will be, uh, you know, Every other aspect of our lives, we see some kind of dynamic or real-time pricing. Whether you're going to a sporting event or an airline ticket, gasoline that you're buying, uh, you know, we are in a new world that's different than 10 years ago. On electricity, you're paying, you know, flat rates, maybe seasonal rates, but the reality is that that the value of that product is 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 enormously expensive for 200 hours a year, but you're, you're paying the same rate you play in the middle of the night. And uh, if consumers got accurate real-time price signals, and it's, it's really not about uh, the poor getting hurt because they're already paying it. Arguably, they are subsidizing rich people right now uh, when, when energy is the most valuable. So I think we've got great potential. That will empower consumers to make decisions that are more rational based on the value of the product. And, and I think we'll have a much more efficient system. However, it's going to be controversial. And... and Again, that's why it's easy for me to expound on it because I don't have to face the heat. <laughs> Great question, Kurt. Yes, sir. Okay, let's wait for the mic here. I'm Brad Nelson. I'm a AAAS policy fellow at DOE. Um, my question is kind of related to your last comment, which is I was wondering if you could comment on impacts and opportunities for peak shifting and the impacts that would have on transmission either through demand response or load scheduling or storage or other means. So some of the product that I was mentioning in Texas, are, that's exactly what they're doing. The customers don't know that's exactly what they're doing. You know, but when you're offering free nights and weekends, they're really trying to shift their peak you know, off to, to get folks out of the on-peak times. Getting to real-time pricing is really a challenge. Some places, you know, folks are really against even having a smart meter, which is just an advanced technology installed at their home. Uh, but I think ultimately, it's kind of where you, where you have to go. Yeah. 
So I'll give you a real-time example. We, uh, <laughs> right now, uh, we have a lot of solar that's come into our service territory, especially on the southern end. And obviously the best time for solar is in the afternoon. We get a lot of it. And the load tends to come up. Our peak is just right around sunset or in the latter part of the day, especially in the wintertime. Well, uh, what, we find, what we're finding is that there's almost too much solar during that time period to where we, we need load. We're looking for load to offset the solar so we don't have to, I know the ISO is looking, so we don't have to, to curtail solar. I mean, you don't want to get in that situation, right? Um, so we are, we have a, our Helms pump storage, about a 1,200 megawatt facility down in that area. Um, we now pump during the day. Uh, which is just kind of those that have been around the industry. I mean, it was always to run at night and the, you know to offset the demands of the central power stations, etc. So, it, the the whole load and the forecast and the and the demands and things of that are, are certainly changing big time. And we're seeing it today. And uh, solar is obviously being very disruptive in this sense, and. Uh, Hawaii is really grappling with it right now. It's the overgeneration issue that's kind of flipped the traditional uh, peak shifting on its head. Still, most of the country is going to have most of the population until we'll have the traditional peak shifting problem, uh, Midwest, East Coast, unless there's just massive solar penetration. But, uh, but it's an exciting time, and I think people... Pay attention to what the Hawaii Commission is doing. Uh, we'll be very informative, and then California is not far behind. All right, so I'm going to kind of rat out my wife, so I'm glad she's not here. <laughs> I've been in this industry for 26 years. She comes in one night, we, you know, I mentioned that it's going to be a high peak, so there's, you know, it's going to be kind of tight that afternoon. So she says, so should I not run the dishwasher and do the clothes? Okay, so my wife, who I talk about this stuff frequently at home, you know, there's no price signal at home, but it's like, well, yeah, you should. She goes, so will it be cheaper? It's like, well, no, but it's the right thing to do, right? So let's conserve right now, and then we can we can do the dishes later this evening. Again, it's the disconnect um, that's there, and somehow we've got to be able to communicate that to really drive home those programs and methodology you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, my only comment is, is uh, if, uh, I'm going to ask Wade to talk to my wife as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my wife thinks I have the most boring job on earth. And she won't even let me talk about this stuff at all. <laughs> Dan, we've got time for one more question. Then we'll have Thank you, and as much a uh, comment as a question. But there's, you're saying there's a disconnect at the residential level. I want to say there's also, I think, a disconnect at the market level. So if you're trying to run a pump storage plant, you put individual bids and offers into the market. They can take one but not the other. So you're committed to, to uh, you're committed to pump, but you may not have the, uh, they may not take your energy, or they'll take your energy, but, uh, but you won't get the energy to be able to pump because those are broken apart. Plus, also, the system is set up to give you an incremental uh, tax, essentially, on a losses, and, and which is a surcharge in order because of that. But when you're really doing fuel storage and fuel delivery, you're paying a tax to, 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 to uh, provide future value. You're providing a tax 
to, to return that. And that money doesn't go to the generator. It reduces, it reduces the economic performance of the person who wants to do pump storage. So there's, uh, there's not only disconnects. Once you get into storage, there's a whole set of disconnects that also apply at the market level. And I guess if it wanted to be a question, what are we going to do about that? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me comment. I, I think um, it's not only storage, but it's also markets. So uh, in California, the ISO started the energy imbalance market to help deal with those uh, those issues, this overgeneration issue, and it's actually working, uh, and it's working very well by just basically bringing in a broader uh, portfolio of generators. We're going into Pacific Corps area; they've joined Nevada, others. That can help balance uh, that out. So markets is also an, op an option. Well, before I adjourn this uh, this panel, I want to thank them for uh, stimulating discussion. Altogether too short, I'm afraid. But um, while while uh, we're filing out, I want to make sure that everybody thinks about giving us giving Wire some feedback on today's session. Uh, you can find us uh, at hushblackwell.com or find me there anyway. Uh, you can tweet us at, at Wires Group uh, or you can contact us through our website, uh, wiresgroup.com. Uh, it's been a splendid day. We had a great deal of fun. We had some great, great panelists, and uh, you guys were just terrific. You capped it off. So thank you.